The theme to SWAT from 1975. It ran on ABC for two seasons, starting in February 1975. Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff with Telus. This is being broadcast live and recorded live on September 24th, 2021. The time right now, 10.18 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. You may have noticed we did not do a show last week. That was not planned, but I needed a break. I just needed a break, so I didn't do a show last week. And we are back this week. Everything's fine. And we are going forward. So, be a full show this week with a lot of topics because we had a week off. That usually happens. And for those of you that are fans of Druffy Time Theater, you're going to be disappointed to hear that we're not having it this week because there's too much to talk about. So, we will return with that probably next week. But as Colonel Fabersham pointed out last week, if I do it every week, we're going to run out of things to talk about. We're going to run out of stories. So, it's just as well we're skipping a week here. I've tried to do some sort of story every week here, whether it's about me or other things in poker and gambling or just kind of interesting stories that I've found on the web. But this week, we just don't have time for it. So we're going to skip it this week. But I still am going to stick to that format where at least most weeks we're going to do it for the foreseeable future. We have a free roll, but it already started. And I made the decision not to reset it. I thought we were going to get going before the late registration period ended, but it didn't. So I'm not going to go into the whole spiel about it. It's a $50 free roll. It's presently running. If you got in, great. If you didn't, then too late because the late registration period's over. You have uh, 25 minutes of late registration, and it started at 9.50, and right now it's 10.19. So it's 29 minutes, too late. We're giving away $50, 25 for first, 15 for second, and 10 for third. 25 for first, 15 for second, and 10 for third. And it came from a random listener. A random listener sent this money. But there's a story behind it. The random listener found two vouchers for $24 and $26 each. And before they got roughed up by casino security, because you're not supposed to pick up vouchers you find in the casino and cash them. That's technically illegal. But this person did it anyway. And before they got roughed up by security, they took Tasha's advice... And they left. So security was just about to get to them, but they got out of there. And then they managed to get these vouchers cashed somehow, and they decided to donate it. That's how the money came this week. So thank you to that person. If you want to call the show, the phone number is 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. We have the Mount Charleston line, which is an old 70s rotary phone on top of Mount Charleston. It forwards to me wherever I go. We actually have a Mount Charleston story this week. 702-430-1808. 702-430-1808 is the phone number for the Mount Charleston line. The call to listen line is a number you can call and listen to the show at any time just by calling up and listening. It does not require a smartphone or a data plan or a computer or the internet. No, 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 no. You don't need that stuff. You just need any phone, any phone you ever had that can dial. And if you can call a number in the U.S. for free, then it's free. And if it costs you money to call within the U.S., then it will cost you money. But for most people, it's free. If you have T-Mobile, it will cost you one cent a minute. So please take note of that. The phone number is 605-313-0736. 605-313-0736. 
And we have an alternate number, 641-741-1095. 641-741-1095. Those are our two call-to-listen lines. It never buffers. It never freezes. It just works. Don't you hate streaming programs which freeze? Don't you hate when you're trying to listen and it just stops? And you're like, okay, what's he going to say next? What's coming? What's coming? Finish the sentence. And just sits there buffering, buffering, buffering. Pisses me off. So I said, I'm going to build something that never will buffer. It's one of the few ways you can ever listen to anything streaming and know it will never buffer. Really think about it. What else can you listen to streaming on the internet that you know won't buffer? This is the only thing because it's not on the internet. It's over the phone. 605-313-0736, the call to listen line. And when we're not live, you can listen to our streaming reruns. It just picks a show at random that we've done in the last nine and a half years and streams it as if it's live. And then it picks another and another until we come back live on the air. We have a chat room. If you're listening live, you can go in the chat room. You need a forum account in good standing in order to get into the chat room. It no longer requires Flash. It should work on any device. And also, you can now listen to the show on the radio tab from any device. does not require Flash anymore, any kind of special player. You can listen to the show in the archives in various ways. We have iTunes. We have Google Play. Or sorry, it's Google Podcasts now, not a Google Play. Google Podcasts. We have iHeartMedia. We have Spotify. The TuneIn app, which can also be used to listen live. The Bullhorn app, which has its own call to listen live, to, own call to listen line to listen to the archives. That's very nice. And we have uh, the Stitcher app, which is one of the first apps that was broadcasting our show. So a lot of different listening options. You can also just download or play the MP3 file that I make of each program. And it does not require any kind of external player. Any device will just play it. You just click on MP3, the MP3 file, and it'll work. Just click the MP3 button on the radio page. It'll take you to a list of shows. A lot of ways to listen. Even Amazon Alexa. You just say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio Podcast, and it'll play you the last episode that is in the archives. And if you say next, it'll go to the previous episode, which I know is backwards. But Jeff Bezos is kind of a backwards type of guy. So if there's another way you want me to provide the show to you, you can let me know. And if it doesn't cost me too much money, I will do it. If it does cost too much money, then I won't do it because this is a low-budget program and I'm a cheap Jew. So that's the way things go. But I think I give you a lot of listening options. In fact, I don't know of any show that has more listening options than Poker Fraud Alert Radio because I want to make it easy. I don't want to make it difficult for you to find the show or play the show or listen to the show. I don't want to force you onto a service or a player you don't like. I want to allow you a world of options to where you can pick the one that best suits you. Because all I want is for you to listen. I don't care how you do it. The free roll every week, keep in mind, uh, sometimes it starts before the show, as it happened here. Usually we get the show started uh, before the registration period ends. I kind of feel a little bit bad about that, but... I would have felt worse about terminating it like 20 minutes in and restarting it. That always pisses people off. So I, I went the path of least resistance here. We have a lot of money to give away. This week I only gave 50 because it wasn't announced very much in advance and we weren't on last week. So I knew there wouldn't be a big field, but we do have a lot of money to give away. Belly Buster, who runs the Poker Fraud Alert Poker room the no fraud online poker room that's where the free roll takes place he runs it it's actually on his computer 
he did something very, very generous, and he gave a very large donation. He gave a 0.01 Bitcoin. And you may say, well, that doesn't sound very large. Well, it is because a Bitcoin is worth a fortune now. So what he gave us was $450. And we got to figure out how we're going to use that. We also got uh, $20 from Matt the Rat, and uh, we got $100 from Shoeshine Box. Very nice guy. So we have almost $600 left to give away. And we'll have to do some kind of bigger free roll. I won't give it all away at once, but uh, we'll have to do some, some kind of bigger free roll coming up, some kind of bigger contest. We'll figure out how we're going to spend that money going forward. So look for that in the coming weeks here on Poker Fraud Alert. So here is the agenda, and then we will get going. I'm going to give you an update on the WSOP for me personally. There hasn't really been much change as far as the WSOP itself, but I'm going to tell you what my plans are. I've gotten a lot of texts about that asking about the WSOP, so I will tell you about whether or not I'm going to play. Then I'm going to tell you about the Poker Fraud Alert charity effort. We're actually going to give away thousands of dollars to charity. And there's no catch. We're, we're giving away. And when I say we, it's, it's my money. But uh, we're going to be giving away money to charity. But I'm going to take suggestions from both the forum and the radio listeners of where it gets given away. I'm looking for charities where, uh, and it doesn't have to be official charities. It could be anything that's uh, a good cause to donate to. I'll tell you about one when we get to the segment that we've already given to. But I want it to be a situation where the money makes a difference. I don't want to just donate to some large charity that gets a ton of money anyway and where half the money is used for administrative purposes. That's not a good use of money. So I, I want to donate it in ways that will be impactful. So I'll tell you about that when we get to that segment, be our second segment. Then we have a puzzle segment. And this is a very weird story. A very weird website came up, a pro-possible website that is full of propaganda. It's a small website. It doesn't have that much info on it. But what is there is a bunch of nonsense propaganda about the recent defamation suit that was dismissed and where he owes his attorney's fees. Uh, it's actually spinning it like it was a victory for Possel. And it writes some very misleading and untrue things about both me and Veronica Brill. And we have traced down the source of this website, and it's not what you probably think it is. So we're going to talk about that, kind of a weird development here. Then we have a story, an update of a story that we covered last week, or I guess two weeks ago now, the last show, that now has turned to have Poker Fraud Alert kind of at the center of it. This is the Andy Stacks versus Jenny Leong controversy from Life of the Bike, where Andy has been alleging that she owes 16 k to him and won't pay. Now, a lot of the drama is taking place right here on Poker Fraud Alert, which I didn't expect, but that's where it's happening. So I'll tell you about that. Daniel Negranu made a pretty uh, strong accusation against two poker players, one better known than the other, but both fairly known poker players, Will Fela and Robert Mizraki, were accused of passing fake vaccine cards at the win. 
That is like to other people. That's what uh, Daniel was saying. It sounded like he was saying on his show, Dat's Poker Podcast, that he does with Adam Schwartz and Terrence Chan. So I'm going to play you that clip, and then I'm going to play you a subsequent clip where he uh, goes into it a bit further, and then we will discuss what uh, Robert Mizraki said back, and we'll analyze what's going on here with these uh, fake vaccine cards. It's a pretty explosive accusation from Negranu. Mike Matisau battling on Twitter over, yes, a markup debate. It always seems like we get a markup debate every World Series, and this World Series is no exception. This World Series will have started by the time we do our next show next week. It starts on September 30th. The FBI seized the contents of a Beverly Hills private safe deposit box business. This has caused some controversy. We will discuss that. A Mount Charleston story. Mount Charleston Lodge, which is the best-known place to stay in Mount Charleston, has burnt to the ground. It is gone. We'll discuss the history of the Mount Charleston Lodge and that fire that devastated the lodge. Station casinos have has been disciplined for taking certain illegal sports bets over a three-year period. I'll tell you about that. Here's a story that maybe I'll move up to earlier in the show because I really want to cover this story pretty aggressively because it pisses me off. A former employee of a locals bar in Vegas called Lodge at Hualapai has accused ownership of forcing him to pay almost $4,000 out of his paychecks after he was a victim of an armed robbery there. Yes, you heard that right. An employee who was a victim of an armed robbery where he had a gun pointed at him and he had to give up uh, everything in the register there was forced by his employers, he claims, to pay the amount that was stolen. So we'll talk about that outrageous story and the allegation And I'll tell you whether I think it's true or not. The high roller at the link, that giant Ferris wheel that Caesars built some years ago. I've been on it many times. Kind of a nightmarish situation there that you're always kind of afraid of happening when you get on the thing. It got stuck and some of the cars turned on their side to where people couldn't stand anymore. And it was stuck that way for 90 minutes. So we'll talk about what happened there. Have you ever fantasized about going to the moon? Well, you might be able to. In Las Vegas, there's a bizarre moon-themed mega resort planned to be across from the wind that's going to be a scale replica of the moon, and the entire resort will be themed around the moon. It'll look like the moon is just sitting there on the Las Vegas Strip, a very, very big moon there. Uh, Is this going to really happen? I will give you my take on that. The Oakland A's, as they're winding down their season, probably going to miss the playoffs in Major League Baseball. They are strongly considering coming to Las Vegas. It's basically going to be Oakland or Vegas, and they are going to decide by the end of the year. So I'll tell you about whether the A's have a decent chance of becoming the Las Vegas A's. A murder occurred at the Golden Nugget Biloxi. It actually occurred uh, there on the casino floor. Tell you the details of that. And if Brandon comes on, we will discuss Sharif. We have an update with him. 
Yes, Brandon's still talking to him. And any other Vegas topics I may have missed. I was pretty good this week about finding Vegas topics, as you probably have noticed, the last few topics that I mentioned that we're going to be covering. Coronavirus news, we're not going to do it this week. Why? Too much stuff to talk about. And there's not really that much news to cover at the moment regarding the coronavirus anyway. So we will skip that this week. Maybe next week we will go back to that. So I will get going here. And the first thing I'm going to do is tell you about my plans for the WSOP. Put very simply, I am not going to be at the early portion of the WSOP. I had planned to be at the beginning of the WSOP when it seemed like COVID concerns were behind me because I got vaccinated as of uh, early May. I was considered fully vaccinated, meaning that I had both shots of the Pfizer and two weeks had passed. So I was considered fully vaccinated. Kind of felt like I was getting out of jail, to be honest, because <laughs> I mean, I was kind of on a self-imposed house arrest since COVID came and I was very afraid of it because of uh, my age and I just don't want it. And also I had some other risk factors that I believed made me more likely to get severe illness than the average person my age. So I said, okay, I'm going to really, really hide from this thing. And that's what I did. And I was successful at avoiding getting COVID. And to this day, I still haven't had COVID. However, I got the vaccine and then I said, okay, now I'm good. The vaccine had a very high efficacy rate. And I said, look, I can't hide from this any longer. I'm vaccinated. Now I can go back out into the world. And I did. And I made an abrupt 180 degree change in my life in May of 2021 and went from hiding out and not being willing to go indoors anywhere other than my own house and barely seeing anybody. I wouldn't even visit friends. I wouldn't visit family once in a while, I saw my parents, but aside from that, I, I really didn't see anybody. And I went from that to just doing anything I wanted and going everywhere, playing poker, going to casinos, going into large crowds, going to baseball games. I was fine because there were not any breakthrough cases that I knew about, and they were pretty rare, so I didn't worry. Then in July came Delta, and I started to worry. And then as time passed, I started to worry more. Then I started hearing that at about the four-month mark, the Pfizer vaccine is not as good anymore. It starts to fade. And about the five-month mark, it's really starting to fade. And I go, oh, shit. The World Series of Poker will be starting when it's about five and a half months since my second shot. And as the World Series proceeds, it'll get to six and six and a half and almost seven months since my second shot. So I said, well, this is a problem. So while I had originally planned to go to the World Series of Poker, and I was excited to return there, I ended up deciding that I'm probably going to be missing it, or at least part of it. And I've talked about that on several shows here. So I had plans to go to the World Series right at the beginning I had a number of uh, events planned to play, including the uh, 08 event that's near the beginning. And then I decided, you know what? I don't think I'm going to go. Now, since they've announced this third shot, I have 
And since they removed the mask mandate, because I was not going to play in a mask, but they've removed the mask mandate, and there is this third Pfizer shot. Once I get the third shot, I may be willing to go play at the World Series of Poker. But probably not before that, and maybe not at all. I'm still deciding. But you're not going to see me there on September 30th. In fact, I'm about to call and cancel my hotel reservations, at least for the beginning, for the dates I know I'm not going to be there. So whereas I would have been there right at the beginning had Delta not shown up and had Pfizer not been a vaccine that fades after four or five months, the first event I was going to play was the 08 on October 1st, followed by the 1500 limit Hold'em, which I really hate missing, on October 5th. It looks like I'm probably missing those. The 10K limit Hold'em, October 7th, and the 1500 Millionaire Maker on uh, October 8th, I was uh, also planning to play. And now uh, I don't think I'll be at those either. After that, uh, I'm not sure. So, like, there's the uh, 1500 Mixed Omaha on the 10th of October. I don't know. Maybe. Depends if I get the third shot by then. Depends how I'm feeling about the whole thing. What I consider kind of like the second half of the World Series, even though it's a little past the midway point, at least the second half for me, was going to be on October 22nd. My original plan was to play the 1500 horse for the first time on October 13th and then take a break and then come back on October 22nd and play the 3K six-handed limit hold'em. That was my original plan. But now that things have changed, maybe that would be the point that I would come back, like October 22nd. Maybe I'll go on from there. Then again, I might decide, you know what? I still don't want to chance it. And you may say, well, does that mean I'll never play the World Series again? Because COVID may always be with us. COVID may exist for the remainder of my life. Even if I live another 30, 40 years, it may still always be here. So uh, all I do is get older. And as I get older, COVID becomes more dangerous to me. So why would I not come this year if I believe COVID is probably going to always be here, which is what I believe at the moment? Well, the difference is that I believe that soon enough, the vaccine will not be the main way to combat COVID. It'll still be there. We'll have a vaccine every year, just like we have a flu shot every year. Maybe we'll have a vaccine twice a year. But there will be a treatment. There will be a treatment to where if you get COVID, you can quickly take a pill or get a shot or something and it will greatly reduce your chances of suffering severe or even moderate illness. And that's kind of what I'm waiting for. And it is coming. They're working on it right now. Pfizer itself is working on this right now. They've got something right now. They just, they're just they testing it at the moment. But if you think in the coming years we're not going to have that, then you're not understanding the tremendous resources that are being put in to develop such a thing because it's very lucrative. Any company that develops an effective COVID treatment, and I don't mean the ones we have right now like ivermectin, which gets a worse rap than it deserves because it may actually have some utility if used correctly. But I'll also admit that is not a COVID cure or reliable treatment at this point. It may help some, but that's not what we need. We need a very reliable treatment to where if you get COVID, you don't worry as long as you can get this treatment 
fairly quickly, you'll probably be okay. That's what we're looking for in the future. We don't have that right now. But we may have that in the near future. It's possible by the 2022 World Series, we will have that. Very possible that by the 23 World Series, we will have that. So do I really want to go into the most dangerous situation possible, which I think the World Series is? I cannot think of one that's more dangerous because you're there for a lot of hours. You were thousands of people. You're indoors. So how could it be more dangerous than that? Maybe a packed nightclub. But even with that, you're not there for 12 hours like you are with the World Series. And you're not there day after day after day for weeks. COVID is something that is believed to become more and more likely for you to catch if you multiply it by time of exposure. So if you run into somewhere for one or two minutes, your chance of catching it is said to be much less than if you're in that place for 15 minutes and much less than if you're in that place for an hour. But imagine being there for 12 hours and then coming back the next day and the next day and the next day. I mean, you're probably going to get some exposure. You may get a lot of exposure and you'll be sitting there for hours and hours and hours being exposed to the virus. And it's scary. And as far as I know, there isn't anything like this. I don't think there's anything like this anywhere in the world that's indoors for that many straight hours with that many people. I can't think of anything. Yeah, there's large concerts that they've had, but those have been outdoors. And they're not 12 hours. And they're not every day. So I can't think of anything comparable. This seems like the very most dangerous thing you can do from a COVID standpoint. And that does kind of make me nervous because there is no treatment at the moment. Now, on the bright side, if I get the booster, then from what they've seen in Israeli studies, because they've already done the booster over there for people 60 and up, and they've seen it has helped a lot. So I will be a lot more immune to COVID than I am presently, probably from what they've seen in their studies. And even without the booster, the chance of someone my age who doesn't have major pre-existing conditions dying from catching COVID since I'm vaccinated, that is like vaccinated without the booster, uh, that is already pretty low. And then with the booster, it's even lower. So the chance of me catching COVID at the World Series and dying from it, even without the booster, is pretty damn low. However, what if I get COVID and I get lung damage? Well, I don't want that either. It's a lot better than dying, but I don't want lung damage the rest of my life. It's not worth it. So I don't know. I may just say, as much as I want to play the 2021 World Series, that I'm just going to forego it this year and hope that in 22, which is probably going to be less than a year away because it probably is not going to be in the fall, hopefully in 2022, they'll have some kind of treatment or they'll have a better picture of how well the vaccines work, how well the boosters work. Because right now they're still kind of learning all this stuff. So there's a lot of unknowns here. I kind of like to go into these situations knowing everything. And I don't know everything. Nobody does. So there's a lot of unknowns hanging over my head. I think I'm going to be nervous there. I think I'm going to be nervous sitting there for all those hours knowing that it's probably the most dangerous thing I could be doing COVID-wise. Saying all this out loud right now is kind of (laughs) really making me feel like I don't want to go at all. I'll be honest with you. 
I've really been going back and forth because I look at the schedule and I go, oh, like I want to play this, oh, I want to play this, oh, I don't want to miss this, and I go, wait, 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 wait. This is the most dangerous thing I could do regarding COVID. Maybe I shouldn't. Like, is it really that important? I've been there every year from 05 through 19. There are many years following this one. There may be, and probably will be, a COVID treatment in not too long. Why can't I just wait for that? Like, I, I ask myself these things. So I may not play at all. So that's my answer. I'm not playing the beginning. I might play starting the middle, but I also might not. That's where we stand right now. I'll give you an update if I change my mind. Okay, so I want to tell you about the charity effort we're going to do. I have come into some Ethereum that I'm going to give away. But I'm not going to give it away in Ethereum form. I'm going to give it away in a cash form. But let me explain how this works. I got approximately 2.2 Ethereum, and it's mine. When I say I got it, I mean, it's, it's mine. I'm holding this. I'm not, this is not somebody else's Ethereum. It's my Ethereum. But I'm going to give it away. But since charities don't take Ethereum for the most part, in fact, I don't know any charity takes Ethereum, I will be giving it away in the form of cash that will equal the Ethereum I'm holding. So whenever I pay some out, what I'm going to do is subtract that from the total Ethereum to be given away based upon what Ethereum is worth that day. Because Ethereum is jumping around. Right now, it's gone down some, but whatever. Uh, if it goes up, I'll give away more. If it goes away down, it goes down, I'll give away less. You know, I'm talking about corresponding to cash. Like the, the exact amount of money I give away, I can't say because it depends on the value of Ethereum. But basically, anytime I give something away, to some sort of a charitable cause. It doesn't have to be a registered charity, but some sort of charitable cause or good cause. Then whatever cash I give away, I will convert to Ethereum at that day's value and subtract it from the total left to be given. So the actual amount to be given away was 2.235 Ethereum, which at the time I announced it, and this is uh, close to two weeks ago, I, at the time I announced it, that was worth... Uh, around $8,000. It's not anymore because Ethereum went down, but that's just what happened. Bottom line is I'm going to give away 2.235 Ethereum, whatever it's worth. Unless Ethereum has a major crash, and I mean like a major, major crash, I'm still going to give away a lot of money, even if it goes down. I have already given away $925. This $925, which is equivalent to a 0.3022 Ethereum, was given away to someone who has been on the show before. And you may say, wait a minute, why are you giving it to people on this show? Why are you not giving it to charity? Well, I do consider this a charitable cause because we actually had a fundraising drive for this person. I'm talking about A. Hoosier A, a.k.a. Lee Bradbury. Now, if you remember his story, he attempted to help an old man that he saw on the internet that he thought was about to get scammed. There was an old man who was singing the praises of Baccarat coaching scammer Christopher Mitchell and seemed to be a customer of Christopher Mitchell. And it was this old man. He looked very innocent, naive, and Lee felt very bad for him. So Lee messaged this old man, who was a complete stranger to him on Facebook, and said, hey, I just want to tell you about Christopher Mitchell. Go to this uh, thread on Poker Fraud Alert. You can read about him. He's a scammer. He's not really teaching you how to win in the casino. The whole thing's a lie. He's lying about his results. Like, Lee broke it down pretty well for him. 
and even directed him to the thread on Poker Fraud Alert to explain that the coaching from Christopher Mitchell not only was going to lead him to lose money because it's negative expectation, it's a scam, but also he would be paying Christopher for the coaching. So he'd be losing in two ways. He'd lose at the casino and he would be giving money to Christopher Mitchell for being taught this losing strategy that's being sold as a winning strategy. So he thought he was doing a nice thing by stopping an old man from getting scammed. Unfortunately, what he didn't know was that this old man was kind of a shill. This old man was actually someone who already knew Christopher from the past, that they both did uh, multi-level marketing together in the past. And this guy was kind of acting like he was a, a customer of Chris's, which he may have been too. Yeah, maybe he did pay Chris for coaching. I don't know if he did or didn't, but they knew each other before. And he immediately ran to Christopher and showed him and was like, hey, who's this Lee guy and why is he talking trash about you? So what happened was that Christopher, not only was he mad at Lee for this, but he thought that Lee was somebody else who had been doing a lot of videos exposing his scam, which Lee wasn't. Lee had nothing to do with these videos. Lee hadn't ever made a video about Christopher Mitchell, but it was a case of mistaken identity because Christopher is an idiot. Christopher just decided that there's only one person in the world who could be doing this and thought that Lee had to be this other guy. So Christopher did a lot of crappy things. He hired a PI to uh, look into Lee, doxed him, and then filed a restraining order against Lee, even though Lee had never once contacted Christopher, had never once threatened Christopher, never had any contact with him at all in any way, shape, or form, directly or indirectly. He filed a restraining order against him, believing that he was this other guy. And as much as we tried to get the message across to Christopher that Lee is a completely different person, either Christopher didn't believe it or just wanted to punish Lee anyway because he was mad at him for trying to uh, ruin his scam. And he went through with it. And we figured, okay, at least uh, Lee's going to easily win this in court because the burden of proof is on Christopher. Well, we we had Lee on this show explaining the whole thing. We had like a two-hour segment on one of our episodes. I forget which date, but uh, he explained everything that happened. I'm not going to go into the whole thing again, but in a terrible miscarriage of justice, the judge in the case erroneously believed that the hearing was being streamed live on YouTube, which it wasn't. The guy that he thought Lee was was doing a video about the court case, but was not there. It was not being streamed. Nobody at the court case was streaming it anywhere. But someone in the court got confused. I don't even know how they found it, but someone in the court got confused and found it and thought it was the live hearing being streamed, which you're not supposed to do, and told the judge. And the judge got so mad at Lee for this that he granted the restraining order basically just to punish him, even though there was no valid legal reason to grant this restraining order. And in fact, he was a hair away from denying it because nothing Christopher said made sense. And he was getting more and more pissed at Christopher for wasting his time. So he was just about to deny it. Then he got the news that this is being streamed live, which it actually wasn't. And in order to punish Lee, he granted it anyway, which is horrible. It was a horrible miscarriage of justice. So Lee went to me and said, I can't believe this happened to me and told me the story. And I was outraged. I told Lee, you need to go get an attorney and get this overturned. So he did. And uh, Lee had to pay $1,500 flat rate 
for an attorney to get this overturned. And boy, this attorney had to do a lot of work. This was not easy. It, it took a long time to overturn this thing. In fact, I, I wonder if the attorney would have even taken this because he spent a lot of time on this for just 1500 bucks. But anyway, that was the agreement, so that's what Lee paid. But it, the guy definitely earned his 1500 <laughs> It took a long time to get this damn thing overturned. Anyway, by the end, we had kind of a happy ending because uh, the judge finally understood that he made a mistake and finally realized that Christopher Mitchell was completely full of shit and that Lee was not this other guy and that Christopher was just making up stories. So the judge reversed the restraining order and there was no longer a restraining order on Lee's record, which is important because those will show up in background checks that can affect your employment. And Lee is a working class guy. He's not a professional poker player. He does work real jobs and they do background checks and he doesn't want a restraining order on his record, especially for something he didn't do. So all he was trying to do is warn an old man about uh, a scam, which is his right to do, by the way. The old man didn't say, hey, don't contact me. And it wasn't the old man doing the restraining orders, Christopher Mitchell, who Lee had no contact with ever. It was complete bullshit. Anyway, the good news was he got it all reversed. The bad news was Lee had a ton of stress and he was out $1,500. He didn't get his 1500 bucks back, but at least he had the restraining order reversed. So I said, okay, we're going to raise money for Lee to pay him back the 1500 Well, we raised about $575. And uh, I, I think that's the amount. It was right around there. I, I don't have it in front of me, but I had remembered it being 575 If it wasn't that, it was probably 585 565 It was right around 575 So we raised about $575, which I sent to him. But I was trying to raise the whole 1500 And I did verify, by the way, that he really paid that 1500 So this is not Lee trying to make money on this or anything. I, mean, I, I saw proof that he paid 1500 to this attorney. And that's what we were trying to raise is 1500 We got to about 575 and then uh, we ran out of money because nobody further donated. Now, Eric Bensamokin generously said, hey, you know, if you guys fall short, I can cover it. But I, I didn't want to go to Eric for this. He's done so much. You know, Eric has done so much for this show. He's been so generous. I didn't want to say, hey, you know, you offhandedly said at some point that you're going to uh, donate the rest. Uh, we're, we're 925 short. I, mean, I, I could have. I, he, he said he would do it, but I was like, I, I just feel so bad going to him about this. Some time passed, and uh, all Lee got was that 575. I realized... Uh, that this Ethereum that was for charitable causes, you know, is that Lee actually reminded me of it, and uh, rightfully so, that we had a charitable cause right here on Poker Fraud Alert, and that was to pay Lee's legal bills. And I mean, could you think of a better use of the money? Here, Lee, out of the goodness of his heart, tried to prevent a fraud in gambling, trying to prevent an old man from being defrauded, and he got a bogus restraining order against him as thanks for it. <laughs> and he's out $1,500. So he got the restraining order reversed eventually, but I would think that making him whole, where he didn't end up losing money for trying to do a good deed and prevent a fraud and gambling, I would think that's a, a very good cause and one very related to this site. So we already had that fundraiser last year. We fell short. I didn't want to ask uh, Eric because he's, he's given us so much already and, uh, you know... I said, let's uh, let's do it out of this fund. That's, that's a perfect use. So we gave uh, $925 from this fund to cover the remainder that 
we were trying to raise of this 1500 and that has now been sent to Lee. So Lee is now whole. Lee now has received $1,500 from the Poker Fraud Alert community, 925 from this fund, 575 previously when we'd started the fund, and now Lee is back to even. He's He had to go through a lot of stress, and it was very unpleasant for him, but at least there's no more restraining order, and he's not out any money. So I think that's great. I think that was a great use of the first $925. However, we have a lot left. We have 1.9328 Ethereum, which as of earlier today, I haven't checked on it uh, since earlier today, but as of earlier today is worth about 5400 bucks to give away. So that's more than $5,000 left after giving $925 to cover the remainder of Lee's legal bill here. So the remainder of this... I don't want to give away to other Poker Fraud Alert members because that's not what it's intended for. We did this here because we already had this existing drive that I actually kind of forgot about when I posted about this charity effort. And I'm like, oh, yeah, we, we had a, a fundraising drive that we never finished before. So, yeah, we should definitely do that first. And, and all the users on the forum approved. They, they thought this was a good idea. So uh, what we're going to do is uh, with the remaining money, we're going to give it away to any kind of charitable cause that I believe is worthy. Now, as I said, I don't want to give it away to large charities, but if there's a charity that you like, that you think is a worthy cause, one that doesn't have a high amount of overhead, I don't want to give it to a charity that spends a lot on uh, administrative costs, or even if you think there's something we could spend it on that isn't an official charity, but kind of like what we did with Lee, would be a good expenditure of money, then I'll consider that too. Now, don't come to me and say, hey, you know, my buddy, he can't make rent. He's about to get evicted. You know, we're not, we're not just helping random individuals who have nothing to do with the show, nor do I want to give it away to listeners or forum members who are in need at the moment. That's not what this is for. This, this isn't uh, uh, a grant program for Poker Fraud Alert uh, listeners and uh, forum members, nor is it... Uh, something we're going to use for contests or anything like that. So it's, it's not going to be that sort of thing. I, I want to give it away to something that's uh, charitable. And it, it can be more than one thing. I'm not saying we have to shoot the remainder off on one thing. So we have a thread on Poker Fraud Alert. You can find it in the Flying Stupidity Forum, which is kind of our main forum. This isn't really stupidity, but that's where I'm putting it. It's called Official PFA Charitable Giveaway Thread 2021. There are some suggestions posted there. I will go through them all. And you don't have to post in that thread. You can also text me, 775-372-8355. You can email me, dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com, dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com. You can even use the Contact Us form at the bottom of uh, the page on Poker Fraud Alert if you want to suggest a charity. You can even do so anonymously if you want. It doesn't matter if I know who you are or not. I just want to take a look at it and see if I like it. Uh, don't be offended if I don't choose to give to the charity you suggest, because this will be ultimately my decision. But I, I'm open to suggestions from people. And then uh, in not too long, I'll start giving more money away. And I'm going to post a ro- running total in the thread, and I'll even post some kind of proof, some kind of receipt. I may have to redact a few things that... Uh, I think we'll give away personal information or whatever it is, but uh, I will post proof that I'm really giving the money away. And uh, just to be clear, we're, again, linking this to the Ethereum 
we're not uh, doing this based upon uh, dollars, but I will be paying it in dollars and subtracting based upon what Ethereum is that day. But I, w- I may not be withdrawing the Ethereum into dollars to do it. It's a little complicated in that way, but the bottom line is we're giving a lot of money away to charity. The reason I'm doing it this way with the Ethereum is that I was, I have this Ethereum that I received and I'm going to be giving it away and I have not cashed it out yet. It's still sitting in my account. So that's what I'm giving away. I'm, I'm basically giving away that Ethereum. And so once I've given away that much Ethereum, then it's done. And whatever that e- equals in cash while I'm giving it away, that's, that's what I'll subtract from it. So, as I said, if Ethereum uh, rockets up, then I'll be giving away more than expected. And if it goes down, I'll be giving away less than expected. But either way, it's, it's going to be a lot of money. Definitely let me know if there's charities you would like me to uh, give donations to here. And I will post updates. I will post how much is left. I will post uh, receipts as much as I can to show you I'm really giving it. And I'll be transparent with that stuff. And uh, it'll be good. So... Glad to be doing this. I'm glad some causes will be uh, getting some money. I'm glad that uh, Lee has been made whole. He, he went through a lot with this whole thing, and he was just trying to do something nice for an old man, and it backfired on him badly, and that was terrible. The guy was trying to prevent uh, an old dude from being scammed by a Baccarat coaching scammer, and look at all he went through. I, I really hate when I see people do nice things and they get screwed for it. That just really pisses me off, so I'm glad we were able to help him out here. As I said, the remainder of the money will be given away in more of a traditional form, though it doesn't have to be a registered charity. Uh, you may ask, well, wh- what would I give it away to if not a registered charity, if I don't want to give it away to just like individuals? Well, um, you know, let's say there's an effort to, to raise money for something, but it's not officially a charity, but it's very legit. Then I can give away to that too, as long as I know it's legit and not any kind of scam. And that's very important, too. Anything that looks even slightly scammy, the answer is no. And there are a number of charities out there that are scammy. If I look at a charity and can't find enough information and I can't feel comfortable that it is legit, then I also won't pick that one. Because there are a lot of registered charities out there that aren't what they appear to be. So that may be a reason I reject some of them, even if they seem on the surface to be a good cause. So we are doing that. When will it be complete? I'm not sure. I'm not going to let this drag a long time, though. So I'll be making some decisions pretty shortly, and I'll be giving updates on this show, what, a giving, what, what I'm giving away. You may want to donate and contribute to this fund, but I am going to say no to that. Why? Because this one is my charitable effort, and... Uh, Maybe in the future we can have one where people donate themselves. But this one is uh, basically just me giving away 2.235 Ethereum. And your part in this will be suggestions. And uh, then I may take your suggestions. That's, that's what you can do. I mean, I appreciate that you may want to donate, but uh, in this case, uh, we're not taking donations. Though I will take donations for the free roll. That I will take. But this money will not be used for the free roll. We have a good amount of free roll money right now. Anyway, primarily thanks to Belly Buster and somewhat thanks to Shoeshine Box and Matt the Rat. And I think Jeff Dime even gave away some money, which I didn't list there. So thank you to you guys for that. Okay. So now on to our main topics. 
want to tell you about this weird update I have with Apostle Case. This is something that I discovered. I didn't initially discover this situation, but it was brought to my attention. And then I did some research and I'm like, oh boy. Then somebody else did some further research and they're like, oh boy. <laughs> Here's what's happening. This is unbelievable. This just this whole story never ends with Mike Postle. Even even after I won the case and won a judgment against him, and there's no pending court case against me, but this is still not over. We're still trying to collect the money. And now there is a propaganda website that is putting out a lot of information there that's incorrect. So if you go to MikePostlePoker.com, MikePostlePoker.com, M-I-K-E-P-O-S-T-L-E, Poker.com, you will find a pretty simple website that says Mike Postle Poker. And on the top right, you can see it says Veronica Brill and Todd Wattellis. And you can click on these. And if you click on Veronica Brill, it gives a statement regarding the defamation case against Veronica Brill. And if you click on my name, you will see the same thing as it relates to me. Of course, we were part of that same case with about uh, 12 different defendants. However, Veronica and I were the only two who attempted to fight it right away. Everybody else kind of waited to get served, and since they were never served, they never did anything. And then when Postle dropped the case on April 1st, 2021, remember it was filed on October 1st, 2020, so on the exact six-month mark, Postle dropped it, dropped it after not serving anybody. However, Veronica and I accepted service immediately through our attorneys, even though we weren't served, because attorneys can do that. They can just... Uh, automatically accept service of any filed court case, even if the person hasn't been directly served, which I don't think Postle knew. The reason we did that is because we wanted to basically attack the situation right away. We didn't want to wait to see what Postle was going to do next or wait to get served. We just wanted it to be done. At least that's how I felt. I don't know how Veronica felt, but she took basically the same actions we did, so I have to assume it was something similar. Anyway, as you guys have known from the coverage on this show and elsewhere... On April 1st, he dropped the case, but that did not get him out of the anti-slap motion that Veronica and I had both filed. The anti-slap motion basically seeks to dismiss the case and get us our attorney's fees paid back that we had to incur in order to fight this case. And it's something that exists in both California and Nevada and some other states that allows people to fairly quickly get a case against them dismissed if the case is seen to be an attack on somebody's free speech. So it's a way to fight back against frivolous lawsuits meant to silence you, which this definitely was. So we had a very good chance of winning. And that's what my attorney, Eric Benzamokin, told me. That's what uh, Veronica's attorney, Mark Randazza, told her. We had a very good anti-slap case on our side and we thought that we were probably going to get it granted and that uh, we were going to get our attorney's fees granted as a result but we never got quite that far because just weeks before the hearing for anti-slap which uh Postle had been delaying for several months when he was out of delays he just outright dropped it on april 1st maybe not realizing that the anti-slap could still move forward so at that point, they weren't hearing the anti-slap the same way they normally would if the case hadn't been dropped. Basically, 
it was assumed that we were going to win the anti-slap by virtue of him dropping it. So all the judge had to rule on was whether or not it's likely the anti-slap that we filed would have prevailed if he had not dropped it. But at the same time, the fact that he dropped it works in our favor in that it makes the court believe more that we would have prevailed. Why do they have that? Well, they have that so uh, people can't use this to file frivolous defamation cases and then drop them at the last second if someone files an anti-slap motion. Otherwise, uh, anti-slap becomes much less powerful if someone who feels they might lose can just drop it at the last second and and not have to incur the attorney's fees. What's good about anti-slap is it makes people think twice before filing frivolous lawsuits to silence someone else's speech, because if they lose the anti-slap motion, then they owe the attorney's fees. Whereas without anti-slap legislation, that's not true. So they're risking money coming out of their pocket, which can be five figures. In fact, in our case, it was five figures. It was about 27 k for each of us that was granted to us. So Postle now legally owes us each about 27 k That's 54 k he's on the hook for thanks to this frivolous defamation lawsuit. So that's what happened. You guys probably know that story. And we've been trying to collect that. And so far, Mike has not paid us. And we are now attempting to put him into involuntary bankruptcy in order to uh, move us up on the uh, priority list of getting paid. And uh, on October 13th, that is going to be heard in U.S. bankruptcy court, whether or not it's going to be granted that he would be put into involuntary bankruptcy. Eric Benzamokin does a lot of bankruptcy cases. That's one of his specialties is bankruptcy. So... When he said this is our next move, that this is the next move he recommends, I said, yep, let's do it. You're you're the expert here, especially with bankruptcy. Especially with bankruptcy. If if Eric Benzimokin tells you something to do involving bankruptcy, you do it, because this is a very experienced bankruptcy attorney. So I knew that if he felt that was the right move to make, then I was all for it. So I said, definitely go forward. You know, whatever we need to do, you know, he owes this money. He owes this money, and... That's a judgment against him. It's a legal judgment against him. This is his own fault. If you recall, we offered that if he dropped me out of the case, not dropped the whole case, but dropped me out of the case when I was really, I really shouldn't have been there in the first place. I was a very, very minor figure in this whole thing. I did nothing wrong. Even if he felt others wronged him, definitely he can't say I wronged him. I guess he can say it, but it wouldn't be correct. I was simply reporting on what was going on, giving my own opinion. I was not a major figure. I entered this whole thing when it was already a huge story, so I didn't impact how big the story was. I kind of came in late. I got sued anyway. So we told him all that. We said, drop Todd out. Uh, Todd has nothing to do with all this. Just drop Todd out, and we'll eat the attorney's fees and be done. And he said, no. So we said, okay. We told him what we were going to do. We told him we are going to do the anti-slap. If he doesn't drop me out, he said, nope. So we went forward, and uh, that's what ended up happening. By the time he dropped the case on April 1st, that was far too late. We, we told him to drop us out, uh, or drop me out back in uh, like November of 2020. So that's where it stood, and that's where it stands right now. We're, we're waiting for this case uh, in bankruptcy court on October 13th to put him into involuntary bankruptcy. But this site popped up called Mike Postle Poker. I don't know 
what data was actually put up. But the domain Mike Postle Poker was registered on May 14th, 2021. Now, I know it was updated since then, at the very least, because there's references to rulings that occurred in June of 2021. So I'm going to read you what it says about Veronica and then what it says about me. And you're going to hear a lot of things here which are uh, not quite uh, accurate or not uh, very honestly put to where the reader would be very misled as to what really happened here. So this is what it says about uh, Veronica Brill. And it doesn't say whose site this is. It doesn't say who's writing this. It just says... uh, Copyright 2021 Mike Postle at the bottom. So it kind of implies it's him, but uh, we're going to talk about that in a second, who's really putting this up. Statement re Veronica Brill ruling. On June 15, 2021, Judge Messiwala, which is the judge in this case, ruled that Veronica Brill would be responsible for a whopping 60 to 70% of her own legal fees in her attempted anti-slap motion. That sounds pretty bad, right? It doesn't sound like it was ruled against Postle that Postle owes her 27K. It says that she's going to be responsible for a whopping 60 to 70% of her own legal fees. I mean, that's, that's pretty crappy. That's very, very uh, misleading what they're saying there. Assessing Mr. Postle less than 27000 in fees, the judge dismissed her attorney's 67000 to 80000 depending upon the submission request for legal fees. This despite Mr. Randazza, who is her attorney, submitting a 200-page-long resume in an attempt to justify his exorbitant fee requests and divert attention from the dozens of disciplinary actions filed against him over the last several years, often from financial and billing fraud filed by former clients. Okay, why is any of this relevant to this case? That, that, that has nothing to do with how much was granted to Veronica in attorney's fees. It doesn't matter uh, what previous disciplinary actions were filed against Randazza. This is all just uh, fluff they're putting in here. The bottom line was the judge decided that they're going to she's going to grant twenty seven thousand dollars in legal fees. Randazza was asking for far more, but uh, she granted twenty seven thousand. And this happens all the time. You know, attorneys say we want these fees. And the judge says, no, I think uh, this is all that's going to be granted. This is a very, very common occurrence in court. It's not a defeat to not get every penny you're asking for. And also, and I don't know what the judge was thinking specifically, because she didn't say specifically everything in her head. She gave some justification. But uh, sometimes they will give lower fee awards if it's an individual rather than if it's a corporation. So... Let's look at another case Randazza handled recently. That was uh, Vital Vegas with the Sahara. The Sahara was suing Vital Vegas, and he did an anti-slap motion, and he won. And $94,000 of attorney's fees was granted against the Sahara, and it was paid. But that's because the Sahara is a big corporation. Sahara is a big hotel in Vegas. So there, the judge wouldn't have the same concern that they're saddling an individual with a huge uh, judgment like that. So with someone like Mike Posso, who clearly doesn't have a lot of money, and even if this is his fault, uh, sometimes the judge will grant lesser fees just uh, out of some sympathy for the the other side, that it's it's not a deep-pocketed corporation, it's, uh, it's an individual who, who got uh, over-aggressive with their lawsuit. So that's my guess of why only 27000 was 
granted out of the fees that uh, Rendaz had charged. And also, she probably thought that some of them were excessive. But uh, still, $27,000 of fees were granted to Veronica as a result of this frivolous lawsuit that was dismissed. That's a fact. So this was a victory for Veronica's side. And just because she didn't get the full attorney's fees amount requested doesn't matter. Anyway, so what they put here in this paragraph is very misleading. It made it look like uh, this was a defeat. Then it went on to say, hundreds of pages of dueling submissions revealed a a plethora of information vindicating Mr. Postle, casting doubt on the claims of Ms. Brill, who continued to attempt to defame him even days before this hearing. What the hell? (laughs) What? Vindicating Mr. Postle? Nothing about this vindicated Mr. Postle. Nothing. In fact, nobody got vindicated because he dropped the case. It was never heard in court. The details of this case were never heard because he dismissed it. The only thing that was heard in court on June 15th was how much in attorney's fees is going to be granted. That's it. How much money will he owe Veronica for attorney's fees? That was the only question at hand. Not whether Mike Postle cheated. Not whether Veronica defamed him. Not whether Veronica did anything wrong. Not even whether Mike did anything wrong. It was just basically, number one, would this this anti-slap motion likely, was it likely to have prevailed in court had the case not been dismissed? Answer, yes. And number two, how much an attorney's fee should be awarded? That's it. That's the only things that were explored on June 15th, or really at any point here. It was never heard. The details of the case were never heard. So nothing vindicated Mr. Postle there. That's a complete lie. Nobody was vindicated. He was not vindicated. Veronica wasn't vindicated. I wasn't vindicated because Mike dropped it, and he dropped it because presumably he thought he was dead with the anti-slap. Now, I don't know why he didn't just take a shot with it anyway at that point. Maybe he didn't realize the anti-slap was going to continue if he dropped it. But bottom line is he dropped it, so all this was never heard in court. So nobody was vindicated. So it's a lie. It's a straight-out lie. This ruling closes the chapter on Todd Wittellis and Veronica Brill's attempted anti-slap, which was rejected when Mr. Postle voluntarily withdrew his defamation case without prejudice. No. No. That's false. It was not rejected. It was not rejected. It just was moot. It's a big difference. It's moot because it just can't be heard at that point. If he dismissed the case, the anti-slap is not heard, but the standard for it prevailing is actually much lower. So that was an advantage for us that he dropped it. We would have won anyway, in my opinion, and in Eric's opinion, and in Mark Randaz's opinion, but the standard of it prevailing was actually lower because we were given a big boost that he dropped the case. This makes it more likely that the anti-slap would have prevailed in the court's eyes. So they didn't have to explore the anti-slap itself anywhere near to the detail they would have if it was not dismissed. It definitely wasn't rejected. At no point was it rejected. It was just moot, but it changed from something that they would be carefully looking through to something they would just be uh, kind of 
ballparking whether it was likely to prevail. I don't see how that means it's rejected. It doesn't mean that. It was very, very misleading to write. And they know that. Let's go to the statement about me. It says, statement re-Todd Wittellis ruling. On May 12th, 2021, Judge Messiwala ruled that Mr. Todd Wittellis would be responsible for 40% of his own legal fees in his attempted anti-slap motion, which was also rejected. No, 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 no. Nope. I'd explain that. Further, the judge chastised Mr. Wittellis' attorney for attempted overbilling. You can read the statement below. <laughs> no. Eric was never chastised. Never. In fact, you can actually watch, I don't know if it's still on YouTube, but someone recorded the Zoom hearing and put it up on YouTube. Not anyone associated with me, by the way. I have no idea who did it. I mean, you, you could put a gun to my head and ask me who recorded it, and I would not be able to tell you. If, if I had to tell you who recorded it and put it on YouTube to save my own life, I could not because I have no idea who did it. But someone put it up on YouTube because there was a lot of public interest in this. So you can watch the whole thing. Now, I watched it anyway. I didn't need the YouTube thing, but uh, I watched it anyway. And everybody agreed that Postle made a complete fool of himself. Even Postle kind of admitted that he made a fool of himself. He, he wrote something that, uh, that, that you know, he was nervous and didn't perform that great. I forgot what he put in a, in a subsequent court filing. But even in a subsequent court filing, he kind of acknowledged that uh, he didn't do the best job on there and that people were making fun of him on the Internet, which they were. Like, a lot of people were making fun of Postle on the Internet for the way he came off there because he was just, like, rambling and sounding like a fool. And the judge was very, very patient with him. I mean, boy, was she patient. Boy, was she nice. And let him ramble, but kept kind of trying to direct him to talk about what they were there for, which was just attorney's fees. He just ranted on and on about stuff that didn't matter for the purpose of this hearing, and he just wasn't getting it. So at no point did she chastise Eric. In fact, Eric barely talked on there. And now she did write the day before, and this is what they put here on the website, a copy of this. She wrote the day before, uh, a summary of why she was reducing the requested attorney's fees. So this is what she wrote. The billing records that support this motion are attached as Exhibit B to the declaration of Eric Benzamok and the attorney who represented a defendant in defending this slap motion. The billing records show a billing rate of six ninety five per hour. The amount of time spent researching the anti-slap motion and drafting the motion alone is approximately 43 hours, which this court finds excessive and unnecessary given the nature and complexity of the allegations and, and the anti-slap motion itself. The court further finds that billing one half hour to reserve the hearing date is clearly unreasonable. The court is limiting fees for this research and drafting of the anti-slap to 20 hours at the 695 rate. Uh, and then it, it goes on with some other calculation that says, uh, thus, instead of the requested fees in the amount of 47879 the court is awarding reasonable attorney's fees incurred in defending the slap suit in the amount of 26547 plus 435 for court costs for a total of 26982 Okay, I mean, this is just factually laying out why it's being reduced. It's not chastising him. It's not uh, making it seem like uh, Eric did anything dishonest. Eric submitted to the court for the court's review, here are the fees that have been incurred. This is what we feel that Mike should have to pay back. And then the court has its own opinion. The court will go through it and say, okay, I think these should be paid by Mike and these shouldn't be. So the the judge had a different opinion on the matter than Eric did, and that's what happens in court. Judges sometimes disagree with attorneys. Okay, so the, the judge said, okay, look, uh, I just don't feel that uh, 
this much work needed to be done, so I'm allowing this much, I'm not allowing that. Super common. Super common when it comes to attorney's fees in court. Anyone who knows anything about the way attorney's fees are awarded would know that's true. So it's not like she wrote that this is completely crazy and then what's Eric doing? This He's really pulling a fast one here and this is sleazy. Nothing like that. Just basically a disagreement. Just... I, I, she basically said, I, I don't think uh, this much needs to be awarded. And again, this probably had something to do with the fact that Puzzle's an individual and not a corporation. And there's some allowance for that with not saddling the individual with court costs that are uh, very high for an anti-slap motion. So, okay. And guess what Eric said in court? When he was actually in court, in Zoom court, he didn't fight about this. He didn't uh, argue he was very respectful, and he said, in fact, we're not even going to challenge it. He was willing to accept it. And that was that. Very standard. Very, very standard. I'm not, I'm not just saying that because he's my attorney and this was uh, on my side of things. This is very standard. You ask any attorney, and they will tell you this is very standard, that attorney's fees will get uh, reduced like this when requested in court. Very, very common. So there was no chastising here. That's a very uh, incorrect way of putting it. They went on to write, additionally, despite erroneously reporting on social media that Mr. Wattellis won the anti-slap, his attempt to preserve the anti-slap motion was rejected and the anti-slap was dismissed. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No. No. Again, not dismissed. It was moot. And this was not because of any fault in the anti-slap. This is what happens when the plaintiff dismisses their case at the 11th hour is that the anti-slap cannot be heard the way it was previously going to be heard because of Mike Postle's action to dismiss it. But it had the same result. We won. <laughs> so this was equivalent to it being heard and us winning. Fully equivalent. So I don't know why this is being claimed like it's some sort of victory. It, my anti-slap motion was rejected. No, it wasn't. It was not rejected. What's he talking about? He was only successful in claiming a fraction of the legal fees. Well, yeah, a fraction meaning more than half. How is that a fraction? I guess it's technically a fraction. Like 99 one hundredths is a fraction too, but you wouldn't call that a fraction when you describe something. When you describe something as a fraction, you mean something like a small percentage. So if I got one eighth of the legal fees that we were requesting, that would be considered a fraction. But something that is technically a fraction because it's not 100% is not what people mean when they say a fraction. And of course, the person writing this knows that. So if you heard that I got a fraction of the 42879 we requested, what would you picture? Like we got like 5K, 8K? That's what you would think, right? Not, not uh, 27K out of 42K. This is so misleading. He was only successful in claiming a fraction of the legal fees that he claimed to have incurred to file the anti-slap. So as you can see, and you can go look at this website yourself, MikePostlePoker.com. You will see this is a tremendously biased and misleading account of what happened. Here's the truth of what happened. Mike Postle filed a frivolous defamation suit against a lot of people and then sat there and did not serve anyone for six months so they could all twist in the wind. Two people that were being sued proactively hired attorneys and accepted service automatically, which he probably didn't realize could happen, and then filed anti-slap motions. And when they did so, Postle refused to let Todd Wittellis, me, out of the case, 
even when we offered that if he dropped me out at that point, that we would incur our own legal fees and not come after him for anything, and we would sign to that. So he refused, he continued, he rolled the dice, and then at the 11th hour, he dropped the case because he realized he had no chance and he also had no attorney at the time. And he was out of delays. So he dropped it, so we basically almost won the anti-slap by default, and then at the hearing, we did win the anti-slap, just in a different way than we would have won if it were heard. It was uh, won, as I said, almost like by default. So it was not rejected, it was just moot, and then we won the equivalent of it because he dismissed the case, and we were each awarded $27,000 in attorney's fees against him that he now owes us and still owes us and has owed us for several months and will not pay. That's the fact of the situation. He filed a frivolous lawsuit, would not drop me out, and he now owes 27k to me and 27k to Veronica because of this frivolous lawsuit he filed. That is what really happened. Not this misleading nonsense that is written on this site. And I think anybody with half a brain knows that. So what's the purpose of this site? Well, obviously, the purpose of the site is to spin the situation to make it look like that our opposition, our anti-slap motion, was a failure, and that he emerged victorious, and that he wasn't someone who lost a defamation suit, a frivolous defamation suit, and had to pay money as a result, that uh, uh, he's trying to make it look like that we were the losers, and we only got a fraction of our attorney's fees, and that we only got this because he dismissed it. No. Even if he didn't dismiss it, it's likely that it would have prevailed. In fact, that's what the court said. That's not just my opinion. But the question remains, who put up this website? It does say copyright 2021 Mike Possel, but did he create the website? I thought it was possible. He does have some technical skills from what I've heard, but I didn't just jump to the conclusion. I always like to research these things and see for myself. Now, I didn't discover this website. This website was brought to me, but I decided to do some research on who might be behind MikePostlePoker.com. So I looked at the registrar data, and lo and behold, it was redacted, so you can't see who registered it. But oops, the person who registered it kind of made a little mistake because they didn't realize that when registrar data is redacted, that often the organization and state are not redacted. Uh Uh-oh. So it said name redacted for privacy, address redacted for privacy, city redacted for privacy. But hold on, state, New York. Okay, that's a clue. Postal code, redacted for privacy. Phone, fax, redacted for privacy. Organization, Orndi Inc. Hmm, Orndi Inc. O-R-N-D-E-E, Inc. They didn't mean for that to be seen. Everything was redacted except for Orndi Inc. and New York. They thought they were redacting everything, but I guess uh, this doesn't redact through this registrar, maybe always. I'm not even sure about the rules on this, but apparently organization and state don't redact. So I was able to see Orndi Inc. and New York for who registered this website on May 14th. Well, I'd never heard of Orndi Inc. before. So I Googled it and I found Orndi is a PR firm based out of New York City. In fact, you can look at their website. 
orndepr, that's O-R-N-D-E-E-P-R.com. And you'll see this Orndee Inc. So they're the ones who put up this website. So I said, what? Is Mike Possel actually hiring PR firms? I mean, he owes me money. He owes Veronica money. What's he doing paying for PR firms? Like, <laughs> the money should be going to us, not PR firms. What the hell is he doing? So I thought that was very interesting. But of course, there's more to the story. I then learned that Orndi is not just any PR firm. It's owned by Alexandria Merrill. Who is Alexandria Merrill? Well, she's the one who's currently battling with Mark Randazza. Oh, my. Oh, my. Mark Randazza has a history with the Honor Network. The Honor Network was set up as a charity, technically a nonprofit organization. It was founded in 2014 by Lenny Posner. Lenny Posner was the father of the youngest victim of the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting. Now, that shooting was very tragic. I feel tremendously for Mr. Posner and all the other parents who lost children in that shooting. It was absolutely awful. I was horrified by that shooting, as it was uh, pretty much everybody in America when we heard about it. And uh, I have nothing against Mr. Posner. And I also feel for him regarding all the conspiratorial nonsense that was pushed by shock jock Alex Jones, who kept saying over and over that this whole thing was fake. This is a conspiracy. It's fake. Everybody involved were actors. There was nobody actually killed. And he pushed this, and he his followers pushed this on the internet. And imagine your child has been killed, has been murdered like this by a psycho who shot up the school. Your little child was shot up, was shot and killed, and you have this popular talk show host saying that it's all fake, and you have trolls on the internet insisting it's all fake. So you hear you're grieving for your child who was murdered, and and you're having idiots on the internet posting everywhere that it's fake. I can imagine how he felt, Mr. Posner, when he read these things. I can imagine how everybody else felt when they read these things who had uh, their children killed in this horrible shooting. So I understand why they were so mad about this and why they were out for blood about this and why they sued Alex Jones. I understand all of that. Now, the reason there's a connection here to what I'm talking about is that Mark Randazza defended Alex Jones because he was defending Alex Jones from a free speech standpoint. So there was a lot of bitterness, and, and Mark Randazza is a very uh, boisterous guy, and he'll admit that. He's a, he's a very uh, outspoken guy, and he can offend a lot of people. And uh, so this was really a very bitter situation between the two sides. And they got to despise Mark Randazza, who was representing Alex Jones in this situation. Now, this was all before the Apostle stuff. But that's the history between the Honor Network, which is a charity that was founded uh, as an advocate for survivors and victims of that shooting, and then eventually uh, morphed to also try to prevent online bullying. So I have nothing against the Honor Network from that standpoint. It, it all makes sense. And I, and I feel very much for the people who uh, had to go through this tragedy. And I understand why they're mad at Alex Jones. But they had a lot of bitter, bitterness against Randazza for this whole thing. So I don't want to get involved in any of that. 
Like, this has nothing to do with me, obviously. And I've never commented in any way on that whole situation, other than saying the Sandy Hook shooting was very tragic, that of course it was real, and that Alex Jones is an idiot, and he shouldn't have been saying these things, and that he's a jerk to be doing this. So that's all I've ever had to say about it. I have nothing to do with this. But unfortunately, I have been dragged into this as collateral damage. The Honor Network has been working with Mike Possel. They've been helping Mike Possel in this situation because he's, quote, a victim of online bullying. Does does that make any sense to you? (laughs) Has Mike Possel been bullied? That's not what bullying is. If two parties have a dispute, if one person or several people or a lot of people believe that another person did something wrong and illegal and they accuse that person of it, that's not bullying. That's uh, an allegation that one side is making, and then the other side is saying, this isn't true. This plays out all the time. This happens on the internet. This happens outside of the internet. This happened before the internet even existed. This is something that happens all the time everywhere. This is not bullying. This is a dispute. So regardless of which side you're on regarding the Mike Postle situation, it was definitely not bullying. Bullying would be like if Mike Postle would be attacked for something about him. So uh, if you were to attack Mike Postle for the way he looks or for his sexual preference or for his race. I mean, he's white, so you probably wouldn't see that. But uh, you know what I'm saying. Something about Mike Postle where he's being um, made fun of for some characteristic about himself. That would be bullying. Not where you're actually criticizing someone for an action that you believe they took which you think is either unethical or illegal. Even if the person's innocent, that's not bullying. You could say it's a false allegation, but you couldn't say it's bullying. I don't think there were any false allegations made. You know, that's not the point here. The point here is that it wasn't bullying, for sure. The point is it was an allegation, and that he doesn't agree with the allegation, and that there's people who feel strongly on the other side, but it is not what bullying is by any stretch of the imagination. But the Honor Network isn't getting involved here because they've been tricked into believing that Mike Postle is being bullied. It's obviously no coincidence that the Honor Network has a big issue with Randazza, and Randazza is an attorney in the case involving Mike Postle. And there's been a lot of nonsense back and forth here because of this. And now I am kind of collateral damage in the whole thing, as is Veronica. But I'm even more collateral damaged because I didn't even bring Randazza into this case. Though it would have been my right to do so. If I wanted him as my attorney, I could have chosen him. I I chose uh, Eric Benzamokin, but I could have chosen Mark Randazza. So I I could have, and I still would not have deserved to be collateral damage in this just because they were mad at Randazza for a different and unrelated case. But uh, here I am really collateral damaged because I have nothing to do with the situation between Randazza and the Honor Network prior to this. And I didn't even hire Randazza myself. But yet, here's this website, MikePostlePoker.com, which is attacking me and making it look like that I was uh, defeated in this legal action. It's making it look like my motion was rejected, which it wasn't. It's putting up a very misleading narrative about this case with my name up there. This website was started by Orndi Inc., which is owned by Alexandria Merrill, 
who works for the Honor Network and has been battling back and forth recently with Rendazzo. We can see it in the court documents. I've read it to you. In fact, uh, remember the, the whole thing where uh, Rendazza was uh, accused of calling Alexandria Merrill a cunt? And then Rendazza said he didn't call her a cunt, that he said she was a liar, and that there was like arguing back and forth in court documents about what he said. That, that's been going on behind the scenes in all this. It doesn't have much to do with me. It doesn't have anything to do with me because I wasn't part of any of these conversations. I've never spoken to Alexandria Merrill. I've had no contact with her ever. I didn't know who she was until her name came up in connection with all of this stuff involving Randazza and how it looked like she was helping Possel. But now she, or someone working for her, created this MikePosselPoker.com website. And I can see this because it says right there in the registrar data that it was made by Orndi Inc., which is her company. That's crappy. That is crappy. I'm not taking sides in the Honor Network versus Mark Randazza thing. That's not my fight. I'm not involved in it. I don't want to be involved in it. But why should I be attacked like this by someone who works for the Honor Network because they hate Randazza. Why? Why do I deserve this? I mean, do they really believe that Apostle's being bullied? Or are they doing this to piss off Randazza? If you uh, use your common sense here, you'll come to a uh, pretty clear conclusion. So it's really nasty that they're doing this to me. No matter how much they hate Randazza, no matter how much they think Randazza wronged them, if they attempt to interfere in court cases that have nothing to do with their court case, which involved Rendaza, what they're doing is they're harming innocent people. They're harming me. They're harming Veronica. They shouldn't be getting involved here. Whatever they want to do to Rendaza, they need to do to Rendaza only. And then Rendaza can respond as he sees fit. And I don't care about any of that stuff because, as I said, it's not my battle. I have my opinion about what Alex Jones said, and I just gave it to you. And my opinion is essentially what the Honor Network thinks. So the funny thing is I'm actually on their side about how awful that was, what uh, Alex Jones said. I don't know about the legality of it, but I'm talking about just from the moral standpoint, I think that was terrible what Alex Jones said about the Sandy Hook shooting, and he shouldn't have done it. But this has nothing to do with me. I should not be collateral damage. They should not be getting involved in my case because they don't like an attorney of somebody else in this case. They shouldn't be involved here. Just like I don't want to be involved in their issue with Randazza, they should not want to be involved in my issue with Possle. So I don't know what this Alexandria Merrill is doing making these websites about me like this. But she shouldn't be doing it. And this is, again, someone I've never spoken to, never had any contact with, no emails, no texts, no conversations. There's been absolutely zero contact of any kind between me and Alexandria Merrill. There's been zero contact of any kind between me and anyone at the Honor Network. I have never taken Randazza's side in any of this stuff. I want nothing to do with it. And they know that. It's not even like they believe that I'm uh, helping Randazza any of this stuff. They, they don't think that. And I'm not. I don't want anything to do with it. I think you guys all know that. Why would I inject myself into this? I wouldn't. So how come when I hire Eric Benzamokin, somehow there's websites trashing me made by someone who's mad at Mark Randazza? How does that make any freaking sense at all? Pisses me off. This shouldn't be happening. I don't deserve this. 
But I, th- I think they're so mad at Rendaza, they just they don't care who else they hurt. I, I don't know what else to say. I mean, I, I really just wish they'd stop this. I really wish they'd leave me out of this. I don't know if they've even thought about it from this angle. I've done nothing to them. I've done nothing to their cause. I even agree with their feelings about what Alex Jones did. And even with this website that's been made about me, I, I still think the same things about Alex Jones. I haven't changed my opinion on that. That'll always be my opinion, that Alex Jones is out of line. And I feel for Lenny Posner very much for what he went through. But don't, don't make these websites about me. It's, it's, if you're going to make a website, be honest. Portray it the way it really happened. Don't write a propaganda piece bashing me and making Posner look like the victor here. Okay, moving on. Okay, so this is a, a crazy story now. Remember I told you about the Andy Stacks situation on the last show? It's pretty interesting. Uh, if you remember, I'm not going to rehash the whole thing again. I'm just going to get... I'm going to give you a quick reminder that I'm going to get to the newer stuff that has happened, which a lot of it just happened today. Andy Stacks, whose real name is Andy Sai, T-S-A-I, that was just given out today publicly, so I might as well reveal it. Andy Stacks, we'll refer to him as that because that's how he's known in the poker world. He kind of went off on September 9th on Live at the Bike when the name of Savage, whose real name is uh, Jenny Leong, she goes by Savage, she's another player who's frequently in the Live at the Bike streamed game. Uh, I guess her name was brought up and he kind of went off about how she owes him money, he said. He said that she owes 16 k to him from a private game that was running, that she borrowed money after she had lost what she brought there, and that she will not pay him back that 16 k that she borrowed and lost in that game. And that he was pissed that she was still playing on stream even while owing him money. That was what he was claiming. So he was saying this on the Live at the Bike stream. I played you those conversations that took place on Live at the Bike on September 9th. They played those on the last show, which we had on September 11th. And we hadn't yet gotten a response from Jenny, a.k.a. Savage, on this. We just heard Andy's side. And Andy also released a video, which I couldn't play on the show because he very quickly deleted the video. But in the video, he was calling out both Jenny and Live at the Bike. He was calling out Live at the Bike for allowing her to continue playing on there because they were aware of the situation. They still let her play. And then he was calling out Jenny for not paying him back and for stalling him. Now, again, this was Andy's side, and we didn't hear her side. But then he very quickly took the video down, and he also tried to get 2 plus 2 to remove a thread that he had created. And he he went and registered a new account on 2 plus 2. He was not a 2 plus 2 poster. He made a new account on 2 plus 2, and posted a thread about what was going on and then was begging them to take it down shortly after posting it. Oddly enough, the one thing he didn't try to take down was my thread about the story on uh, Poker Fraud Alert. I still have not heard from Andy Stacks regarding that thread, which is kind of interesting. I would have thought he'd want that down too. Not that I necessarily would have done it, but uh, I was never asked to take it down. And I'm the one who created the thread on September 11th. So I covered it on this show. I covered it on the forum. You can still find it on the Scam Scandals and Shadiness forum. And 
there were a few bizarre things about uh, Andy Stack's statements. One of the things he said, both on Twitter and in his video, is that uh, this isn't about the money. If he gets back the 16K, he's going to give it to Live at the Bike. And people are like, what? Why would he give it to Live at the Bike? <laughs> it's one thing to give it away to charity. It's one thing to give it away to someone in need, but to give it to a for-profit company that's been in existence for over 15 years and has always done well? Like, why, why would you hand free money to Live at the Bike, which makes plenty of money anyway? Why, why do they deserve this money? If you want to give it away, there's a lot of good things to give it away to, but not Live at the Bike. So that was bizarre. But he never explained why he was saying he's going to give it to them, and he wouldn't explain why he deleted the video and the tweets about it and why he wanted the thread taken down on 2 plus 2. He then gave an update that uh, they're working behind the scenes and that uh, he'll have an update for everybody shortly that that he and uh, Jenny were discussing. This is what he tweeted on uh, September 13th. This is new stuff now. We, of course, had our show on September 11th, ending September 12th. Uh, September 13th was after that. So this is what he wrote on September 13th. Last week, I posted, then took down a video about outing poker players avoiding unpaid debts. The truth will be made public once a resolution is reached. For now, I can't comment further, per advice of counsel. I appreciate all the messages and tremendous support from everyone. Notice he mentioned counsel, so he has an attorney. What about Jenny? We still hadn't heard from Jenny yet. Well, we heard from Jenny soon enough. Sort of. We heard from her side, not from her directly but then we eventually heard from her directly. A person came out on her side who went by Vicky1234. Where did Vicky1234 post? That would be pokerfraudalert.com. Yes, the battle has moved to Poker Fraud Alert. And by the way, I'm neutral in this whole thing. I'm not trying to take any side. I, I would really prefer to see them resolve this, by the way. I have nothing against either person here. And you'll hear in my tone throughout this entire segment that I would just really like to see them resolve this and be done. Nevertheless, here's what's going on. Vicky, who is apparently some friend of Jenny Leong's, and uh, I believe she's real. The IP, it doesn't really tell me that much, but it checks out for the general LA area. And uh, from my limited research on the matter... It appears that she is a real person, and it does appear that she is not Jenny Leong. Some people suspected that she was Jenny Leong. I actually believe that she is a separate person who is friends with Jenny. Don't have confirmation of this, but it seems likely to me from what I have seen. So this is what she wrote. This is her first appearance on the site was on uh, September 20th. She said, what you said is closest to the truth. This is to, uh, I'm not sure if it's to me or Jeff Dime in the thread but still very far off from the truth. Whatever story you guys spread on the internet now is only 50% correct, so I'm not going to comment or correct it because on that day after the stream, all players are asking her to tell them her side of the story, and she denied it because she didn't care how those, quote, peanut gallery, which includes everyone on the internet and the poker players at the table, think about her. Now, if that seems unclear, you'll hear from this uh, post and the other post she's made that... Vicky seems like someone who probably learned English as a second language. This is not a native English speaker, from what I can tell. And that makes sense, because uh, Jenny Leong is Chinese, so this is probably a, a Chinese person, this Vicky. And as I said, I think she's real. I don't know who she is, but I think she's real. She went on to write, 
She said they are too unimportant for her to even care and explain. If they have a billion dollar, they can ask her because billionaires are the only people that matter. I don't quite understand that. If Andy posts a follow-up video, you guys will never know the entire story. But if this brings to court, which most likely will, you guys can find out with the case number within the next month about the entire story. You should be able to search it through L.A. Supreme Court or something. Every detail that I put here is heard from a very close friend of her. Now, I think she's one of the friends, but whatever. I, I, I do believe that she is speaking for that side. I don't have confirmation again, but I, I believe Vicky is speaking for kind of Jenny Leong's camp here. And by the way, there are attorneys on both sides. I have learned that. So that's also happening. There's, there's definitely now attorneys involved, both on Andy's side, which he mentioned, and he's correct, he does have an attorney, and also on uh, Jenny's side. There are attorneys. Then she wrote, let me correct you on this part. And then she quoted, quote, Eric Hicks in the live chat mentioned that Andy attempted to take her Louis Vuitton or whatever stuffed animal after the stream as collateral, just as he said he would on the stream. And she said, this is true. Now, she was quoting something that I said. So she's saying that this is true, that uh, Andy attempted to take her stuffed animal. Remember, she was carrying around a a $2,500 stuffed animal from Louis Vuitton. (laughs) And then... I wrote, but some triad-looking gangster showed up. So then she says back, the person is Andy's friend called Kenny Tran trying to get involved to get Savage to pay Andy back the money so the gangster had nothing to do with the dolls. Now, I don't know if there was a gangster or if it was it, the story maybe just got morphed because this is stuff I heard third-hand. So I, this is like stuff I had that, that was being told, but I wasn't saying I witnessed it or knew it to be true. So uh, she's saying that Kenny Tran, who's a, a known poker player in the L.A. area, that Kenny kind of tried to mediate here and uh, was trying to get Savage to pay Andy back. This is what she's saying. And that uh, that she that Kenny told Andy not to take the doll. It wasn't this gangster person. I don't know if this gangster person was there. <laughs> anyway, she went on to write, Andy voluntarily gave back the dolls to Savage at the end. Then a player asked Savage why she has no empathy over Andy when Andy was so upset. And then Savage says something like, you think I got the name Savage for nothing? Basically implying that she has no empathy for anything. That's interesting that uh, Vicky would write this. Vicky seems to be speaking from her camp. Uh, Andy and Savage will not be playing Live at the Bike anymore till this issue gets resolved. This is something I know for sure. Hmm. What you guys said here is going to hurt Andy a lot when it brings to court. If they decide to settle, Andy will probably contact you to remove this post. If no one contacts you to remove the post, it means they decided to continue with the lawsuit. I know she is in debt for hundreds of millions. Do you think a broke person can get a loan for over $200 million from the bank? Another 16 k debt from Andy on top of her current amount is like nothing. Okay, so let me stop here. You may say, well, why, w- why would her friend, someone on her side, say that she's in debt for hundreds of millions? Well, if she's making the case that she's in so much debt and, and can't pay that uh, basically another 16K debt is not going to matter to her and that uh, that's why she can't pay back. Like It's, it's kind of like setting up an excuse why she may not pay back which I, I'm not saying she or is or isn't in major debt on top of this, but that's what this person's claiming. I'm saying this is why someone on her side could possibly say such a thing. She went on to write, I know what I'm allowed to say and what I'm not. If things I'm allowed to answer, I can. I'm not allowed to disclose any detail of the story from her side. 
Then she said she'll update the case number of their lawsuit within two weeks if they don't settle. Then she said this will be evidence of how Andy's video has damages on her because these are thoughts people have on her after Andy published the video. Many stuff on the internet has been deleted so she can just use whatever is still available. This is just what I think. I might be wrong because I've never been sued for defamation before. So this is basically her saying that this thread on Poker Fraud Alert will be used in court if it does go to court to show that this has damaged her reputation as a result of what Andy said about her. Now, she's not threatening to sue Poker Fraud Alert. Vicky's not threatening this and Savage isn't suing this. She's saying that, like, what's going on on Poker Fraud Alert is evidence of what people think of Savage now as a result of Andy's statements about her. And that's why she suffered damages. So it's it's not that Poker Fraud Alert has damaged her. It's that uh, Andy has damaged her, causing people who are neutral on sites like Poker Fraud Alert to think badly of her. That's That's Vicky's assumption here. But she's saying that she's not a lawyer and isn't uh, sure if that would be actionable in court. Then I asked her, Vicky, would you be able to tell us who you are, or at least how you know Jenny? She said back, if you watch the first stream where she plays, I don't know which date that is, there's a girl sitting behind her, and I'm a good friend and tenant of that girl. So it's not the, she's not the girl sitting behind Jenny. She was the, the good friend and tenant of that girl. What I heard from her today is that Savage is now convinced to read release a public statement of her story by this week. I don't have to comment further since you guys can find out from her pretty soon. Now, by the way, this is posted September 21st. A public statement was indeed released on September 24th, Friday, which I guess now is technically yesterday because it's now 12.03 a.m. But, I mean, sort of today. This was released about uh, like six hours ago. The statement, which I'll get to after I read further things from Vicky. I offered at that point that if she likes that she can make a statement on Poker Fraud Alert, she meaning uh, Jenny, that she can register an account on Poker Fraud Alert and post her statement. Why? Because I want everyone to be able to give their side. I am not on Andy's side. I'm not on Jenny's side. I'm simply reporting what is happening here, reporting the allegations and reporting the response to the allegations. And I want to give everybody a chance to give their side of the story. I don't want to suppress anyone's side because that would not be fair. And I don't know Andy, and I don't know Jenny, and I have no reason to take anyone's side. And I'm not going to. So then, uh, it kind of appeared like uh, Vicky was going to show up at Live at the Bike and expose what was going on. It kind of seemed like that from something she wrote, but I wasn't sure because it's a little hard to understand some of the things she writes. Anyway, she said she's not going to go on Live at the Bike to where uh, to say this because she thinks they're going to censor it. So she, she's not going to bother with that. However, that uh, Savage would be making a statement soon. So people went back and forth with her in the thread. I'm going to read this one more thing from Vicky, and then I'll get to the actual statement from Savage herself, which uh, I believe really is from her. So Vicky said, here are the questions that I'm sure most people are wondering. One, why would Andy loan money to a complete stranger who he's only seen twice? They're not even friends. How could you call it friendship when they've only seen each other twice? Come on, don't tell me you're that innocent. Two, she has lost over 50K in her own money in two days. Andy did not mention that. If a player lost that much money in a home game, taking 30 days to repay a debt is not something unacceptable. I have another friend who runs home games and says usually they give players three months to repay a debt, especially if they've been losing money. So, you must see what she's saying here. She's saying that Savage lost additional money of her own in that game 
beyond that 16k and that given that she lost so much money it's reasonable that she's got to take a little time to get the remainder that she owes Andy and and, and number 2 that uh she wasn't a complete stranger to Andy and that uh or she, you know she they, she was a complete stranger to Andy and that there's a reason that he must have loaded the money to her even as a complete stranger she doesn't get into what she means by that but i'm sure you can use your imagination so i want to get to the actual statement from Savage, which was just released about six hours ago. An account registered on Poker Fraud Alert named Real Savage Poker, who I have not verified 100% is Jenny Leong, a.k.a. Savage, but I believe is. And uh, I invited either her or Vicky or both to come on the show tonight, and I did not get a response. They did not say yes or no, but they did not indicate that they have an interest in doing so, and indeed, they're not on here. But... I did get a PM from Jenny, or at least the person who says they're Jenny. They did not post anything publicly, but they told me that they're going to be releasing a statement very shortly. Then after they released the statement, they directed me to it. So I was one of the first people to see this statement because I was sent a PM about it on Poker Fraud Alert within minutes of when it was posted on Twitter. This was posted on a new account that was just registered on Twitter called Real Savage Poker. Same name as the screen name on Poker Fraud Alert. The long statement, I'm going to read it to you and then we will talk about it. I do believe, by the way, that this is a real statement from Jenny Leong, a.k.a. Savage. I should give the caveat that I have not verified 100% that this came from her, but I think it's highly likely that it came from her. So keep that in mind. My name is Savage and I'm a recreational poker player. I'm not a, quote, scammer, a, quote, scumbag, a, quote, thief, or a, quote, degenerate gambler, as Andy Sai, remember that's his real name, Andy Stacks is what he goes by, has convinced the public to label me. I value my privacy and prefer not to engage in social media. In this instance, however, I feel it's important that I clarify the untrue statements Mr. Sai is knowingly and publicly making about me. Many people have reached out to seek my side of the story in response to Mr. Sai's false accusations about me. Given how public Mr. Sai has chosen to make this matter, I'm compelled to respond publicly as well. Although it is my hope that this matter can be settled amicably without court intervention, I cannot keep quiet and allow my reputation to be further disparaged. I'm committed to speaking the truth and letting the public know about the truth, even if it's at the expense of a lawsuit. It is not acceptable for me to be bullied into allowing falsehoods to continue being spread. I am hopeful that, in sharing the truth, all persons can gain a full understanding of the events in question. To understand the backstory, I will explain the origin of my participation in the home games and the incurring of so-called debt. On the first day that I played at Live at the Bike, hosted by Bicycle Resorts and Casino, I was invited to a home game by the poker player seated to my right on the show, Mr. Sai. Mr. Sai not only invited me to a private poker game, but also extended invitations to multiple players present at the show. This act is in clear violation of casino policy, which provides that it is prohibited to bring players from the casino to a private game. Bicycle Resorts and Casino took no action to enforce this violation, even when I brought it to their attention. Okay, let me stop this here. That may be technically the rule, but this is really not enforced at any LA card rooms. Uh, Private games get going all the time that spring from large card rooms, and as long as it's not a huge problem, then basically these rooms don't take action. So, yeah, I couldn't walk around the bike or commerce and say, hey, who wants to come to my private game? Anyone want a private game? Hey, anyone want to come to my private game at the hotel down the street? Like, if I did that, they'd throw me out. But if I'm sitting at the table already playing, 
and I go, hey, you know, uh, I, I run a home game every Saturday. You want to come over? And and like four people say yes. That may be technically against the rules, but they're never going to enforce that. Now, if word got around that I was running a Saturday home game and then there was something shady about it, then they may come to me and say, hey, stop inviting people to your game because we're hearing bad things are happening here. Or they may even ban me if it's uh, believed enough that I was scamming people. However, in general, when these home games kind of spring from these large casinos, they don't tend to care very much. But let me go on. I have been in home games Mr. Sai invited me to only twice. The first time I played a home game held inside an apartment at the Ritz-Carlton. Mr. Sai told me the game was 5100, that is 5100 blinds no limit. I brought enough for two buy-ins. However, once I got to the game, Mr. Sai told me that they increased the game to 100200. Consequently, although I had planned on having enough for two minimum buy-ins, I only had I only ended up having one minimum buy-in. At this point, I felt that I was a small fish in a game of sharks who all knew each other. Nevertheless, I did not wish to insult my host and enter the game. Let me stop here. I will say that I understand her frustration. If you bring enough money to play 5100, and you're not bringing like a ton of money, you're kind of bringing like just enough to have two buy-ins, and if you lose them both, you quit. And then you see the stakes have doubled from what you were told. I can see why you're annoyed when you show up and it turns out to be double the stakes than what you were told it's going to be. And then you have the decision of, okay, do I want to do it anyway or just want to leave? And it, it kind of sucks. I admit that kind of sucks. However, sometimes they like to kick things up and it is up to each player whether they want to play. So nobody was forcing her to play. Uh, she could have turned around and left and nothing would have happened. She said she didn't want to insult her host. I don't really don't believe that. I think she just, I, I do believe she was uncomfortable with the stakes. I think she probably would have much rather played 5100 than 100 And as a middle to high stakes poker player myself, I can relate to this. I, I don't play at many home games. And when I do, it's usually like recreational, like like low money. But if I were to go to a bigger stakes home game and I, I, I'm okay with the stakes, but they're already kind of a little high for me and I get there and they're doubled, I would be annoyed. I, I wouldn't like be super mad. I would just be kind of annoyed and I, I might turn around and go home. And it would be either way, I'd be kind of bugged that I either came down there and had to turn around and go home or that... Uh, I'm playing stakes I really didn't want to play. So I understand why she was annoyed by this. But this happens. You know, sometimes they kick up the stakes before you get there. There's no guarantee it's going to be 5100, but that is the way she was invited, according to her, and it's probably true. So she goes on to say, Unfortunately, the pressurized environment of this game continued to heighten. The players raised the blinds much higher than what was advertised to me and pushed mandatory straddles. Now, for those of you that don't know, a straddle is where you're putting an additional blind bet out when you're not in the blind. So uh, often straddle is where you're going to put an additional blind out on, uh, like when you're under the gun, one before the blind. And then that creates action because that's like someone limped in already. Sometimes the straddle is even more than the blind. So this is to increase action in the game where you're forced to put that in. And the straddle means you're putting that out before you're even dealt cards. So you're not putting it out based upon having good cards. So she's saying that they added a mandatory straddle of 400, which is a lot more, double the big blind, that you have to, you're basically put at a blind min raise of 400. Uh, But this one was on the button. She said there were some strange rules, such as one requiring you to put $400 into a place every time when you're on the button to create more action for the game. I refused to straddle at first, but when I started winning, the players aggressively pushed for the straddle again. So what she's saying here is that they wanted the mandatory straddle of the 400 on the button, and she said, no, 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 look, I'm barely rolled for this as it is. I'm not doing it. And then they backed down, and then she started winning in the game. They're like, okay, look, you've won some money here. Can you straddle now? And she's like, 
reluctantly agree. This is her story. She said, she said, I reluctantly agreed to go along with the group because of the immense pressure from the rest of the table. In addition, I felt I was being free-rolled because most of the players were on credit, whereas I was not. With my minimum buy-in, compounded by the straddle and the strange $400 rule, I lost the money quickly. As a woman alone in this high-stakes game of sharks, you can imagine, few can imagine how I felt. Well, no, I actually can't imagine how you felt. I'm not a woman, but this really didn't have much to do with gender. I pictured reading this story how she probably felt. And by the way, I, I think I believe that this story is mostly true. I have no reason to know it's true. Like, I don't have any evidence this is true. But this part kind of checks out to me just from the way she's writing it. If I, if I had to guess, I would say this part is true, minus that she didn't leave because she didn't want to insult her host. I think she just decided she wanted to play, even though she was uncomfortable with stakes. I think that was really what happened. But aside from that, I believe this paragraph, even though maybe it's wrong, but I would guess it's probably mostly accurate. And I understand why she felt uncomfortable. If I was a new player in a game where everybody else knows each other and the stakes are higher than what I was told they'd be and people are pressuring me to go along with a straddle on the button, which makes it even higher. And I don't know, like, you know, how are these people playing with each other and and how much action do they have of each other? Like, there'd be a lot of questions I'd have in my mind and I would feel uncomfortable. I wouldn't be able to play my A game under those situations. So I can understand. It had nothing to do with being a woman. I would just understand as a new player to a game like that at such high stakes that were higher than you expected, that were high, higher than it was told to you when you were invited, I can understand why you would feel uncomfortable here. 100%. However, at any point, she could have said, all right, you know what? I don't like any of this. I'm leaving. That was her option at any point. She was never committed to play a certain amount of time or a certain number of hands. At any point, she could have stood up and left. Especially because they... Uh, changed what they were doing here. She could have said, look, I, I thought I was just coming to play straight 50-100, not, not 100-200 with this weird button straddle of, of double the blind. I'm, I'm not doing it. So it would have been completely reasonable for her to uh, refuse this. She didn't, and she played, so that's on her. I understand why she was uncomfortable, but she chose to continue playing. Then she said, the second game I played took place in an apartment in Irvine. Mr. Sai, ahead of time, I asked what the blinds were, and she he told me it was 50-100. That's the same he told her last time. Mr. Sai promised he would not change the blinds this time, so I was convinced to give it one more try. So she basically went back for the same game, but she was told this time we're going to keep it 50-100, no straddle BS. That's what she claims. That night, I was repeatedly poured and pressured to consume alcoholic drinks that I did not want and not ask for. Players played very differently that night from what I saw the previous game, and a series of strange and unsettling events occurred. Mr. Sai claimed in his video that he had a completely platonic relationship with me, but in truth, he made repeated unwanted sexual advances on me during the game. Mm. That's, uh, that was kind of implied, by the way, in one of the Vicky messages, but th- this is uh, going to be more detailed. I directly and repeatedly refused... Mr. Sai's advances and expressed that I had no interest, but he continued to escalate this conduct. That conduct made me feel extremely intimidated, especially being the only woman in the game. His unwanted sexual advances toward me culminated in a forced kiss against my will. To be clear, kissing someone who has explicitly denied their permission and consent, especially during an unprecedented pandemic, is absolutely unacceptable. When that game broke, I had to sneak out of the apartment without being noticed without, while he was in the restroom. I was so disturbed, afraid, and eager to leave before he saw me that I forgot my prized Christian Dior water bottle. 
she forgot her Christian Dior water bottle. So she's got a Christian Dior water bottle, which is prized to her, and, and she's got the $2,500 Louis Vuitton stuffed animals. I don't have any stuff like this. If I forgot a water bottle, I go, ah, oh, damn it, now i got to go to Target and get another one for three bucks. She uh, made a pretty explosive allegation here against Andy Sachs that he was trying to make sexual advances toward her and that he eventually kissed her without her permission even when she was rebuffing his advances. Well, obviously, this is classic he said, she said. I'm sure that uh, Andy is going to deny that uh, such advances occurred. I haven't seen any statement of his in response to this yet because it's only been like six hours since this was posted. But uh, I have to imagine he's not going to agree with this version of events. If this occurred the way she's describing, yeah, that would be wrong. It's not really relevant to the 16K. It would be a separate matter in judging what you think of Andy Stacks. But also, this could be exaggerated, or it could even be made up. I don't know. I wasn't there. I don't know anybody else who was there. So I can't tell you if what she said there is correct or incorrect. And I say this honestly. Like, if you asked me, do I think this occurred, my answer would really be, I don't know. <laughs> I, I really feel like it's a range from she made it all up to this happened or something in between. It could be anywhere in there. So I, I don't know what to say. But there is a little bit of a clue after that. I wanted to leave the game, but Andy pressured me to stay and offered me $30,000 of ships to stay. At some point, I went back a little. I offered to give the 30000 back when I had 35000 worth of chips in front of me. Mr. Sai refused to accept 30000 at the time. I assumed his refusal was due to an unspoken rule, such as the money that you put money on the table has to stay until you leave. Well, it's not an unspoken rule. That's the rule of poker that you can't take your stack off the table until you're done. So basically, she busted. He loaned her thirty k, according to this story. She won five more k, which in a game of that size isn't very much. And she's like, "Hey, how about we just take the thirty k back that you loaned me, and I'll play with five k and be short stacked?" And he's like, "No, you can't do that," which is correct. Like, if, even if her story is correct, you're, he made the right decision by saying, "No, you can't do that," because that's not how poker games work. You you cannot take money off the table. So she says. I kept playing, and at the end of the night, I had approximately $14,000 worth of chips, which I gave back to Mr. Sai immediately. So that left her sixteen k in the hole to him by her own admission, and that's important here. She said that he loaned her thirty k, and she gave him back fourteen k, which was all she had left at the end of the game, which is a difference of sixteen k. So she owed him sixteen k. So that's very important here. She's acknowledging that she left the game owing him sixteen k. The very next day after the game, I sent Mr. Sai $16,000 by wire, and my records show the transfer was successfully initiated. The screenshot showing these records is real, and it's not photoshopped, despite his claims otherwise. After approximately five days, Mr. Sai said he didn't receive it. I was concerned that he was trying to scam me for an additional 16000 especially given the questionable nature in which he put me in the situation to begin with. It sounded suspicious to me that he would bring up the matter five days after the wire transfer took place. I stressed if there's anything wrong with the wire, the bank would have contacted me. About a week later, Mr. Sai again claimed that he didn't get my transfer. At that point, I called the bank and was informed that the money was on hold and that they needed the sender to provide details about the purpose of the transaction as well as the relationship between the sender and the recipient. I promptly provided the information and after a few days, I discovered the bank didn't approve the transfer and the money was being returned to my bank account. 
I communicated these issues to Mr. Sai and assured him that I would give the 16000 to him in a way where the money would not be rejected. Okay, let me stop here. We're going to analyze this. So there's parts of this I think I believe and parts of this I'm a little questioning. So she said that she sent a wire to him, assumed it went through. He said, where's the wire? I didn't get it. Send me 16000 That she initially thought he was trying to double collect on her. And then when she looked into it, that she saw that uh, indeed it didn't go through. Well, the timeline's a little bit weird. I mean, I understand maybe he took five days to ask her about it because maybe he thought wires were slow. But uh, I don't know why she would have taken another week to call the bank. Like if I heard this, if I heard the 16K wire I sent someone they didn't receive, like the very next business day I'm calling the bank. But okay, whatever. It took her a week to call the bank about this. And then they told her that they rejected it. Now, you may think, oh, this is bullshit. Well, maybe not. This is very possible to have happened. The part about the wire being rejected and then being rejected a second time. I'll explain why. There's a lot of concern on the part of banks that there's wires being sent as a result of fraud. So that's why they asked her why she was sending it and how she knows the person. Because you have all these romance scams that are taking place on the internet where people are being asked to send money. And uh, the banks are trying to prohibit this. They're trying to stop this where people can't send money to strangers. And it's possible this was a bank that was in a foreign country. She doesn't say if it is or isn't, but maybe it was a bank in China or in Taiwan or wherever she's from. And uh, the bank there didn't want to send it. So they sometimes do want to know your relationship with the person. If it doesn't sound totally on the level of how you know that person and why you're sending them that money, uh, they can refuse to do it. I remember I had this happen when I used to deposit to Bovada using uh, one of these uh, payment processing services. And uh, like I'm talking about ones that uh, like a regular payment processing service, not one that's aimed at poker. And I used to have to BS about why I was sending the money and who I was sending it to and how I knew them. In reality, I was depositing for online poker, but I had to uh, lie about the reason that I was sending the money and how I knew the individual I was sending it. Now, I was doing nothing illegal by, by doing that. I was just trying to get my money on a poker site. But, and this is many, many years ago. But the point is, I've gone through this before personally, where if you tell them the truth that you're sending this for gambling, they're going to refuse to send it. Now, this wasn't a bank. This was a, a payment service. But still, I, I could see the same thing applying at banks. So I could understand, if, uh, especially if this is an international wire, that uh, the bank was suspicious that maybe this was a romance scam, especially as it's a female sending it to a male. And yes, romance scams do go both ways. It's more often aimed at men, but there are women who are scammed by men. So there, there are romance scams aimed at women. There's plenty of them. So it's, it's reasonable that the bank could have worried that she was sending 16K as a result of a romance scam, which clearly this wasn't, but you can see why the bank would be concerned about it and why they would say, okay, how do you know this person? And he's like, oh, yeah, well, I, I know him from a poker game. I'm sending it from a gambling debt. And they're like, uh, no, no, we're not doing that. So that's possible. I'm not saying for sure that's what happened, but it's not a far-fetched story. So it is possible that this whole thing about the wire taking a long time and taking two attempts. And when I first heard that, I kind of thought, oh, this is BS. This is like kind of the check in the mail delay story. But now I'm thinking, you know what? This may have actually happened. And this may have been what contributed 
to the eventual animosity between the two. Unfortunately, these rejections from the bank may have caused this entire thing to blow up, which would be a shame if that's what the cause of it was. But that may be really what happened. Anyway, I still don't know why she took so long. She definitely should have been faster about this, given the amount of money involved and how it would look. But whatever. I mean, if the bank really did reject it twice, which is possible, then I I can see how uh, on one side, Andy would think he's being screwed with and being sent fake receipts. And on her side, she's like, look, I'm trying to get it done. and The bank's just rejecting. Afterward, Mr. Sai tried to get me back to the game and acted as incongruent with his supposed opinion of me as a, quote, scammer. Initially, I thought it would be a friendly game, but later on I found out it was an illegal game with a very high rake, as high as 200 a hand. I don't believe anyone makes money at this kind of game, and that the only way to win this game is to not play. Okay, let's stop right here. So, presumably the previous games she played at, those first two, where she lost both times, those were rakeless games. And that's actually legal. You are allowed to hold high-stakes ga- high home games, or low-stakes home games, or medium-stakes home games. You, you, can home, you can hold any home game in California where this took place, as long as there's no rake. So those games are not illegal. However, once you take a rake, it is illegal. Now, again, that really isn't relevant here, and she never even went to this game. She declined it. But she's right that if the game was taking a rake, and $200 rake is crazy. I don't know if that's really true, but if that's really what they were taking, a max of 200 rake, that's crazy. But yes, such a game would be illegal. And yeah, I wouldn't play in that game with that type of rake, for sure. When I told Mr. Sai that I would not go to the game, he became extremely angry and nasty. At that point, Mr. Sai became very distasteful and disrespectful in the way that he had tried to collect a debt that I had been in communication with him about and making every effort to repay and already begun paying back. Let me stop right here. See, this part I'm having a hard time believing. Also, this kind of casts a little doubt on her claim that he was sexually harassing her and trying to kiss her because if she just went through that experience with him, why would she even have considered going to a third game and only turned it down because of the high rake? Wouldn't the reason be, I don't want to be anywhere near you because you tried to do that to me? Like, after that, you think she'd want nothing to do with the guy. So I'm not saying that I'm sure it didn't happen, but I think maybe she wasn't as bothered by the whole thing as she's portraying here. Maybe she tried it and didn't like it and wasn't interested in him in that way, but uh, you know they were past it and she was willing to go play at another game. But once she heard the rake, she's like, no way. Like that, that I'd believe much more. So it's possible that this really happened, this story about kissing her, which he didn't want it. It's also possible she's making it up. It's also possible it's exaggerated. But whatever it was, she does mention that she was considering this third game, despite what had happened there with a kiss, supposedly, and only turned it down because of the rake. Now, I don't believe that he got agitated and nasty because it's very reasonable to say, hey, no, I don't want a big rake. Like, uh, Yeah, sure, I played in that home game those first two times with no rake, but I, I don't want to play a rake game. Sorry. Like, I, I can't see him getting pissed off about that. What I could see him being pissed off about is, okay, well, you know, where's the 16K? And then she's like, well, you know, the bank's having problems. And he, he starts to think that she's not going to pay him and then starts getting pissed. So I could see where he might be pissed at that point that he hasn't had, gotten his money yet, but not that she's not playing this game. I find it unlikely that he was uh, insulted or pissed off that she wouldn't go to this high rate game. Again, these are just my guesses here, but I'm just kind of using common sense.
she went on to write, uh, considering the wire transfer with his bank alone took almost two weeks to get resolved, I was shocked that Mr. Sai decided to go on a public rampage and dis- disparage my name when I was in the process of trying to pay him back. He first did so on the public live of the bike show, presuming, presumably uh, talking about what happened on September 9th, and then again on his own channel with a video falsely calling me a scammer. That's that video he quickly deleted. According to what Andy states on stream, bringing this issue to the public is his last resort. I do not believe this is his only option. To be clear, he had never even given me a chance to negotiate the speed or terms of payment before he falsely and publicly labeled me as a scammer on stream and on his channel. He never said that he's going to publicly shame me if I don't pay back immediately. Therefore, I did not know he had that much of an issue with paying him back slowly. Okay, so I think this is an important paragraph, and I think this may be where a real miscommunication took place, which led to this ugly situation. And that's what's sad, is that it's very possible that neither party had bad intentions here. It's very possible that Andy loaned her 16K in that game, actually 30K, but got 14K back right away. So he was owed 16K from that game and was waiting for it. And she kept giving him stories about the wires failing, the wires failing. And he's like, oh, this is bullshit. She's not paying me. Damn it. I'm, I'm, getting, uh, uh, I'm getting stiffed here. And I'm pissed off. And I'm pissed off that she's still coming to play at Live of the Bike. Then on her side, she's trying to get him the money. But the bank's having issues. The whole thing's going slowly. She's maybe not following up as quickly as she should, but but that she really does intend to pay him and that she had no idea that he was this pissed off and that he was about to go blow her up publicly. Now, I'm not saying that one has to be blown up publicly before they pay, but more like, I didn't know you were that mad sort of situation. I didn't know that you were to the point that you were about to turn this into a major public issue. And had I known you were that pissed, I would have talked to you and we would have figured something out that was more concrete. So I didn't know you were on the verge of doing this. And it surprised me, is what she's saying. And I can believe that. I'm not saying I know for a fact it's true. But I can see both sides of this, kind of, from reading this statement, where I don't necessarily have to believe everything in the statement, but I can read between the lines here, and I can kind of start seeing that maybe what's happening here is that she doesn't have the money with her here in the states maybe she has to get a wire from back in taiwan or china wherever she's from to to send the money over maybe someone's going to loan it to her from over there like a family member who knows it doesn't matter but there's a, a wire that needs to be sent from somewhere else to him and she was having a hard time getting it done but had intended to pay him and he saw it as her not paying him and was getting increasingly pissed and she wasn't jumping on it as quickly as she should and she didn't realize he was getting as pissed as he was. And then just one day, he, he put it out there because he was pretty convinced that uh, she was not going to pay him and was just giving him excuses. It probably also didn't help that she was mentioning that uh, she felt the game was dishonest and he was starting to think she's setting up justification not to pay him. So he really felt like he had good reason to believe that she was never going to pay him. And she was kind of thinking, hey, yeah, I am going to pay. I just got to find a way to do it. So I could totally see how this may have been a miscommunication on both sides where one person's thinking one thing, one person's thinking the other and both are suspicious and then it blew up into this. She went on to write, since the incident, Live of the Bike and the Bicycle Resorts and Casino have consistently treated me unfairly. Not only did they publish the defamatory video of me to the public, meaning that uh, what he was saying about her, but Live of the Bike and the Bicycle Casino have done everything within their power to censor my side of the story. To ensure the truth will never be told nor heard. 
They have banned me on stream and edited the video to cut out the part where Mr. Psy was actively served with a cease and desist letter. I didn't know about that, but apparently that happened. Conversely, when Mr. Psy was defaming me, not only did they fail to stop it, they highlighted his false claims to their audience. Well, no, I heard that. They weren't highlighting it. I mean, the guy's pissed and going off on the stream about what's happening, and they what could they do? They, they had to shut down the whole stream to stop it. So they just kind of let him go off of what he's pissed about. And uh, then the announcer just kind of explaining it. But the announcers took no sides. The announcers were very neutral and saying, oh, wow, a lot of drama here. Wow, there's a lot of uh, fireworks here. Like they, they were kind of very, like awkwardly trying to lightly explain to the audience that there's some controversy here without getting involved. So I, I don't blame the announcers. I don't really blame the bike for letting this continue. Like that's on Andy what he and others at the table want to say. So it's not really the bike's problem here. This kind of caught them by surprise. And in fact, he was mad at the bike. She's forgetting this video he put out. He was bashing the bike, too. He was bashing them for letting her to continue playing on the stream while she hosing the money. So he definitely was not doing this with the bike's blessing. He was mad at them, too. Furthermore, they have barred me from entering the casino so I cannot share my story with other players, citing the reason for my expulsion and exclusion as, quote, causing disruption to the business, even though I was the one being harassed by Mr. Psy. I was the one being yelled at after the stream by Mr. Psy and his peanut gallery mob supporters. Mr. Psy has seized my belongings, the Louis Vuitton dolls, by force without my permission, and the casino security has done nothing to stop this conduct. The more I try to ignore the abusive behavior to work towards an amicable solution the more persistent he became. No matter how hard he tried to shame me, disparage my character, and hurt my reputation, I gave no response and hoped to resolve the issue. When he realized he was not going to be able to provoke me, he threw back the dolls at me and left. I was then stalked by Mr. Sai's friend on the way out of the casino. I believe my mistreatment and abuse by the casino is in violation of the law, which includes but not as limited to sex discrimination, which has caused me significant distress and mental anguish, as well as harmed my ability to play. Okay, so that's all kind of like legalese here, setting up her damages in the case of the lawsuit. I don't really believe that part of it. I don't believe there's any sex discrimination here. I don't believe that... uh, I mean, yeah, there's mental anguish. I'm sure she's unhappy this whole thing's happening. But anything stressful has mental anguish. And she does acknowledge she owes him money. So if she owes him money and she hasn't paid him in a little while... And he's pissed, like, she does have to take responsibility for some of that. So I I don't think any of that would be actionable in court. And harming her ability to play, she doesn't have a right to have an ability to play well. She's not forced to play poker. So I don't agree with that stuff. I don't know about being stalked by his friend on the way out the casino. I haven't heard anything about that. And... uh, the bike does have a right to ban her if they want. And the truth is, he is one of the draws of their stream. And she's going to mention this in the final portion of her statement. So if they want to protect somebody who is important to their stream, that people like watching, and they want to ban someone who upsets him, they have a right to do that. They can ban her for any reason except for a constitutionally protected reason. They couldn't ban her for being female or for being Asian or, or for her age they couldn't, or sexual preference, whatever that is, you know, they could not ban her for those reasons. But they could ban her because someone they like featuring on stream doesn't like her. That they could do. So I understand why she's upset about it, but at the same time, they have a right to do it. She writes, 
it is my understanding that Mr. Sai is using his considerable social media following as a weapon to get the remaining money back immediately. He has disparaged me to all the live stream players behind my back to convince them to band together to put pressure on me to pay him back. Well, okay, but just pay him back. <laughs> you admit you owe him the money, so pay him. As discussed above, he also got the casino managers and supervisors involved in something that's not even the bicycle resort's business. Mr. Sai asked them to pressure me to pay him back, even though the game did not occur at their casino. He threatened the casino managers, insisting that they, most, they must immediately kick me out of the casino and stream where he would not play anymore. Well, okay. That's not really threatening. That's just saying, I don't want to patronize this business if you're going to have her back here. So either she goes or I go. He has a right to do that. He doesn't have to play on their stream. So yes, he, he does have a right to go to the bike and say, I don't want her here. And if you continue to have her here, I just won't come. It's not like he's saying, if you have her here, I'm going to kill you. If you have her here, I'm going to beat people up. If you have her here, I'm going to vandalize the business. If you have her here, I'm going to do something else illegal. No, he's just saying, if she comes, I'm not coming again. Well, he has a right to say that. Given his relative fame and following, this threat likely had a good deal of influence. Now, that I do believe. I do believe that he got her banned from there. And I see why she's annoyed by that. Because she's like, why does this have to do with the bike? Why should I be banned from the bike over owing money to someone who plays at the bike? Because like at Commerce, for example, I'm sure at the bike too, there are tons of people who owe each other money and are kind of pissed that the other person's not paying, but nobody ever gets banned for this. Like this is, this is kind of unprecedented that someone gets banned from a casino for a debt to another player. So I will give her that, that this is non-standard and that he did throw around his considerable influence given that he's someone that people enjoy watching on the stream and by the way there's major competition for live at the bike which he doesn't mention but i'm going to mention that hustler casino live which is ryan feldman's show that he has uh brought over there since the bike fired him he's done a tremendous job with hustler casino live and a lot of people are watching it and, and live at the bike is really trying to keep up and they're not the only game in town anymore so they've got competition, and at least they have Andy Stacks, who people enjoy watching, and he's consistently in that game, so they don't want to lose him. They, they don't want to lose further ground to Hustler Casino Live by pissing off Andy Stacks. So he does have a lot of influence here, and he did get her banned according to her story. I, I haven't gotten it confirmed that she's banned, but do I believe that she's banned and that it was because he asked her to be banned? I would say yes. I, I don't know this to be true. But if I had to guess, I would say probably yes. And yes, this is non-standard. So I can see where she's pissed about that. But at the same time, the bike has a right to ban who they want. The day after Mr. Sai pressured the casino in this manner, they banned me. Following the stream, a man who I did not know entered the room and started pressuring me as well. Mr. Sai told him that he could keep the money if he managed to get it back from me, which of course incentivized him to increase his pressure on me. Since that night, this man has followed me beyond the casino and harassed me. I didn't give my contact number to this person, yet somehow he has my phone number and harasses me via text messages as well. This stalker has been telling everyone around me that if I don't pay, he's going to get it in his own way, which is deeply frightening to me. Now, I, I don't know if this is happening or not. If, if it is, uh, I can see why this is uh, disturbing to her, but uh, anyway, that's what she's claiming. Mr. Sai has also been threatening me directly. When we stepped outside and talked on Wednesday during the stream, I suggested paying him in monthly installments. In response, he threatened me, saying the same thing he did on the stream. You are not leaving without giving me something. This statement was very intimidating and worrying to me, especially since I was acting in good faith to try to find a solution. Mr. Sai has rejected every offer I put forth resolving this issue in an amicable way. Let me stop right here. 
I have a question. I, this is what I'm not understanding. If she's this broke where she has to break it down into payments, wh- why is she coming to play poker? Why is she showing up to play at all? Like, <laughs> I understand she doesn't have the money if she busted her role and she has no money to pay him and she has to do it slowly. I get that. You can't just invent money where it doesn't exist. But what what's this money she bringing to the casino? So I think what Andy's pissed about is that she's showing up to the casino with money and he's like, give me some of that and you, know, you, you got to give me something here. You've got money on you right now. Give me some of it. I think that's what he's saying. I'm, she's not explaining like why she's even coming to the casino if she doesn't have the money to pay him. What money is she bringing there? So I'm not quite understanding her point on that one. I, I would be pissed if someone owed me 16k and they're just showing up to the casino with thousands of dollars to play. I'd say, well, you've got thousands of dollars. Give me some of it. Now, it's possible that it's somebody else's money that they staked her, but then she should stay that. She should say that uh, she's showing up to the casino, but she's being backed by somebody else. You don't have to name, name who it is, but she can say, this is not my money. Someone else is backing me, and I'm playing for them, so I can't give him this money. But she doesn't even say that here, so maybe it is her money. Mr. Sai's unlawful, abusive, and defamatory actions have given me no choice but to take legal action against him, and I reserve the right to pursue this matter to the fullest extent of the law. As I have stated, regardless of how much I believe I'm being scammed, I have every intention of paying him back. I'm working to repay Mr. Sai in an expedient yet logistically feasible manner and have been communicative with him about it. However, I will not be bullied into repaying him immediately, nor will I accept further mistreatment and abuse. There is no verbal or written agreement regarding repayment. That doesn't matter. I mean, she, she admits right here she owes the money much less the terms of any repayment when he handed me the chips. Throughout this duration, I've been making payments on my debt with Mr. Sai. In fact, the last payment I sent him occurred on the day before he defamed me on the stream. I had explained to him that I, that, was, that I was sending him small transactions through PayPal for a few days until all the transactions went through. Now, by the way, yeah, you, there's no way you can send 16K on PayPal. They freak out. And you know what happens on PayPal when they freak out. That's why uh, attorney Eric Benzamokin has a class action lawsuit uh, that's going to be uh, taking place against them over their seizure of money. Of course, that's a different story, but I can see why she would have to send small transactions through PayPal rather than the whole thing. I assured him that once the payments cleared, I would send him larger amounts to avoid the risk that the money would be held again. He publicly called me a scammer while I was in the process of actively paying him back. Let me stop here. There's some interesting stuff here. If she really was making like payments to him and then he went and did this, I, I have to admit that was crappy. Now, I don't know if that's true, but if someone owes you 16 k and they're starting to make payments and, the, and they're clear to you that if they're small payments that what you're, you're trying to do is establish to PayPal that uh, it's all right, that these payments are, are, are clearing and that nobody's complaining and then you can kick them up, as long as money is coming – I would keep quiet about it. When you call somebody out for not paying their debts to you is when they just stop cold and won't send you money. When they just say, I can't pay you or I won't pay you. That's when you come out and call them out. If they're sending you money, even small amounts, especially if it's small amounts with an explanation as to why it's small, then you give them a chance to do what they're saying they're going to do. And then if they go back on it, then you call them out. Now, it's possible this story isn't true and that she just hadn't been sending him anything and she's just making this up and and, uh, his side of the story will reveal that she's not telling the truth here. That's very possible. Remember, I'm reading her story and I can't check back with him about what really happened. But in my opinion, if she was sending him payments and had just sent him a payment the day before, that that was the wrong time to go off on her, that uh, he should have let this play out a bit more and see what he gets, even if it's kind of a pain in the ass. 
I am agreeable with resolving this matter without court intervention, provided that Mr. Sai give me a public apology for his aforementioned actions, after which I will donate the remaining money in question to a charity of my choice, according to his request. Yeah, nobody has to donate this. Like, he doesn't have to donate. She doesn't have to donate. Like, how about just you pay him back and then he keeps the money? How about that? Nobody has to donate anything. Just if the money's owed, pay it. Again, at this time, I do reserve the right to seek legal recourse to address the harm Mr. Sun has done to me, and I'm fully prepared to move forward with a formal lawsuit with the above causes of action and more if necessary. Furthermore, I will work closely with the LAPD, Irvine Police Department, and district attorneys to get the people who commit the federal crime to get the punishment they deserve. I'm not sure what federal crime was committed, but okay. Finally, I would recommend to all poker players to avoid these types of illegal home games and the predators that run them and recruit for them. I actually agree with that last part. Uh, I agree you should not just go to a home game where everybody knows each other and you're the stranger for high stakes. A lot of things can go wrong. I'm not saying anything bad about that particular game. It's possible everything was very much on the level there. And Andy does have a good reputation, so I will say that. I'm just saying in general, uh, that's not a good situation to put yourself in. So that's correct advice she's giving, even if that particular game is totally fine. That's the end of her statement. I see what's happening here. She does not have a lot of money at the moment, it looks like. And it's not like trivial for her to just give him 16K. Somehow she either has just just enough to buy into these games or someone's backing her. And uh, whatever it is, she feels that uh, she can only make uh, payments to him and eventually get him the 16K. But she does admit she owes the 16K, which is huge. That's a, a very big part of the story that can't be ignored. She is not saying, I don't owe it. Even though she has complaints about the game itself, she is conceding here that she owes 16K to him. So, great. Okay, that, that's the biggest thing that could get in the way, is if she says, I don't owe it, and he says, yes, you do. Then we've got a big problem. Here she says, yes, I do owe you 16K, Andy. And Andy agrees. Yes, you owe me 16K. So, all right. Now we have a lot of progress. Just right there, we have a lot of progress. She owes 16K, admits it. He admits that the money, the amount is 16K. All right, start paying. Problem is we have complications. That he said a lot of things about her that she doesn't like and doesn't want that being her reputation going forward. So she wants him to take those things back. And he doesn't want to take them back, apparently. And uh, now she is making a lot of statements about him which I'm sure he is going to want her to take back, such as the thing about the kiss and about the game being shady and about him being nasty and belligerent to her and like a lot of other stuff that was written there that makes him look bad. So now I'm sure he will have a similar complaint about her that she needs to take these things back. Here's what I think should happen. Because when it boils down to it, we have a very simple situation in that Money is owed, and both sides agree it's owed. So, okay. How about they just agree to a payment plan, and she sticks to it. Whatever they agree to, that they just stick to it. They don't go to court. As far as what is said to the public, there's a very easy way out of this one. And it may even be true. Sometimes in these situations, when you have to take back something like this, no one believes it because it doesn't make any sense. Like that thing with Mark Klang. Remember when Mark Klang was owed 500k for a uh, private and illegal blackjack game, and then they tried not to pay him, and uh, 
eventually he posted a statement that it was all misunderstanding, and he posted that so they would pay him. That was obviously the agreement, but you could tell it was very insincere, and you could tell that he didn't believe anything he was saying. Well, in this case, it's actually pretty believable that this was a misunderstanding. This is one of the rare cases where I think there was a very possible misunderstanding. All they have to say is that due to bank issues that she had on her end, sending the money from another country, that it took a long time, that she took longer to resolve it than she probably should have, and that it looked bad and that Andy reasonably suspected that she wasn't paying him. So that got him angry. And then he made a lot of statements about her being a scammer when all along she wanted him to pay. But at the same time, she acknowledges that it's understandable why he thought this because this sort of thing is commonly an excuse when people who owe money don't pay. It just, it so happened in this case, the excuse was actually true. So really like a misunderstanding. Really that it looked like she was making excuses But in reality, the bank really was having problems sending the wire and that she didn't have the money here to pay. And that uh, now that they've gotten this all worked out and that she really is low on funds at the moment, but that she has agreed to a payment plan and that they're all taking back everything they said about each other and they realize there was a lot of bitterness and misunderstanding and she's going to pay and they're going to all move forward and everything's cool. And then maybe she can even ask him to go to the bike and say, hey, can you remove this ban or conditionally remove this ban as long as she sticks to the agreement of paying and then be done and nobody goes to court. That's what I would suggest. That is my suggestion to both sides. Don't waste the court's time with this. Don't sue each other. They both have attorneys at the moment, amazingly, but uh, and I don't know how much the attorneys are going to charge, but uh, whatever. End this now. Stop racking up legal fees. Don't go to court. It's only over 16K. And you have a very easy way to explain this to where both sides can end up not looking bad. She won't look bad because she legitimately had bank problems and she claims she has screenshots to prove it. He won't look bad because it's reasonable why he would think that she's jerking him around. Because how many times do people, quote, have bank problems when they really just don't intend to pay? So this is one of the rare times maybe that that was true. So if they put that out there, then people go, oh, yeah, we could totally see how that happened. And then both sides can be cool. They can move forward. They don't have to be best friends. And obviously, he'll never loan money to her again. And she can come back on Live of the Bike, and they can kind of just ignore each other. Or maybe she can come on streams where he's not. I don't know. They can get past this, and he'll get his money. Nobody has to give to charity unless they really want to. And that'll be that. That's my suggestion. That is my suggestion. I think there's a good chance that both sides are going to listen to this because um, I know Andy is reading Poker Fraud Alert. I know she is reading Poker Fraud Alert. They're all very aware of this thread because this is where the drama is playing out at the moment. I guess now also on Twitter with that account she just created. But a lot of it took place here. It didn't start here, but now it moved over here. (laughs) I guess because of the 2 plus 2 thread got deleted. This is the only place. So uh, whatever. Uh, But... As you guys can hear, I'm neutral. I'm not on anybody's side. I promise you I've never met anyone involved in this whole thing. Or if I did, I don't remember. Maybe I 
sat at a table with one of you two in the past and don't know it, but I don't know either of you. And I'm not on anybody's side. I don't want to see anybody prevail here. I just want to see this whole thing get resolved because I think it can. And this is one of the rare cases where it seems like they both agree on the amount of money owed and it looks like there's an agreement that she is going to pay it. So just get it done. You guys have a way out of this one. I will even volunteer for something here. I probably should, but I'm going to volunteer for something. If you guys would like me to uh, help you craft a joint statement regarding this and post it on Poker Fraud Alert that both sides approve before I post, then I will do so. I'm actually volunteering for no money. I don't want any money. I'm volunteering for no money to help both of you prepare a joint statement you both approve of to put out to the public to restore everybody's reputation here. They just want to see this get resolved, even though I don't know either of you. I just, I just, I don't know, I'm just seeing this whole thing, like, I, I just feel like this doesn't have to go in an ugly way. And we're very close to it getting really ugly. So let's have it not be ugly. All right. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is the number to reach me. Some other explosive allegations occurred, but not involving the two individuals I just discussed. It involves Mr. Daniel Negranu and two other poker pros, one pretty well-known, one semi-known. We're talking about uh, Robert Mizraki, the brother of Michael the Grinder Mizraki, and Robert has some good results himself, and Will Fela, who you may may or may not have heard of. Daniel accused them on Dat Poker Podcast episode number 107 in early September of passing out fake vaccine cards. Ooh, boy, that's a pretty serious allegation because doing so is actually a crime. It is a crime to provide someone with phony vaccine cards. In fact, it's a crime to provide yourself with phony vaccine cards. So that's something you shouldn't be doing. If you don't want to get the vaccine, that's fine, but you you shouldn't fill out a fake card and make it look like you got the vaccine because you can get in big trouble for doing that. Anyway, Negranu kind of offhandedly at the 21 minute, 28 second mark on episode number 107 of DAT, D-A-T, Poker Podcast, that's the show he does with Adam Schwartz and Terrence Chan, made this allegation while he was talking about uh, an event he was playing at the Winds. I'm going to play you that uh, portion there. And then you have to take a picture of your, of your card your, your card that shows your proof of vaccine. And in that card, there is a number, serial code, so it's not like you can fake this. Which I was at first, I'm like, well, what's going to stop people from just faking this and taking a picture? Um, but apparently they do check the number. So, you know, if you try to fake it and you go to the World Series, I would expect you'll be banned forever. So I'm going to just tell you, Rob Mizraki, Will Faila, I saw you guys trying to pass off fucking fake vaccinate cards at win, right? If you try to pull it at the World Series, you're going to get banned for life, okay? I watched you guys at my table handing out vax cards like on the down low as if I wouldn't see. Like, come on, bro. Listen. Okay, now, let me stop right there. As you hear, he's very clear about that he saw them doing this. The only thing unclear, he said they were trying to pass off 
fake vaccine cards, which you think would imply that they're trying to pass it off for themselves, that they've been vaccinated. But then he was saying they were handing them out. So that makes it sound like they're giving them to other players. Now, Negreanu didn't say they were selling them, but that they were basically giving them out to those who wanted them. So listen to the rest of the story. You know? (laughs) That might be like the most Will Fela thing ever. I mean, Will's like, I'm going to send you a video, bro. My, my girlfriend won't let me get it. I'm going to send you a video, bro. You don't know. There's stuff. It's called pandemic, right? <laughs> no, it's stuff, you know, stuff you don't know. And this, when you're a poker player, right, that's a professional, you do not work for the World Series of Poker. You are not an employee. This isn't an employee-employer relationship. People saying, what about my kids? I have to feed my kids, all this kind of stuff. You do not work for the World Series of Poker. World Series of Poker offers a service. They offer an opportunity for you to make money, much like if you want to buy something in a convenience store and they say, well, to get in here, you must have a shirt on and you must wear shoes, right? No shirt, no shoes, no vaccine, no service. So this isn't a question of like your rights. People throw that word around so loosely, your rights, your rights. What, do you, what rights do you think you have as someone who comes to the World Series of Poker, takes part and plays like you're, you're misguided in thinking that like uh, you have any say or any pull. We've had, we've had these talks for as long as I remember in poker about a player's union or whatever, which I'm all for, you know, if we can create something like that, but it's important to understand the relationship is never going to be players of the employee talking to the employer. It's a service provider customer relationship. Okay. So he's right about that, that you don't have a right to play there and you can't claim it's like a employee employer relationship and that they can make whatever rules they want and that, you have to adhere to them or you just won't play. But getting back to the more interesting part of his little speech there was his claims about Will Fela and Robert Mizraki. Were they really carrying and or handing out fake vaccine cards? So he did clarify on the next episode about whether they were really doing this because obviously a lot of people were pretty disturbed by this allegation and it was funny because he's just kind of putting it out there as if it's like just something he witnessed but it's actually a pretty big story if they were really doing this so uh at the 25 minute 25 second mark on the next episode he uh clarified what was going on there and i'll play that to you the september 21st episode the one they just had a few days ago this at the twenty five twenty five mark, he clarifies. To ask me to clarify what you know what was going down here, and it was when I was talking about Rob Mizraki and Will Faila, who were at the <laughs> Win Poker Tournament when we were playing at the Win. This was mask, you know, mask free. There was nobody wearing any, and Will is sitting there, you know, filling out a Vax card. Okay, and Rob's there too. Do you know? So here's the thing. Here's what I want to make clear. Neither Rob, as far as I know, I know Rob for sure isn't. He was not selling vaccine cards to anybody like that. Apparently, according to him, it was like a joke to him. He was just kidding. But he did say that after the conversation we had at the table there, that he, he made the decision to actually go get vaccinated. So he went and got the Johnson & Johnson. But he is not selling vax cards. Um, and he, he said he threw it away right there. Like, because, you know, Will's like, oh, here you go, buddy. But there was no, like, black market of, of vax cards as far as I know. So I don't know if that, <laughs> that alleviates some of the the heat on Rob because he's like, a lot of people are asking, you know, like what I'm doing with these Vax cards. I'm like, yeah, I didn't say you were selling them, but I guess, 
you know, it's that game of broken telephone where it comes out that way. There's no question that Will had fax cards there and he was writing shit on them. That's what I saw happening, right? I'm like, what the fuck are you doing, bro? You can't do that shit. So, yeah. But anyway, Rob is vaccinated, not selling vax cards, and he's going to be at the World Series of Poker playing live. Yeah, it has to be a game of telephone because there's absolutely no chance Rob Mizraki watches this podcast to get the – Yeah, so, yeah, if you get your Johnson & Johnson, you'll be, you'll be two weeks away from playing in the World Series of Poker. Which- All right, so I'm going to stop it right there. All right, I'll tell you what I believe and what I don't believe. I do believe that nobody was selling Vax cards. I do believe that Rob Mizraki actually went out and got vaccinated. So I believe that part of it. Uh, do I believe that there were that they had fake vaccine cards? Yes. Do I believe that it was just all a joke? No. I, I do think that probably something nefarious was going to be attempted. Otherwise, why are they carrying fake vaccine cards around? Do you carry fake vaccine cards around with you? Like, why did they even have that at the poker table? Where would they have gotten these? I don't have them. I have no way to get them. I I guess if I wanted to, I could make them. But why would I do it? I've been vaccinated. I would have no reason to fake anything. But even if I wasn't vaccinated, the only reason I would print out a fake one would be because I was looking to fake it for myself or otherwise. And why would you carry it around? Why would you bring it to a poker tournament? So there's obviously some reason that one of the two, or maybe both of them, brought these fake vaccine cards to that win tournament. And maybe they did have this dumb idea that they were going to write them up for anyone who wanted them. Like, hey, who doesn't want to get vaccinated here? We can get you into the World Series with these fake cards. Not that they were selling them, but maybe they were going to make them for people just uh, to help the anti-vax effort, which is crazy, if true. But Negreanu did say he saw Will Fela writing on these blank cards. He didn't see what he was writing, and they had him there for some reason. Like, what, Why else would you bring them to a poker tournament? Why would you have those cards at all? And why would you bring them to the poker tournament? And what would you be writing on them? So here's what Rob Misraki had to say about it on September 23rd at about 2 a.m. Pacific time. On Twitter, he wrote, I'm sorry to all my friends and fans who thought I was passing out fake vaccine cards. Thanks, Daniel Negreanu, for clarifying it. I'm playing a full schedule. I got vaccinated. I'm feeling great, and I'm confident I will win a bracelet this year. Good luck to all this World Series of Poker. When someone asked him, I don't think it's enough to just say I wasn't passing out fake vaccination cards. What were you doing? Helping out Will to fill out cards? Or helping him pass out fake cards even if you knew they're fake? Please come out clear as Ms. Rocky name has good equity in the poker world. This is what uh, Ms. Rocky said back to this guy. I was handed a card as a joke on break. I ripped it and threw it away. Will Fila was not selling cards. He only gave me one as a joke and I threw it away on break. See, I, I don't believe that. I don't, I don't believe uh, it was a joke. Now, I think that after Negranu said something about it, and was like, guys, what are you doing here? And they realized that he has closeness with the World Series and that uh, he has an influential voice, and he is pro-vax, that it might get around what he saw here. I don't know why they even pulled these out when Negreanu was at the table. That was pretty dumb. But uh, once he objected to it, they realized they had a problem, and all of a sudden at that point, uh, they realized they had to frame it as a joke. That's what I think happened. Uh, Will apparently gave the whole speech to Negreanu, according to him, about, no, 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 you don't understand. This is all for profit. You know, watch the that pandemic video, blah, blah, blah. So 
he was still trying to convince Negreanu that the vaccine's a big fraud, which is stupid, by the way. I think after that, they realized they'd have a problem on their hands, especially with Negreanu telling the story out there on uh, his podcast on September, whatever it was, early in September. So at that point, all they could say is there was a joke. Like, who would bring fake vaccine cards as a joke? And notice Negreanu didn't say that he saw Mizraki ripping it up. Like, why would he even rip it? Like, why, why wouldn't he just throw it away? I don't really believe this. Now, I do think it's possible that Mizraki was not originally in on this, that Will Faley just gave it to him and he was kind of considering what to do with it. And then Negreanu raised a big stink and Mizraki's like, up. Oh, Nope, definitely not going to do this now. <laughs> Maybe he did throw it away at that point. Uh, I do believe that the cards were not being sold. That I do believe from everybody. Uh, but was Will Fiala poss- possibly handing them out for use of tricking the World Series? Yes. I mean, why else would he have brought them? I can't be sure. But a joke doesn't seem very likely to me. It just doesn't seem likely. Why would you bring fake vaccine cards? Why would you even print fake vaccine cards and bring them to a tournament as a joke? It's not even funny. Like, what, what's funny about that joke? Hey, guys, uh, fake vaccine cards. <laughs> what's funny about it? Nothing. Like, it's not even like it's a funny joke in some way. It's, it's, uh, I guess you could say it's a prank if you actually were vaccinated. Like, like, I'm vaccinated. So let's say I brought a fake vaccine card for the purpose of shocking everybody, and, and I write out my fake vaccine card and I'm just about to hand it to the World Series and I go, ah, just kidding, guys. No, no, no. I really got vaccinated back in April. Here's my real vaccine card. And I rip up the fake one and I, and I bring out the real one and, and show that. Like, I still wouldn't do that because it would be a very bad look and then there would be doubt whether my original card was real. But at least you could say, okay, that's kind of a prank to shock everybody. But but at the very least, Will Fiala was pretty clear that he was anti-vax and that uh, he was trying to convince Negreanu to watch this pandemic video. So for him, it wasn't a joke. So I don't quite fully get the purpose of why he brought those cards there, but he did bring fake vaccine cards, apparently. Even uh, Mizraki is backing that part of the story. He's just saying that it was a joke and that he ripped it up and that he since got vaccinated. But notice he didn't say Will Faela got vaccinated. So that made them look pretty bad. I don't know what they think they were doing, like right in front of Negranu. <laughs> Did they not watch his social media? Did they not see that Negranu is uh, pro-vax and anti those who are uh, not getting it? And that he's close to the World Series? And like, if he knew about this, he probably is not going to keep quiet about it. Like, that's not the guy to have you uh, to see you doing this if you're going to be doing this. But you really shouldn't be doing this. That's the bottom line. Even if you're anti-vax, you should just not play then. You shouldn't uh, fake being vaxxed, especially because it is actually a crime and you can get in big trouble for it. So that is a big mistake. People caught doing this can face federal penalties. Uh, This is from uh, news3lv.com, which is uh, Channel 3 News in Las Vegas. It says... With many events and businesses now requiring people to be fully vaccinated, Nevada officials are warning of hefty consequences when it comes to fake vaccine cards. Nevada Attorney General Aaron Ford and his office are warning Nevadans if you make, buy, or sell fake vaccination cards, you are breaking federal law. The state is concerned and we've looked into various laws that could violate. Under federal law, you can be actually fined for individuals up to $250,000 
or an organization up to $500,000, but it carries criminal components or penalty to where you can find yourself in prison up to five years. Vaccine cards carry a federal government agency seal. That's why a fake vaccine card could be considered a federal offense. And that it it could be considered uh, equivalent, though not the exact same violation, but an equivalent level violation of using counterfeit money. Not a good idea to do. Do you want to play the World Series that badly, then get vaccinated? Otherwise, don't play. Pretty amazing that happened. <laughs> right in front of Negreanu, too. <laughs> and then he tells the story on that poker podcast, and then the guys are like, oh, shit. Oh, shit. That's another problem. Negreanu has a podcast, too. Oh, boy. All right. So uh, let's move on to another uh, Twitter controversy involving a known poker pro that's been around for a long time. Mike Matisau, who is no stranger to controversy, he is involved in the age-old WSOP markup debate, which we get every single freaking year with the World Series of Poker. So for those of you that are not familiar, markup is where people sell pieces of themselves at a poker tournament, such as the World Series, and they sell the piece for more than even money of what the piece is worth according to the buy-in. So, for example, let's say there is a $1,000 event. 1%, if there's no markup, would be $10 because 1% of 1,000 is 10. But markup is where they charge additional money. Why would there be additional money charged? Well, could be a few reasons. Could be that the player feels that they are better than the average player in the field and therefore are worth more than what the standard buy-in would be. It could be that the player feels that their time is worth something, that they have to actually go there and play. It could be that the player feels that they incur expenses to play these tournaments, such as hotel rooms, food, travel expenses, etc. And maybe a combination of all the above. In fact, usually it is a combination of the above. So that's why markup is charged. And there's nothing wrong with charging markup. In fact, if I were to say there's something wrong with charging markup, then I would be a big hypocrite because I have charged markup. If you look at my World Series packages in previous years, I have usually charged between 10 and 20% markup. I've never charged more than 20%. I don't feel that's uh, fair to do. I have also always stated before selling any World Series packages that this is for entertainment only that I'm not claiming that this is a good investment, that I may not be positive expectation given the markup in these events. Once you add markup, then the player has to be uh, good enough compared to the rest of the field. Plus, of course, there's the house juice that the World Series takes from each tournament pool, that you have to beat the markup and the house juice and the other players to enough of an extent to where you can overcome all of that to be positive expectation. So I've said before that I may not be positive expectation given all of this after the markup is charged and that basically the reason you would pay the markup is for entertainment. So somebody that you know that you can follow and that you know that I'm going to be giving very frequent updates on my Twitter, which I do and always have been. I probably give more updates than anybody else, so you can kind of feel like you're there. I don't only, don't only update chips, but I talk about uh, interesting hands. I talk about interesting things that happen at the table that 
aren't even involving me or notable players I might be with or other things I see around there. Just I try to make you feel like you're actually there sitting next to me when you're watching from home. And and I do this to uh, entertain the people who are following along, whether they have a piece of it or whether they are just following my progress. So that's part of what you are paying for. And, and also uh, you're paying for the reliability that you know you're going to get paid. You know I'm not going to screw you. You know I'm not going to run off with the money or deny I sold you the pieces or oversell pieces or anything like that, that you know from my two decades in the industry that I'm not going to screw anybody. And uh, also, yes, for my time and the expenses I incur with having to go to the World Series, which is the truth. Of course, nobody is forced to do it, and I'm very upfront that I'm not claiming that this markup is going to make me positive expectation or an investment in me at this markup is not necessarily positive expectation that you're doing this for fun. And if you still want to do it, then great. And that's always been my attitude. I've also been clear that I don't need this money to play, that even if I sold no pieces, I would play the exact same schedule. So I'm not dependent upon these pieces to play. It's just something I do to reduce variance and to give people pieces of it so they could enjoy following my results more because they actually have some skin in the game. So that's the reasons I sell, but I do sell at markup, and I will sell for lesser markup sometimes if I think the event is tougher, like some of the 10K events. And then there's some events I won't sell at all, like the main event I don't sell because if somehow I make the final table and am guaranteed the big money... I don't want to give it away. <laughs> That's, I'll be honest with you. If I make the final table the main event or if I win the main event, I don't want to give away 40%, which is what I usually sell of myself in the other events. I don't want to give away a healthy percentage of what I've won if I hit lightning in a bottle and make it. And look, two times in the main event, I've gotten very deep, including the very last one I played. So it's not impossible. It's not a complete pipe dream that I make the final table. It's not going to be easy. I may never make it, but it's not something that would be absolutely shocking if I did because twice uh, a few hands go a different way and I have a very decent chance of making the final table. So it's something I hope I do one day. I may never do it, but uh, I would feel like a chump if in an attempt to save money that I don't necessarily need to save in that 10K buy-in, that I'd be giving away 40% of myself and then I win the whole thing for 10 million, I've got to give away 4 million. That would kind of suck, you know? Like, uh, I, I like my listeners here, but I, I don't like you guys enough to give away uh, $4 million to you. You know, I, I want to get to that final table and know that I'm guaranteed... $1 million. And, you know, if I got something like that, I'd probably hold a nice free roll for the community, but... Uh, like, I don't want to give away 40% of it. <laughs> I don't want to give away 10%. I, I want to keep that money myself in the main event. Whereas the, the other events that don't have gigantic prize pools, like the main event does, there I'm, I'm more happy to share it. So like the time I made fifth place at the 10K limit hold'em, or sorry, the 5K limit hold'em, um, I, I hit for 50-something thousand. Yeah, I, I had to give back, uh, I think I, I sold like 45% there. I meant to sell 40, but I sold 45. So I had to give away 45% of it. Okay, you know, I was fine with that. I was not even the slightest bit frustrated that I had to pay out that money. Why? Because I had losing years. I had losing years before and since, and those years I gained extra money by having people buy pieces of me. So that year I I had to give up money that I uh, had won that I would have kept myself otherwise. But that's part of the deal, and I, I felt actually good that my investors got to be paid out there. 
and uh, I hope to hit more of those. And as you've seen, I've come close a number of times. Unfortunately, I, you, you know how it is at the World Series. Like, there's like 1,300 entrants, and you finish like 30th. You don't get that great of money. You'll get like 7K, like in a 1,500 event. And if you get to the final table, you get much bigger. If you, if you win it, you get something in six figures. So I hope one of these days I will do something like that. I've come close. You guys have seen. Like, go look at my results from 2019. Go look at my results from other recent years. You'll see some close calls where just a little bit different, and I'm there at the final table making the big money, and uh, you guys would have done really well who bought pieces of me. So, you know, that's tournament poker. I don't play enough tournament poker to smooth out the variance, and there's a lot of variance in these things. So, anyway, I sell it as a combination to reduce variance and to give you guys a sweat. Unfortunately, for others, it's not quite like that. Some people sell pieces because they have to, because they have no other way to get in, and others will sell at the highest markup they can as, well, as long as people are willing to pay it. And that's where the debate comes from. I could probably sell at a higher markup and get people to pay, but I don't want to because I feel once I get past 20% markup, it's unethical. It's not uh, right to do. At least I don't feel good about it. However, at the same time, I feel that you shouldn't really judge those very harshly who do it. So I feel it's unethical in the manner where I personally don't want to do it. I don't want to sell someone at a markup that is high enough to where I'm pretty convinced I can't beat it if I were to play like the same events a million times. I don't want to make it where I'm obviously negative EV and I'm charging markup. Like It just doesn't make me feel good to do. But on the other hand, I can understand the free market argument that if people are willing to pay for it and they understand what they're paying for and they're not being scammed or misled in any way, then people should have a right to sell it. And it's just kind of a personal preference on how you feel about selling packages. And if you're selling packages kind of in a just complete profit motive that you're just trying to make the most money for yourself possible, then that's one thing. And if you're selling it more for recreational purposes, like I do, where I kind of care about who I'm selling it to in that I do not want to sell them a negative EV opportunity, even if I could make more money, uh, that's a different story. So my motivation for selling the pieces and my attitude about selling pieces is different than other people's. So I don't want to completely judge other people for selling it higher markup than I think is appropriate. And at some point, the markup gets too high where nobody can beat it. So you can say, well, maybe some of these guys are better players than you, at least better tournament players than you, and therefore they can justify higher markup. And I'll say, okay, that's probably true of some people. I'm not the world's best tournament player. I'm not a bad tournament player, but I'm not the world's best. So are there people who could justify higher markup than me? For sure. But at some point, the markup gets high enough to where they can't justify it, and it's ridiculous. So there's been a debate year after year after year, and it's getting very tedious, to be honest. We've talked about it before on this show, of whether people should be shamed for selling high markup packages. And I used the term unethical earlier, and I I really kind of take that back. I don't mean unethical, meaning nobody should do it. I mean, personally, I don't want to do it, and I don't feel good doing it. And that's why I don't do it. But I do feel as long as nobody is tricked or misled, that if something's simply overpriced and people are willing to pay that 
premium for whatever reason, then it's okay. It's not something I would do. It's not something I love to see, but I don't think it's dishonest. I don't think it's terrible. So let's take a big-name poker pro. Because Phil Helmuth has been accused of uh, selling it too high of markup. Now, obviously, Phil Helmuth is a great tournament player. He has the most bracelets in World Series history by a wide margin. But how much is he really worth? So he's been accused of selling markup at too high of a rate. However, Phil Helmuth is a huge star, and maybe there is some additional value simply in being Phil Helmuth and fans being able to say they had a piece of Phil Helmuth in the event. So almost like selling an autograph or selling merchandise. That merchandise or that autograph has value because of whose it is. It's not just the value of the shirt being sold. It's a shirt with with someone or something's name on it that gives it the value. Same with an autograph. Not just someone scribbled a, a name. It's that whose name it is. So things will sometimes take on value based upon who they're associated with. So if Helmuth wanted to make the argument, or even Mattisau, who's not quite as big of a name as Helmuth, but still a pretty big name, if they want to make the argument that buying a piece of them has additional value just because who they are, and people want to pay it just to say they have a piece of these bigger name players, and people will happily pay it uh, even though it's a much higher than standard markup, then that's a reasonable argument. And even if these guys seem to believe that they're plus EV, even at very high markups, that's just what they believe. But as long as they don't give a guarantee that they know that their positive expectation, they're so good that, yes, they can beat this markup for sure, and that the haters are just uh, uh, lying about them, then it starts to get unethical because then you're starting to say things that aren't really true. But if you're just saying, I feel I'm worth you know this much markup, this is what I'm selling it for, and you don't state exactly why you're worth it, just this, this is what it is, and this is what you're selling it for, and people buy it, then... I don't think it's terrible. As I said, I wouldn't do it, but I don't think it's terrible. Anyway, we have this debate. When I say we, I mean the poker world. I don't mean me personally. I don't really get much involved in it, and I don't sell for very high markup, so I'm never part of this debate really very much. But uh, there is this debate involving what Mattisau is doing, and I'll explain this whole thing of what's going on. (laughs) There's a little twist to it this time. So on September 20th, Mike Mattisau wrote, For all you big mouths who think I can't win at the World Series, you want to bet against me, you can do so now here. Use my referral code for 100% deposit bonus up to $100, Mike WSOP, and then he had a link to stakestars.com. Put your money where your mouths are, big boys. Hashtag WSOP2021. Hashtag mouth poker. Hashtag the mouthpiece podcast, which is actually his. Actually, he wrote not the mouthpiece podcast. He wrote the mouthpiece podcast. <laughs> <sighs> Good job, Mike. But anyway, I, I have nothing against the mouthpiece podcast, by the way. That. Uh, in fact, a clip from the Mouthpiece podcast was essential to my anti-slap motion against Possel, because Possel appeared on there and said some things which very much uh, ended up supporting my case. So I thank him for having that podcast. That was very useful to me. But anyway, this kicked off a shitstorm of controversy. And uh, one of the pieces of controversy was that Mike was selling some events as high as 50% markup. 
most of the events were uh, uh, I guess he had some events at 30% markup but he had five events at 50% markup including the main event and some people were really upset about this that he's selling at uh, such high markup some people were saying that he was quote robbing people by selling at that rate Phil Helmuth backed Mike Mattisau by saying, uh, buy a piece of Mike Mattisau in the World Series at U-Stake, definitely a long-term winning bet and a fun sweat. Now, people really didn't like that because Helmuth was actually saying that Mattisau can beat that markup. He said a long-term winning bet, not just, hey, it's fun. Hey, people are willing to pay this to have a piece of a guy like Mattisau just to say you have a piece of it. It said this is a long-term winning bet, meaning Mattisau has positive expectation in these events, including the ones at 50% markup. So people on Twitter said things like, probably not going to pay 30 to 50% markup on 10Ks to a guy who went to the Doug Polk podcast and said the vaccines cause autism, but thanks for the investment advice. Have a good day, Phil. By the way, Mike is vaccinated. I'd rather light my money on fire, said another responder. Another person said, no thanks. Aren't you boycotting? Oh, wait. That's referring to uh, Mattisau initially saying he's going to boycott the World Series and then eventually saying he wouldn't. However, there was a good reason to boycott the World Series for a while, or at least to personally boycott it, not to boycott on principle, but just for not wanting to play. And that was the mask mandate. Like, I was at first saying there's no chance I'm going to play if you have to wear a mask all day. Then when they took that away, I said, okay, now I've just got to decide if it's personally safe for me. But Mattisau seemed to have like the same attitude that he, he didn't want to play at first because of the mask mandate and these disqualification rules, which then got rolled back. Mattisau's tweet that I read you before that was where you could actually bet him, and this is a new thing, you could actually bet him on this Stakestar site, or not bet him, but I guess bet with other people. Of whether or not he could beat this 30% markup. So that's what he's saying here, that uh, if you don't think that he can beat 30% markup, you could actually go and you could bet against him. I'm looking at it right now, and this the, the lines given on this are kind of adjusted by who bets on each side. So Mattisau did not set these lines. These are set by the site based upon how much action is on each side. But you're betting yes or no if he can profit at... 30% markup or not profit at 30% markup. And I guess if he breaks even, then the bets tie. But you would get even money if you bet on the yes side, he will profit at 30% markup and you have to pay 15% juice, meaning you'd have to pay, you'd have to, uh, or it's minus 115. It's not quite 15% juice, but it's close. It's you'd have to bet 115 to win 100 if you are betting on the no side that he will fail to cover 30% markup. So the question is, can Mike Mattisau beat 30% markup on these WSOP 10K events? See description for the list of events included in this bet. So that is the uh, question here. I'm not even sure where the... I don't see the description. Oh, here we are. Okay, so the event he's playing is, is the following. 10K 08, 10K limit hold'em, 10K dealer's choice six-handed, 10K horse, 10K... PL08, 10K no limit, deuce to seven low ball draw, 10K six handed no limit hold'em, 10K limit deuce to seven low ball triple draw, 10K PL08, 
or sorry, one of them is, is one of them is PLO and one of them is PLO eight. It's a little confusing. It says eight handed. I the first one was PLO. This one's PLO eight. Uh, the main event, which is 10K buy-in, 10K seven-car stud, and 10K Raz. This is listed in order of the events that they're going to take place. So two of them actually occur after the main event. Uh, if he doesn't play these events, they don't count. So like if, if I guess he misses one because of schedule conflict, then I guess they don't count. But it says at least 50% of these tournaments must be played for this bet to be valid. Otherwise, it'll be a full refund. If 50% or more of these events are played by Mike, he'll need to profit at... 30% markup for the yes bet to be a winner. So this is a bet you can make through stakestars.com and Mike was even promoting his uh, bonus code where he gets some kind of referral fee of course that you can get extra money depositing there on your first deposit. So that's really why he was tweeting that out is because he wanted people to sign up on his bonus code and make money but this is a real bet you can make of whether he can cover the 30% markup and it's fairly close to even money here. So it looks like that uh, it's pretty much split, at least among those betting, whether or not he can cover 30% markup at these 10K events, which is interesting. Now, what is his best game? There's a lot of different games. You've got to be a pretty well-rounded poker player to be able to play well at the 10K events, which have a lot of good players, in all these different forms of poker. It's one thing for him to play one or two that he's particularly good at, but he's playing a lot of them. So the one where he's probably the biggest favorite is 08. He's known to be a very good limit 08 player. Limit Hold'em, uh, he's been playing that for a long time, so uh, I don't think he's the best limit Hold'em player out there, but he can probably hold his own there. But it, the competition's very tough. I play that event. There's there's some fish there at the beginning, which is what makes it worth playing. But then uh, after that, you have a lot of tough players you got to negotiate with there. Then there's the uh, Dealer's Choice Six-Handed, which is a mixed event. Horse, which is uh, five different games. Uh, then PLO8, he's pro- since he's good at 08, he's probably good at PLO8 too. I know it's different, but there's a lot of similarities. Uh, but I don't know about his skill in the d- No Limit Deuce to 7 and the uh, the Limit Deuce to 7 and uh, Seven Card Stud and the Raz. Yeah, I, don't, I don't know how good he is at those games. I'm, I'm sure he's good at the No Limit Hold'em, the six-handed No Limit Hold'em, but again, that's a tough field. There's some really good players in that. The main event, I do believe that uh, the 30% is fine. That's actually a, a soft field, the main event. So there, I think Mattisau could cover the 30%, and at the Omaha 8 or better, possibly, maybe the PLO 8. The rest of them, I don't know. I mean, 30% is very tough to cover at 10 k that's why I don't even charge 20% anymore. I did for a while. I'm like, you know what? I think that's too high. So I actually lowered it. I started charging 15% at the 10Ks. And in fact, I've been bringing down how many 10Ks I'm playing. I don't really like the variance. Even even selling 40% of myself, I don't like the variance. In fact, I feel a little bit bad selling 40% of myself because I just got like one shot and uh, and $4,000 collectively of everybody's money gets lost. So like, there's so much variance in it. I, I don't like it. Like, for example, the 10K Limit Hold'em, I think if I could play that event day after day after day, I'd be profitable in it because there's a number of weak players at the beginning, and then after that, it's kind of just which of us catches cards better of me and the remainder of the Limit Hold'em pros. So I think if I played that over and over and over again, the dead money at the beginning that tends to fall out will make up for the rake in the event. 
and I can hold my own against the other good players, but I don't have much of an edge against them. And in fact, there's probably a few who are better than me. So at that event, the 10K limit hold'em, I can hold my own there, but there's a lot of variance to it. And there's only one per year. So even that, I started having hesitation about if I want to continue playing it. And it's been maddening me. It seems like every year I start off as like the chip leader or the second chip leader by midday one, and then I chunk it off and just run super bad, which is the way it's fallen. But it's, it's been irritating like year after year after year that happens. And I did get far in it in 08 and also in 13. But ever since then, I, I've struggled in that event. I was the bubble boy, the Stone Cold bubble boy of the event in 12, which is annoying. Uh, I played the 10K 08 event, which I thought was quite good. But I think that was just the table draw I got. It was like me, David Baker, obviously is good. I'm talking about the older David Baker, ODB. Uh, so he's good, but then uh, everybody else at the table was terrible. <laughs> I don't know how that happened at a 10K event. However, uh, both me and David Baker were among the first ones out at the table. We just both ran really bad. Anyway, the remaining events though like i i don't i mean to be 30 percent favorite in the, in the against those fields is very tough i don't know who is a favorite at a lot of these so i'd have to go on the no side of these now the main event is kind of the one wild card here because the main event can make up for a bad performance in the other events because the prize pool is so much bigger that's the one little trick here to this bet when I say trick, I don't mean anything unethical, just something you may not think of. If you could eliminate the main event and just bet on these other 11 combined, then I would definitely go with the no side. The problem here is Mike could brick every single one of these. And then, well, let's say, let's say, let's make it simple. There's 12 listed, including the main event. So let's say he played nine of those 11 that were not the main event and then played the main event for a total of 10 events. So that makes 100000 worth of buy-ins. Well, if he were to cash 130k in the main event, then that would make him profitable at 30%, or I guess 130k plus $1. Uh, 130000 and $1, if he cashed that or more, then the yes would win, even if he were 0 for 9 in the other events. So uh, because there's a lot of ways to do that, without having to win or even come that close to outright winning in the main event. You can kind of just survive to that. I'm not saying that he'd be trying to survive, but that you don't have to really be crushing it to end up cashing 130k in the main event. And I know this because I have gotten deep twice. Neither time did I cash 130k, but neither time was I that far from cashing 130k, and I shall say that neither time was I crushing. Both times I was kind of just there. Both times I was kind of just uh, holding on. One of the times I was short stacked most of the way. Uh, the other time, you know, 19, I was not short stacked until uh, day five, but uh, I was kind of surfing the wave of. Uh, above average to average, but I, I only for short periods of time was I ever like a good deal ahead of average. So there's nothing wrong with that strategy. There's nothing wrong with playing that way. In fact, uh, a conservative style is correct, in my opinion, in the main event because of the way it plays. But uh, what I'm saying here is that uh, you can have a conservative style with a few little tweaks to it so you can get some additional chips and... Uh, 
just kind of cruise your way to 130k cash without ever really crushing it. I'm not saying it's easy to do. Otherwise, I would have done it by now. But I'm just saying that uh, that's the one problem here is that if, if Mattisau just kind of cruised there with kind of like a short middle-ish stack for a long time and cashed uh, over 130k in the main and, and sucked big time in the other events, uh, he would actually get the yes side of this bet. And that's not what people would really be picturing. So that one is so different from the other events where to cash big, you really have to do well. Every single one of these others. These are small field events. These don't get more than 120 people typically, and often less than 100. So to cash a lot in these 10Ks with such a small field, you really have to get deep. The main event is different. So I, I think the main event should actually be dropped out of this. I don't think that's a fair thing to put in there because it's like uh, apples and oranges. It's just throwing in something that could really change the entire complexion of the bet. Definitely I'm going on the no side with the main event absent. With the main event there, uh, that becomes a tough one. Also, all he has to do is hit one of these deep into the final table and it'll already start getting close. Like, I, it, it'd be pretty deep at the final table, like second, but still. He's getting a lot of tries at small field events. There's a lot of variance to this here, especially with the main event in there. So that's probably why you're seeing this uh, yes-no that is fairly even. I think the no side is the better bet, even with the minus 115. But it's interesting. It's an interesting bet being proposed. I have not bet on it at all. So uh, I don't feel he's worth 1.5 on any of these events, except maybe the main. Everything else... There's no chance he's worth uh, 50% markup. But uh, he does have five of them, including the main event at 1.5. So I do think that's high. But look, Mattisau has been honest with people over the years that he does not manage money well, that he's a degenerate, that he's always chunking it off, that he's always struggling financially that he has to keep building back up from zero, that he's had sports betting issues and other problems where he loses the money he wins in poker. There's no question that Mike Mattisau is a very good poker player. And I do believe he's probably competitive at a lot of these, or maybe all of these events. But is it worth uh, 1.5? Except for the main event, I'd say definitely no. And even at some of these, 1.3 is very questionable. As I said, I would definitely go on the no side if you take out the main. There's no question. Now, you're not betting on whether he's worth 1.5. You're only betting if he's worth 1.3. But I've not even commented on Twitter about this whole thing. And I'm pretty opinionated on Twitter, but I, I've not even commented on Twitter on this whole thing because I'm so sick of the markup debate. I'm only covering it because of this different angle that... Uh, Mattisau is bringing here where you can bet on whether you can cover 1.3 at the 10K events. A Twitter user named Atari Robbie, exactly as it sounds, Atari Robbie, he made a spreadsheet showing how Mattisau has done at the 10Ks from, uh, I guess, from uh, 2016, or is it 16 or 2012? He, said, he wrote 2012, but then uh, 
I've only seen 2016 to 19, so I'm not sure what he did here. But he put together a spreadsheet, at least from 16 to 19, of how he did in the 10K events. Because uh, presumably uh, you can find who entered these events somewhere. I don't know how, but he uh, he found some maybe Mattis was on some staking sites. But uh, what he did find is in these uh, 51... 10K events. Actually, I think I think it does. It is uh, 2012 through 19. It's 51 events. I only see 31 listed here, but 51 events, and it shows that he entered uh, 51 events for a total of $510,000 in buy-ins and cashed $394,610. And this includes the main, by the way. So that put him in the hole. For $115,390. That's for the 10K events only, not for the ones above 10K or below 10K. So in this eight-year period, according to Atari Robbie, Mattisau is down about 115K in 510K in buy-ins. And he's showing that here he clearly wasn't worth 30% markup. He wasn't even worth zero markup because he lost. But there is a lot of variance in these. I do see that he got uh, fourth place at 10K Stud 8 in 2019 for 116000 And uh, there were some other ones where he did well. He also broke it down by game type. That's interesting. Now, again, a lot of variance to this. But he's up in 08, which is uh, he's up about 46K. And he's way up in Stud 8. So I guess he's good at stud eight. He's he's up uh, 327k in that. So he's done very well in stud eight. But just about everything else, he's down. That's a chart for the events, all the ones he's been entering. So I guess he's been profitable overall, but not in the 10k events. But he's not like way profitable. It looks like he's about oh like 15% profitable. If you put everything together, should you pay 1.3 to 1.5? Markup on Mike Mattisau? Probably not, except it may be some individual events. But he has a right to sell it, and I really don't uh, hold it against anybody. Tony Dunst came at uh, Mike Mattisau in their exchange. He wrote, You're a nice guy, and I've always liked you, Mike. I just don't think you're beating high stakes anymore. Nothing personal. Mike says back, the thing, you've never played one hand with me, so how can you spew nonsense? You've never even seen me play one hand of any game in your life. I've always rooted for you, understand you have a big platform now and should watch the things you say. Don't try and hurt poker, try and help it. <laughs> I don't know how Mike thinks this is hurting poker. And then he wrote later, he meaning Mike, after never blocking one person in Twitter in my life, today I blocked 10. I'm fucking done with haters with zero class. Good luck all, have a good night. Hashtag positivity. So Mike got tired of the naysayers and blocked 10 people. Phil Helmuth wrote, Not sure how I'm getting sucked into Twitter battles, but I consider myself a truth teller. And for the record, Mike Mattisau won 30 out of 31 times I had a piece of him from 2015 to 2019 in high-stakes cash games. Hashtag truth. I don't know if that's true, but whatever. Jay Jami, a user on the forum, he posted... If you look at the WSOP results that were posted, he's pretty good at limit events, not so much at pot limit and no limit. Yeah, there's no question he's a better limit player than no limit and pot limit player. Though I think in no limit hold'em, he's pretty good too. I, th- I think the non 
no limit hold'em events that are pot limit and no limit, I think he's not that good. And I think at the limit events, he is very good. And I think at no limit hold'em, he's very good. That's I'd agree with that. I think if you could just limit where you're buying pieces of him to no limit hold'em and the other limit events that you'd probably do pretty well. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. You can text me on that. Got a text from Positive Variance from the forum. He wrote, Druff, I believe Andy took down his video blasting Savage, not because she agreed to pay him the 16K, but she may have been threatened to go to the authorities over the raked home games. Great show today, by the way. I didn't think of that, but you might be right. You might be right. That that actually is a threat that could hold water because it is illegal to run those home games with a rake. Without a rake, it's not illegal. With a rake, yes, that uh, she could have said, oh, you know what, I'm going to the police about your home game that uh, you were part of and promoting that had a, a rake and he may have, may have said, oh, shit. <laughs> so, that's an additional complication I didn't think of. Now, again, she is claiming there is a rake at the home game. I do not have verification there is a rake at the home game. And the two she was actually at had no rake. But it was the third home game, she's saying, did have a rake and she declined to go there. Here's a text from somebody unrelated to all this, but what the hell, we'll discuss it. My local supermarkets offer a free grocery item weekly. I've never once found the free item once I get to the stores. I have a feeling they're doing this just to get people in the store to spend on other stuff. What can I do about this? They market the hell out of the free item in email and the app to those who have signed up for their card. That's a good question. I would ask them, do they have a substitute item? Uh, Albertsons and stores like Albertsons, such as Safeway and there's a bunch of others that are all affiliated when you win money in their Monopoly game that they offer every year, not winning money, if you win a prize in their Monopoly game and then you go to get the prize, I'm talking like a grocery prize, like let's say you win a free uh, cereal or a free cheese or whatever, and then whatever you're going to get, it's often out because a bunch of people are also going there to get the free item and they run out very fast. So their policy is if they cannot find the specific free item you've won, you get the closest comp to it. And you'll even get a comp to it if it's bigger. So like let's say you win a uh, 16-ounce size of uh, cottage cheese. If they don't have 16-ounce, they only have 8 and 32. They'll give you the 32. They won't just say, well, tough luck, you have to take the 8. Or you can't get anything, they'll actually give you the 32. But you can't have the 32 if they have 16. And you can't have the 32 if there's a 16 of a different brand that's similar to it. But... They will first see if they can give you a different brand, and then second, give you a bigger size if that's available. So that's what they do at these uh, stores like Albertsons and Safeway. This supermarket, I don't know, and if it's just a a local one that isn't a major chain, then they may be less generous with this. But what you should do, do is first ask them, can I have a substitute item? And second, if they won't, say, I'd like a rain check. If they say they won't give you either, um, even if it's in their terms that while supplies last, you may have a claim against them. And then because I'm not an attorney, I can't tell you this for sure, and I also don't know what state you're in. And that, Well, you, you have a California area code, so presumably it's California. But, uh, but I don't even know California law as far as this goes. I know they have to honor all posted prices. So if they 
have a if they have an advertisement for something at a certain price and you get there and it's a different price, they have to honor the advertised price. Unless it's something egregiously wrong, like if it's an article, if it's an item that normally goes for a hundred bucks and it says one dollar, they don't have to honor the one dollar. But if they put it's uh, fifty dollars and then you get there and they want you to pay a hundred, you can force them to give it to you for fifty. But as far as a free item, and if it says while supplies last, I don't know how much they are required to actually carry that item. Like, could they theoretically just carry one of it? and say, okay, tough luck, we've run out. I would think at some point this would qualify for deceptive business practices, even if they're not doing it on purpose, if they're just simply very much understocking what they're giving away for free and then people come down there, I think there could probably be some kind of class action against them. And I'd probably tell them that. Sometimes you could just say this stuff and they won't know the difference if you're right or not. And, uh, they will sometimes back down. So if you just say this is illegal, there could be a class action lawsuit about this. I wouldn't start with this. I wouldn't start with illegal threats. I would start with saying that uh, every time I come down, this is never here, and this isn't fair. If, if you don't have enough of the item, don't give so much away. Or just don't do this giveaway at all. Like You, you can't get people down here and, and barely have any of the item to give away. It's not fair to anybody. Or at least post hours or something where people can have an expectation whether it'll be there or not. But I would ask them, can I have something similar? And secondarily, could you have a rain check to get it when they do have the item in? And if they say no, I, I would try to raise an issue. And I would do this with a general manager, by the way. Don't do this with like a checker or somebody who doesn't have any power there. I would do this with uh, whoever is a real manager, not, not the manager on Saturday night at 9 p.m., but, but the manager that you'll find on, on Monday at 2 p.m. That's what I would suggest. Okay, so moving on. We're going to talk about this situation with the uh, safety deposit boxes. You know what? I never know if it's safe deposit or safety deposit. I've been corrected before. I like to say safety deposit boxes, but then I've heard it's safe deposit, and I've actually been corrected by very pedantic people who have approached me about it with an air of superiority, like I'm saying it wrong. But then when I've Googled it, I've seen that it's interchangeable, and you can use either one. So I'm just going to say safety deposit boxes, whatever. I actually wrote safe deposit box on the agenda, but whatever. There are safety deposit boxes that are affiliated with a bank-like business, meaning either a bank itself or something that uh, can operate like a bank in some ways, including poker rooms. Like I, you can have a safety deposit box at a poker room or a casino, and it operates the same way a bank would operate one. So there you have to give your social security number. Uh, there it is under all kinds of government regulations. And uh, those I would generally trust. The ones that I would not trust are the private ones. So there are private safety deposit boxes that you can go down and deposit in without even giving ID. There was an infamous one in Vegas that advertised all the time on billboards and on TV in the 2000s and even before that. And it was run by a really old guy who's now dead. And it was advertising, no ID required, store anything here. We don't ask questions. And people loved it because they could hide assets at these safety deposit boxes. You could access it 24-7, unlike a bank. Now, a casino, you can access 24-7 also. But uh, a bank, of course, you, have, you can only access during bank hours. 
at this safety deposit business in uh, Vegas, you didn't have to give any information. And you would get like a number, and they claimed they had all these state-of-the-art security measures. And uh, people loved it because it was anonymous, and they could hide assets, and they didn't have to worry about the IRS, and they could hide money or other assets if they're planning to get a divorce and they didn't want their wife taking half of it or their husband taking half of it. So a lot of people, including some very shady people, were using those boxes. Other people, including poker players, were using these boxes because they felt, hey, if the IRS ever suspects that I'm underreporting my winnings, well, they'll never be able to find this cash I have stored there. Ha ha ha. Well, the final laugh was on them because the place was robbed twice. And shock upon shocks, it was an inside job both times. And shock upon shocks, the state-of-the-art security measures that were claimed were fake. They didn't exist. It was all a bunch of bullshittery that was claimed by an old man on TV. But none of this stuff was true. And he hired trashy people working for low wages to man the place 24-7. And eventually, uh, some of these trashy people decided, hey, why are we working for these low wages? We can stage a robbery that will look like we weren't involved with it. They didn't get away with it, but uh, some stuff was never recovered. And uh, eventually the business shut down and eventually the guy died shortly after. He was very old. Not the ones who who staged the robbery and stole from it, but uh, the owner of it died. So this place doesn't exist anymore. I remember seeing billboards of this business when I drove around Vegas and all I could think when I saw those billboards was absolutely not. I don't trust this thing. And exactly what happened was what I was afraid of. I was afraid that it was going to be robbed. <laughs> that either robbed by someone affiliated with a place or not affiliated. I just didn't trust it for so many reasons. So I said, no chance am I going to use this thing. But others found it appealing and they paid for it, literally. Well, there's been another calamity at a safety deposit place that is private in nature, except this calamity was not at the hands of criminals. It was at the hands of the U.S. government. It was at the hands of the FBI. This was a uh, legal seizure of assets of these boxes. And this has caused some controversy. It's one thing if a criminal breaks in and uh, or, or if employees help criminals break in. But it's another thing if there is a government action. And what about the people who weren't doing anything wrong? What about the people who just felt like using a private box or uh, wanted 24-7 access to it and didn't want to have to deal with bank hours. Like There's going to be reasons you'd want to have your assets in such a box and where you're not really doing anything wrong or illegal. So just using one of these places is not something that's illegal, but there's still controversy about this. So this occurred in Beverly Hills and the FBI claimed that it was mostly criminals' money that they seized. In this article, it says, after the FBI seized Joseph Rees' life savings during a raid on the safe deposit business in Beverly Hills, the unemployed chef went to court to retrieve his $57,000. 
A judge ordered the government to tell Ruiz why it was trying to confiscate his money. It came from drug trafficking, an FBI agent responded in court papers. Ruiz's income was too low for him to have that much money, and his side business selling bongs, <laughs> selling bongs, made from liquor bottles, <laughs> suggested he was an unlicensed pot dealer, the agent wrote. The FBI also said a dog had smelled unspecified drugs on Ruiz's cash. The FBI was wrong. When Ruiz produced records showing the source of his money was legitimate, the government dropped its false accusation and returned the money. Interesting. Yeah, before I read that next part, I really thought that he probably was a down-low drug dealer. Ruiz is one of roughly 800 people whose money and valuables the FBI seized from safe deposit boxes they rented at U.S. private vaults in a strip mall on Olympic Boulevard in Beverly Hills. Federal agents had suspected for years that criminals were stashing loot there, and they assert that's exactly what they found. The government is trying to confiscate $86 million in cash and a stockpile of jewelry, rare coins, and precious metals taken from about half the boxes. Can you believe that? $86 million in cash was seized. That shows you what could be netted if one of these places is robbed. That's a, yeah, that by itself. Like, Imagine if the owner of this type of place has a plan to just run it seemingly legitimately for a while and then just one night drill open every single box, steal all the money, and hop on a plane that you already have a ticket for, out of the country to a place where you can't be extradited and land with $86 million. Could you see that happening? I could. It's not what happened here, but I could see it happening. The article goes on to say, but six months after the raid, the FBI and U.S. Attorney's Office in Los Angeles have produced no evidence of criminal wrongdoing by the vast majority of box holders whose belongings the government is trying to keep. About 300 of the box holders are contesting the attempted confiscation. Ruiz and 65 others have filed court claims saying the dragnet forfeiture operation is unconstitutional. It was a complete violation of my privacy, Ruiz said. They tried to discredit my character. Prosecutors so far have outlined past criminal convictions or pending charges against 11 box holders to justify the forfeitures, but in several other cases, court records show the government's rationale for claiming the money and property it seized was tied to a crime is no stronger than it was against Ruiz. Federal agents say that the use of rubber bands and other ordinary methods of storing cash were indications of drug trafficking or money laundering. Uh-oh. I use rubber bands. Oh, boy. <laughs> They better not uh, seize my card room boxes. They're going to find plenty of rubber bands. Oh, no. But seriously, guys, I, I want it and live it, hold them. Believe me. So I, I see what's going on here. There probably were a number of actual criminals where the government had sufficient evidence that criminals were storing their ill-gotten gains in those boxes. That's probably what led them to this place. I I don't think the FBI just raided this place randomly. I think they eventually connected this place to a number of drug dealers or other criminals that were storing their assets there. And they decided just to raid the whole thing because there's just too many drug dealers that are using this place to store their cash and they're tired of it. So I, I have a feeling that's what happened. And they were mainly targeting these 11 people. But then they found a lot of boxes with cash in them and upon a loose investigation of these people like this Ruiz guy they go ah yeah this doesn't make sense this guy is a chef he's not even employed right now it doesn't make sense why he has 57,000 cash and why he's storing it at a place like this why isn't it in a bank and uh, where's he even getting this money so look we believe that he's got to be a drug dealer especially because his 
business has to do with selling bongs, so it's not a big stretch to think he's also selling pot along with those bongs. So they believed he was a drug dealer and thought they could justify it. However, they probably didn't do much investigation into him, especially since it was only 57K, and they were probably after the big fish over there. So they probably loosely attempted to claim that's what he was doing, and then he presented receipts that he really did sell that many bongs. <laughs> They're like, okay, well, shit, okay, well, uh, I guess we're fucked here. So then the court awarded the 57000 back to Ruiz. However, he probably had to waste a good deal of that fighting it in court on attorneys. I doubt he uh, did this on his own. So he's probably losing back some of that to attorney's fees. So it looks like, to me, that this is something where the government is seizing first and asking questions later, which is yet another reason not to use a private safety deposit box visit a business like this. There are so many things that can happen. Inside job robbery, outside job robbery, government seizure, even if he didn't do anything wrong. See, this doesn't happen at banks. They're not going to open up every single safety deposit box at a bank and say, okay, prove this money is legit. They don't do that. I've never seen that happen once. But they will come to places like these, especially because these places do not collect a lot of information or any information. In this article, it says, they also cite dogs alerting the scent of narcotics on most of the cash as key evidence, but the government says it deposited all of the money it sees in a bank, making it impossible to test which drugs may have come into contact with which bills and how long ago. Yeah. Another problem is you may be using a box that was previously used by someone who had stored something related to drugs there, and then that sense could end up on your cash. There's a lot of ways it could happen. U.S. Private Vault was indicted in February on charges of conspiring with unnamed customers to sell drugs, launder money, and structure cash transactions to dodge government detection. No people were charged. That's interesting. They're only charging the business. The criminal case has been dormant since then, with no attorney or other representative of U.S. private vaults appearing in court to enter a plea. A spokesman for the U.S. Attorney's Office in L.A. declined to comment on why the case appears to have stalled. That is weird. I think this is like a combination of a legitimate seizure, and then they also hit a bunch of people who were innocent, but got just swept up in the whole thing. Looks like uh, some collateral damage here. And that is why you do not store anything in a place like this. Now, this kind of falls into the under the banner of uh, civil forfeiture. In fact, it is a civil forfeiture. Most civil forfeitures that we've been discussing have been ones that occur on the road, where someone's driving with a bunch of cash, they get pulled over, often because they have out-of-state plates, or they were even tipped off that the person might be carrying cash, and uh, they seize the money under extremely flimsy pretenses claiming that it's uh, suspected drug money and then you have to fight the government to get it back. And that's really legalized stealing by the government. And that's really awful. And we discussed one of those recently that occurred on I-80 in northern Nevada. But here is a little bit different because here this is not pulling over cars that you think are carrying cash but probably legitimately got that money. And in those cases they're perverting a law that was meant to seize cash from drug dealers and it's now being perverted for legalized theft from motorists without a state plates by small town governments and small counties. But here it looks like they were probably going after 
actual drug dealers that they had pretty substantial evidence on. And then they're like, oh, well, there's the other, other boxes with cash, too. So, yeah, let's take those, two, Make those people prove that their money's legit. Let's just take it all and leave the burden on the customer to prove that they got their money legitimately, which can be hard. It can be hard. Take a poker player, for example. I don't know if any poker players were caught up in this, but take a poker player. How do you prove you won money in cash games? There's no receipts for this. There's no proof of this. So how do you do it? You say, I won money playing cash at Commerce. How do you prove it? The problem is you often have to uh, prove that you got the money legitimately. And if you can't, then you lose the case. So it's very bad. Some of the lawyers for the box holders say the government's entire operation is a, quote, money grab to acquire tens of millions of dollars for the DOJ through forfeiture. I'd agree with that. The DOJ loves to acquire money through forfeiture. They, in fact, brag about it. That's something that each head of every particular uh, U.S. attorney's office will use as a metric to show how effective he is. The more money they seize from, quote, criminal organizations, the better job they can claim they're doing because they're getting money for the government and taking it from criminals. That sounds great, right? Except sometimes they're not taking it from criminals, which is horrible. So they've got to be very careful that every dollar they take really came from criminals and did not come from innocent people and does not burden innocent people with having to prove their own innocence to get their own money back. It should not work that way. I have no issue with forfeitures where there's a lot of evidence that the money was acquired through illegal means. And that's originally what civil forfeiture was supposed to do, but it's been twisted and perverted so badly in the decades since it was first authorized to be done in the early 80s that it just needs to be thrown away or completely reformed because it has turned into legalized theft. So this one, while not quite as bad as the ones that occur on the road, which are just about all theft, this looks like partial theft and partial legit. I think 11 of those seizures were justified and the rest were not. Even some of them, which probably included some illegally acquired money, but the government had no proof of it. So the government can't just say, "Ah, uh, yeah, we think you probably got that money in a way you shouldn't, so we're taking it. Because there's some ways where you just can't prove it, even if it was acquired legitimately. Like, for example, playing poker cash games. So just because you can't prove where the money came from doesn't mean you shouldn't have a right to keep it or the government should seize it. The government should have a case. They should have evidence that you have acquired the money illegally, not just say, wait a minute, how did you get it? This doesn't make sense. It should be, we know you got it illegally because of this, this, and that, and we can prove it in a court of law. So I have a feeling on those 11, they probably can prove it. Everything else, they probably can't. And hopefully everybody gets their money back. At least everybody in that category that doesn't uh, fall in those 11 people. There was evidence on one of the seizures. It was actually money that was uh, stolen in armed robberies of cell phone stores. And uh, that it was a box owned by two brothers. And that one of the brothers was a robber of the cell phone stores. 
their lawyer said that it's an appalling and unconstitutional abuse of power. But uh, I have to say things like that. If there if there's a guy that you have a lot of evidence was robbing cell phone stores, then you find he's connected to a box with a lot of cash in it. Uh, I don't have a problem with a seizure like that. But just randomly seizing money and then demanding that people prove they got it legitimately is crappy. The whole rubber bands thing is kind of funny, too. (laughs) Why does it matter if there's rubber bands on it? Why does it matter how they're wrapping the cash? Like, I really do have rubber bands on some of my cash. Not all of my cash, but some of my cash in these boxes has rubber bands on it. I don't like seizures like this. I don't like any seizure that nails a bunch of innocent people at the same time it's hitting guilty ones. The way this should have been done is whoever they had evidence against, they should have gone in, seized from those boxes, and put everything else back. But don't ever use one of those vaults. It may be tempting. You may say, I don't want the IRS knowing about my cash, or I don't want my ex-wife or my soon-to-be ex-wife to know I have this money. And There could be all kinds of reasons in your head why you may want to use a box like that. But don't. Because this is not uncommon. This is not unlikely. At some point, if you leave the money there long enough, there's a good chance something will happen to it. All right, moving on to the next topic. Something happened at Mount Charleston since this last show, between then and now, and I think you guys should know about it. The Mount Charleston Lodge is a place that is really the best known, I shall say, it, it was the best known place to stay in Mount Charleston. I always talk about the Mount Charleston line. Mount Charleston, as I always like to say at the beginning of the show, is a mountain near Las Vegas. You can ski on it during the winter. You can hike there during the summer, or even the winter if you dare. I think it's about 8,000 feet. It does get snow, obviously. It has a very different climate and look than Las Vegas, even though it's only about 40 minutes away by car. I suggest Mount Charleston as a place to go if you have a car in Vegas and just want to go to something different. If you get tired of the strip, if you get tired of the casino scene, if you get tired of the desert scenery around you, you want to go to the mountains for a day, that's a place to go. If you want to get away from the heat in the summer, it's always like 30 degrees cooler or more at Mount Charleston compared to Las Vegas. A lot of people don't even know it exists. A lot of people do not picture a mountain like that near Vegas. And once you get there, you're very surprised to see it doesn't look desert-like at all. It looks like any kind of mountain that you would picture in the West with a lot of uh, pine trees, with snow in the winter, with mountains surrounding you, some interesting mountain scenery. It's a nice place to go. There's not a lot of lodging around there, and now there's even less because the Mount Charleston Lodge burnt down from a fire. A lot of people around Vegas were sad about this. A lot of people in Vegas identify with Mount Charleston as almost being like part of home, even though they don't actually live there. It's uh, something that is near to a lot of people's hearts if they're Vegas locals. It burnt down and was a total loss. There is no more Mount Charleston Lodge. It completely burnt to the ground. There were videos of the fire on Twitter, and it looked pretty bad. And sure enough, the lodge burnt to where it was unrecoverable. So uh, 
it would have to be completely rebuilt. It's called a historic lodge because it's been around for a very long time, but it actually has burnt down once before. Mount Charleston's lodge also burnt down in 1961 and was rebuilt. So that makes it a little bit less sad. A lot of people thought that this lodge, which has been around for uh, a very long time, was something that was a very old historic building that uh, you can never get back even if you rebuild. But the truth is this is something that was rebuilt in 1961 after the a previous fire that did something very similar. I'm not sure about the cause of the fire. In fact, uh, as of two days ago, the cause was ruled undetermined. However, Clark County Fire ruled it as accidental, so it's not thought to be arson, and that's good. It's good that nobody did this on purpose. Assistant Fire Chief Larry Haidu said the fire started in a storage room under the patio deck at the lodge, and originally it was thought it started in the dining room, but it did not. The fire department thinks it was electrical or mechanical, but they are not able to tell what, and it was such a bad fire, everything so burnt so badly, they can't even tell where it started. The fire department said, the Clark County Fire Department's Fire Investigation Division was able to determine that the fire began in the storage areas of the lodge, which were positioned under the outdoor dining deck. A number of potential causes for the fire were identified within this area of origin. These include a number of different electrical and mechanical items. Due to the extent of the fire damage to this area, each of these items could not be eliminated to whether they caused the fire or not. Due to having multiple potential causes of the fire remaining, the exact cause of the fire is undetermined at this time. That said, there is no indication thus far that this was an intentional act. This happened in the middle of the night on September 17th at 4.45 a.m. So it's completely dark, even though some people would consider that morning. It's completely dark at 4.45. And uh, the fire was, quote, fully involved. So it was a big fire by that point at 4.45. And uh, there were five city engines, two city trucks, three city rescues, two city battalion chiefs, and then two engines from Mount Charleston. The city ones were from Vegas, and the two engines from Mount Charleston were there locally. So a lot of firefighters came there. Even though there was no wind, they could not put the fire out before it consumed the structure. However, since there was no wind, it did not burn anything else in Mount Charleston. It didn't burn uh, the trees or any of the properties in the surrounding area called Kyle Canyon. And uh, it didn't burn anything else in the Spring Mountains National Recreational Area, which is what uh, Mount Charleston is part of. The lodge completely burned down, and that includes the cabins that were part of the lodge. The lodge is actually owned by Ellis Island. Yes, that Ellis Island, not the one where people came into the U.S., but uh, the Ellis Island in Vegas. The Ellis Island Casino, They that same company owns Mount Charleston Lodge. They have said that they're going to rebuild it. So it's going to be rebuilt a second time. Guess you got to watch out for those years ending with one because it burnt down in 61 and in 21. So I guess in uh, 2081, expect another fire. I have a feeling that I will not be reporting on that one, on the fire in 2081. That would be uh, maybe Benjamin's son. I think even Benjamin might be too old 
to report it by then. He'd be over 70 at that time. I don't think I'll be alive in 2081. I hope I am, but uh, it's going to be a tough... It's, it's going to be pretty tough to make it to 109. In fact, I'm pretty sure no man my height has ever made it to 109. That's pretty steep odds against me here. The Mount Charleston Lodge has an A-frame, or should I say had an A-frame, with a 20-foot loft ceiling and high windows, and it was at elevation 7,700 in the Kyle Canyon area. As I said, there were cabins surrounding it. It had a, uh, a restaurant, and you could stay there. But this is all gone, and it will have to be rebuilt. I have never stayed there before. When I heard about this fire, not only did I hope that the lodge could be rescued, but at the time I didn't know it had burnt down before. I really thought it was like an old historic building getting burnt down. So that was the only silver lining to all this, that it was only a 60-year-old building on like something much older. But I was worried for a certain rotary phone, which wasn't too far from there. I was afraid that I would hear that the fire spread and that my rotary phone, my beloved uh, rotary phone and the cabin housing it would also be burnt to the ground. That would come there and find a depressing hulk of wires and plastic. These phones from the 70s are pretty sturdy. I don't know if you guys are old enough. I know some of you are, some of you older than me, but uh, some of you aren't. Some of you may not remember the way rotary phones in the 1970s and 80s looked, but you would usually rent these from the phone company, and they were very big and heavy and sturdy. And you didn't plug them in. You plugged them into a phone jack, but they were not powered by anything but the phone jack itself. So you could actually use these phones in a power failure. The power could completely be out, and you could still use the phone. In fact, I used to do that during power failures in the 80s when they would occur. But the old 70s rotary phone, which I've posted a picture of before, which sits in a cabin in Mount Charleston, it is okay, as is the cabin. Strangely enough, I was more worried about the phone. As soon as I saw that fire, I'm like, oh no, my phone. I was able to confirm that the phone was okay pretty quickly. I didn't have to go there to see it. I have a way to check on it otherwise, but... uh, the phone was okay. The Mount Charleston line still works. 702-430-1808. It's a phone number I've had for a long time. But the Mount Charleston Lodge is not okay. Now, is there any other place you can stay at Mount Charleston? Yes, but there are not many places. There is something called the Retreat at Charleston Peak which is not the same thing as the Mount Charleston Lodge. They are about a 1,000 feet lower. It says, We are an elegant rustic lodge elevated 6,700 feet in the Kyle Canyon and located 45 minutes away from Las Vegas Strip. So that still exists. You can still stay at the retreat at Charleston Peak, which looks like a uh, newer property. I have never stayed there either. But... uh, That still exists if you wish to stay at Mount Charleston. There's also a campground called the Hilltop Campground, but of course it's not a hotel. I don't think there's anything else. 
I think it was just those two, plus the campground. Not many places to stay. There may be some Airbnb type places. There's a lot of people who buy houses in the Mount Charleston area as vacation homes and then barely use them and then will sometimes rent them out through Airbnb. So you can probably do that too, but I've never looked into it. Mount Charleston also is a good day trip. And that's what I recommend. I mean, there's nothing wrong with staying there, though your options are now much less, but it's been cut in half. But a day trip to Mount Charleston is very feasible if you're staying in Vegas because it's only 40, 45 minutes away by car. And you can explore the area depending on what time of year. You can drive around. There's two basic areas of Mount Charleston where you're going to want to go. Uh, there's the area you'll approach first, which has less to do. And then you can wind up the mountain towards the area where the ski resort is. And uh, you'll pass a lot of things along the way that you can stop at. You have some scenic views. Uh, There's hiking trails you can find in in both areas I'm describing. Uh, The Lee Canyon area is where the ski resort is. And that will eventually dead end. That's where I'm talking about winding up, and that's where you get you go higher up. It can be quite cold in the winter, depending upon the weather. On New Year's in 2019, I was with my family in Vegas, and I was planning on New Year's Day to go to Mount Charleston, take the family there and sled Mount Charleston. But I saw that the weather at Mount Charleston was... Zero point zero. Yeah, it was actually zero. It was actually zero degrees there. I, saw, I said, nope, never mind. I and mean, that's not common. It was an unusually cold day. But at New Year's in 2019, when I was looking to go there, I looked at the weather and actually said zero. So I did not go. But usually in the winter, depending on where you go at Mount Charleston, if you go to the upper elevations, it tends to be in the 20s. If you go to the lower elevations in the 30s, sometimes it can be warmer, sometimes colder. Usually if you subtract 30 degrees from what it is in Vegas, that's usually around what it is in Mount Charleston. Not always, but that's a good rough way to estimate estimate what it's going to be there. There are snow play areas in the winter. Some of them do get crowded, but there's a number of places you can stop so you can find somewhere that's a little more out of the way and not uh, not as many people. Better to go on the weekdays than the weekends for obvious reasons. And always check road conditions because sometimes they will cr- close the road to Mount Charleston, either because there's too many people coming into the area or because snow is blocking the road. So don't drive all the way there and be turned back. You will be pissed off. So you don't need a place to stay if you want to visit Mount Charleston. Definitely a different type of place to go for the day. I will say that if you live in an area with a lot of mountains, it's not going to be that exciting to you. So for example, if you live close to Lake Tahoe and you take a lot of trips to Tahoe, you're not going to be that excited about Mount Charleston because it's not that different from Tahoe. Uh, there's some different views from there, but aside from that, you know, it's just mountain scenery. You're not going to be wowed by it, so you may not want to waste your time. However, if you're from an area where you're not particularly close to mountains or you don't go to mountains that often, uh, you'll probably like it, at least for a day. Okay, that's the end of my Mount Charleston plug. They should really pay me for this. They, the Chamber of Commerce should pay me. At least, at least give me a free hotel room at the one remaining resort there that hasn't burnt down yet. It is not clear when Mount Charleston Lodge will be rebuilt. But the owner, Ellis Island, said 
they will rebuild it. And I believe them. In fact, it probably was lucrative. I assume they had insurance, too. Station Casinos has been disciplined for taking illegal sports bets over the past three years. Now, when I say taking illegal sports bets, it's not as bad as it sounds. They didn't have a little shady back room where you could bet on events that were illegal to bet on. Uh, These were more mistakes on their part. It was more incompetence than anything that looks like it was on purpose or anything fraudulent. But still, they got in trouble because uh, there's some very strict regulations regarding sports betting in the state of Nevada, and they were violating them. The Nevada Gaming Control Board filed a complaint on September 13th against Station Casinos and Red Rock Casino Resort, which is owned by Station, for taking as many as 348 sports bets after the result of the bets was already known. (laughs) They took 348 bets over time on games that were complete. The alleged violations occurred over a three-year span, one as late as March 2021. Station Casino said it accepted the bets because of computer malfunctions. Because of the known issue, the Nevada Gaming Control Board said the company is responsible for any violations related to the Stadium Live program where these violations occurred. The claim cites four occurrences across three years when the company's sportsbooks took the bets. The Nevada Gaming Control Board issued regulation violation letters to the casino for the first two instances. So these all happened through the Station Casino's Stadium Live app. This is basically an app you can use to legally bet on sports, and all you have to do is be within the state of Nevada. Uh, that This has been legal in Nevada for quite some time, but again, you, you have to be physically standing somewhere in Nevada. You don't have to be at the casino. You can be anywhere. You can be out in the middle of the desert somewhere. As long as you're physically in Nevada, it's legal. These servers for these bets were located in the Red Rock, which is why the Red Rock, which is a station property, is on the hook for this. That's why the Red Rock is being cited here specifically. Anyway, on June 1st, 2018, Red Rock accepted and wrote tickets for 35 sports wagers on five events with known results. On January 9th, 2019, seven months later, Red Rock took 116 events on uh, 116 bets on closed events. Now these were events that were not done yet, but where the betting was closed because the event had already started. So after this occurred, sometime between then and two months later, the Nevada Gaming Control Board became aware of this. I'm not sure how, and they sent a warning to Red Rock and Station Casino saying, "Don't let this happen again." This is very against the law here. And whether you're doing this on purpose or not, and whether the customers gain from it or lose from it, this is against the law in Nevada, and you have to fix your app to not glitch like this in the future. It appears this is not on purpose, but that uh, they can't just say, oh, sorry, it was a bug. Uh, We're not responsible. Nevada Gaming said, yes, you are, but we will allow you to fix this. So go fix it now. And Red Rock presumably said, okay. 
And then two months later, after getting these letters, it happened again. (laughs) So on March 7th, 2019, about two months after the previous one, Red Rock accepted 30 bets on at least three events that were already completed. (laughs) And then, almost exactly two years later, on March 18th, 2021, Red Rock reported a malfunction in the Stadium Live app that caused it to write up to 167 tickets on events that were already finished. The company voided and refunded the bets. So they caught this one, but they had already written tickets on these games, and even though they completely voided the bets, they still had uh, committed a violation here by letting it happen in the first place, especially since this problem had been known for at least two years. So Nevada Gaming is pissed off that they let this continue for two more years after that. And Red Rock said, yep, we did. Sorry. (laughs) I guess we did not fix this. The Gaming Control Board suggested that the Gaming Commission fine station casinos for each violation. The Gaming Control Board also asked the Gaming Commission to, quote, take action against respondents' licenses pursuant to the parameters defined in NRS 463.31. It also suggests that Commission pursues other relief it deems just and proper. Hmm. I don't know what that would be, but they want to fine them and perhaps take... uh, action against their license. I don't know what action it would be. Now, this may not be revoking their license. This could be uh, putting them on some kind of probation or basically saying, if this happens one more time, you lose your license, but some kind of uh, regulatory action here beyond just a fine. Now, has this ever happened before at other properties? Answer, yes. CG Technology, which was uh, Cantor Gaming's technology uh, subsidiary. They were accused of accepting bets on finished events and out-of-state mobile wagers, and CG Technology paid a $2 million settlement for this in uh, 2018. They also paid a $7 million settlement for what occurred in 2014 and 2016. CG Technology was eventually acquired by William Hill, which is now part of Caesars, in 2020. So if this story sounds familiar to you, it's because it happened to CG Technology, known as uh, Cantor Gaming, in the past. So now uh, Red Rock is getting their moment in the sun with this. I don't know how this is happening. As someone who's designed software, I don't know why it's so hard to track which events are closed and which are complete and which are not. I don't know if they're getting bad data or what's going on here. It's a weird thing to just occur every so often. It doesn't even sound like they're blaming their data provider. It it sounds like they've just got some kind of bug that occasionally the software flips out and allows people to place bets on completed events. And I have a feeling people are probably doing it to exploit it. I have a feeling people are are probably betting on games they know are done and they know the results already and they hope the casino doesn't catch it. I don't believe you can get in trouble for doing that. You can probably get banned, but you probably can't get in any kind of... uh, legal trouble for being a customer who attempts to bet on such a thing. But I know the casinos, for sure, can get in trouble for offering these bets, even if it's to their detriment. Uh, Cantor Gaming was threatened with a complete license revocation after the 2018 incident, because they had so many violations, including the ones that occurred in previous years. 
There's no word on whether Red Rock has fixed this for sure or if this may happen again in the future. I have to think they're probably going to put more effort into fixing it now once lightning has already struck regarding this matter. So we talked about the Mount Charleston Lodge, and now we have a different lodge we're going to talk about, and that is the Lodge at Hualapai. Very different story. There's no fire, but had there been one, given what I've read about here, I wouldn't have cried very hard, because some pretty bad stuff seems to have gone down there. The Lodge at Hualapai should not be confused with the Hualapai Lodge, which is in Arizona. The Lodge at Hualapai is actually in western Las Vegas and is a bar that is aimed at locals. And a story came out on social media that was pretty unflattering to the Lodge at Hualapai, and it came from a screenshot that was from a Facebook group. So this is actually shared widely on Twitter, including by Vital Vegas. But it was originally posted in a private Facebook group called Vegas Bartenders and Servers, which is a group for people who are Vegas bartenders and servers. And in this group, a man named Edward Parker posted the following. A cautionary last call. Vegas is full of amazing hospitality workers. You folks are the engine that drives this crazy little desert town. Don't let anyone tell you different. I'm honored to have been one of you since moving here in 2005. Loved my time on the Strip, and then my life off Strip. The memories and stories are boundless. I'm truly privileged to have met a lot of you, proud to have worked with some of you, and lucky to call a few of you my friends. So this next part, I'm sure, will evoke all sorts of comments, both good and bad, but I just need to unload this story with the hope that you can all learn from my mistake. Over a four-month period in late 2020, a middle-aged couple robbed nine bars in Las Vegas. I was victim number nine. On December 4th, 2020, at 6.24 a.m., while beginning my end-of-shift report, I was held up at gunpoint at the lodge at Hualapai. Just my luck, shaking my head, it wasn't even my assigned shift. Later that same morning, I had a closed-door meeting with a director of ops named Chris Trout and owner named Stu Apollo without my assistant GM or a GM present. I was then given the choice to pay back the money that was stolen or to, and to keep my job or get fired. True story. They gave the exact same ultimatum to a co-worker who was robbed by the same couple at a different location a month before. That person chose wisely, meaning that they quit. I'm ashamed to say that I was terrified of losing a great-paying job during a chaotic time in America and chose to pay the money back and stay employed. I will regret that choice for years to come. And I really thought it was classy when they asked me about the incident before actually asking me if I was okay. I'll never forget that. My point is that I hope you all stick up for yourselves when your moral and ethical compass is challenged by those in power. Loyalty in the service business is a rare commodity these days on both sides and for good reason, I guess. Makes this whole labor shortage thing a little more understandable, to be honest. Just don't let money make dumb decisions for you like it did to me. As George Jung's dad said in the movie Blow, money isn't real, it doesn't matter, it just seems like it does. And then he posted what looks like a pretty authentic form that was given for him to sign on December 4th, 2020. It says employee name, Edward Parker. It has the Lodge of Hualapai Taverns logo on the top. It says repayment form, date 12-4-2020. 
I, Edward Parker, agreed to repay the robbery loss of $3,937.35 as follows. By $300 equal deductions from paychecks immediately following the pay periods from which this agreement is made until the repayment amount is paid in full. I also agree that if I terminate employment prior to the total repayment of this agreement, I authorize the company to deduct any unpaid advance amount from the wages salary owed to me at the time of termination of employment. If my final paycheck is not sufficient enough to pay the remaining balance, I agree to make lump sum payments of the remaining balance. And then he's supposed to sign it, which he did, and date it, which he did. And then it says approved by supervisor signature and human resources signature, which I, I can't really make out whose signatures they were. And then it says paid in full and someone else's signature. So this is pretty bad. Basically what he's saying and then providing evidence with this form was that the lodge at Hualapai was robbed as part of a serial robbery spree. And the couple that did it was arrested after robbing Lodge of Hualapai. That was the last victim before uh, they were caught. But it was a serial robbery spree. He was the ninth victim of this, and almost $4,000 was stolen from Lodge at Hualapai, which again is a bar, a local's bar in West Las Vegas. And they called him into a closed-door meeting and said, if you want to keep your job, you're going to pay all this back. And he signed an agreement to do so, and then did. And he paid it all back, and I guess now he's leaving the city and decided to just spill his guts about the whole thing on Facebook in this closed group, which then got shared by somebody else, and now Lodge Hualpai is in a lot of hot water because this looks awful. So, is there any chance this isn't true? Well, there's always a chance that something on the internet is fabricated, but I have to say, from my observation of the situation and from looking at that document he presented, it looks pretty damn authentic to me, and I, I think the story is either completely true or mostly true. So, I do believe this happened. I do believe that he paid it back. I do believe that he had nothing to do with this robbery. Now, some more information on the robbery before we go on. The couple who did it was arrested. It was uh, Jack Laughlin, who's 42 years old, and Daniela Tito, 38 years old. They look very methy. If you look at them, they look like uh, they've got a drug problem. Jack McLaughlin has a big neck tattoo. Looks like he may have been in a gang at one point. These were not young people, a 42-year-old, 38-year-old, and they robbed nine different places. There was an article in the Review Journal about them after they were arrested. There was also an article about the robbery at the Lodge of Hualapai when it happened. So this was a real thing, and there's no indication at all that this couple had anything to do with this guy, Edward Parker. It looks like this was just a methy couple who decided to rob places around Vegas and got away with it eight times before finally being caught after the ninth time. I don't know the circumstances which allowed them to be caught the ninth time, but the bottom line is it uh, looks like that they were the guilty parties. I don't know if they've been convicted yet, but it looks like they were the guilty parties. And uh, there were nine different victims of the same couple, including another place that was under the same ownership as Lodge at Hualapai. According to Mr. Parker's story, they tried to hit the bartender at the other place when this couple robbed them, and that bartender just refused and said, okay, you can fire me then, and they fired him. But that Edward, who knew that 
a lot of places were closed down and it was hard to get jobs back then because there just weren't many jobs out there because a lot of places closed. He uh, decided to keep the job because it paid well. This is during the pandemic. And he, even though he's pissed about the $4,000 almost that was being taken from him for something that wasn't his fault at all, you know, a couple robs him at gunpoint and he's got to pay for it. But he did it anyway because he figured it was worth it to keep that job. And now he regrets it and now he wishes that he said no like that other employee did at their other location. I bet the first thing you're wondering if you're not an attorney is, is this legal? Could this possibly be okay? Even if it's not morally okay, as I think we all would agree, is it legally okay? Well, my answer is probably not. So there is a code in Nevada called NAC 608.160, which says the following about withholding amount from wages. Withholding amount from wages due. One, without written authorization of employee, an employer may withhold from the wages due to the employee, A, any amount required by law, meaning like taxes, B, any employee contribution to a benefit program such as health insurance or pension plan as permitted pursuant to NRS 608.110. So basically, standard withholding stuff is fine. And then number two, except as otherwise provided in subsection one, an employer may not deduct any amount from the wages due unless A, the employer has a reasonable basis to believe that an employee is responsible for the amount being deducted by the employer. B, the deduction is for a specific purpose, pay period, and amount. And C, the employee voluntarily authorizes the employer in writing to deduct the amount from the wages. So it has to be all three of these. And not just one of these three, all three of these. Number one, the employer has to have a reasonable belief that the employee should be responsible for what's being deducted. They can't just decide, hey, I'm going to deduct money, even if they can pressure the person to agree to it. They, they have to have a reasonable belief that by law that uh, employee would be responsible. Number two, that it has to be for a specific purpose. They can't just generally uh, deduct money because they feel like paying the person less. And, and also, the employee has to authorize them, which is why he had to sign that form. So does that mean it's legal? Has he signed the form? The employer thought that they had a reasonable basis to do it, and uh, it is for a specific purpose. Well, no. Why? Because it says the employer has to have a reasonable basis to believe the employer is responsible for the amount. Well, would you say that Edward Parker is responsible for a couple that shows up and robs him at gunpoint after having done it to eight bars prior to his? And when it's very clear that he had no connection to the couple and did not know them and did not assist them in any way and only gave up the money because he had a gun in his face? No, obviously he's not responsible because he was being held at gunpoint and his life was in danger if he did not give up that money. So obviously this would not make him legally responsible even though the money was taken while it was his shift. So this is where... Logic Hualapai fails to have this be a valid deduction because 2A is not met. The employer has a reasonable basis to believe the employee is responsible for the amount being deducted. No, they don't. Not here. Because he doesn't owe it. Now, when would he owe it? Well, let me take a few examples. Let's say an employee at a restaurant just has a moment of rage and slams down on purpose a plate of food to the ground. It gets 
angry, pissed off, whatever, and just slams down a plate to the floor out of frustration. And when the employer goes to him and says, hey, did you really just throw that plate down on purpose? And the employer's like, oh, the employee's like, yeah, yeah, sorry. I just freaked out. I'm sorry about that. I Please don't fire me. I'm really sorry about this. I just had a moment. And the employer's like, okay, yeah, but you just destroyed a plate and wasted a bunch of food that we paid for. And it's like, yeah, yeah, I know. So it would be totally valid for the employer to say, okay, you're responsible for the food and the plate you destroyed. So it's worth this much money. Let's say that he destroyed uh, $40 total worth of stuff. And they got him to sign that he's willing to have $40 deducted from the paycheck because he intentionally destroyed food and a dish. Okay, that's completely legal, completely fine, because, of course, this guy was responsible. He intentionally destroyed this food and this plate, and he's agreeing to have it deducted from the paycheck, and it's definitely for a specific purpose, to pay back what he destroyed. So that's where it'd be fine. It could also be considered okay if the employee is very negligent and doesn't do his job, and this uh, results in a loss for the employer. So let's say a guy manning the cash register opens up the register and then just goes and takes a break and doesn't close the register. Not that it accidentally pops back open, but he opens it up and just for whatever reason just doesn't close it and walks off. And then a customer steals from it and runs off. Uh, They might have a case there to show that this guy was very negligent not to close the cash register before walking off and that he should be responsible for what was taken out of the cash register. Provided the employee agrees, yes, I'm responsible, I'll pay for it, then again, this would be a legal deduction here. But here, you cannot possibly say that Edward Parker should be responsible for money stolen during a serial armed robbery. You can't. So this fails. And in fact, not only should he be able to sue them for this uh, 3900 whatever back, I bet he could sue them for further damages. Now, that I don't know what he could collect as far as further damages, but uh, I bet there could be some because this is a pretty blatant and obnoxious violation. Now, you might be wondering, why would any employer do this? How could they be such cold-hearted assholes when an armed robbery occurs to try to charge the bartender who was the victim of the whole thing? He had a gun pointed in his face. His life was in danger. And... He gave up the money, as you'd expect anyone in that spot to do. In fact, if he didn't give up the money, he'd have to fight these people and risk his life. Obviously, that would not be expected of him. Even if it was his own money, it would be stupid to do. So, how could they do this? Why would they do this? Are these like the biggest assholes on the planet? Well, maybe, but there is a reason why they would do this. I'm not saying it's a good reason or a reason I agree with, but here is the likely reason that they are they have this type of thing in place so let's just uh make up a fictitious story here let's say john smith is a bartender at uh, the cheers bar in uh, boston and john smith comes up with a clever idea john's got some buddies who don't have a lot of money and uh would love to eat some uh, free food at the Cheers Bar and have a f- free drink at the Cheers Bar. But uh, he knows that that's not uh, allowed for him to give away because he's not the owner of the Cheers Bar. He's just a, uh, a worker there. So what John Smith does is he tells his friends, okay, come in here. You can order whatever the hell you want. You can order as much food as you want. You can order the expensive drinks to your heart content. 
and then when you're done, just run out, and I won't chase you, or I'll pretend to chase you, and you'll get away, but I promise I'm not going to catch you, and I'm just going to pretend I don't know you. So you'll come in, we'll pretend we're strangers, we'll serve you normally, and you just run out, and I'll pretend I couldn't catch you, and oh well. So John agrees to this, and his friends keep hitting the bar with dine and dashing and drink and dashing, and John keeps telling the ownership of the Cheers bar, hey, I'm sorry, what can I do? A lot of people keep doing this to me, and I, I, I have no idea it's going to happen until they do it, and they sprint off before I can catch them. What can I do? And then one day, the ownership of the Cheers bar, after some suspicion about this, they follow John home when he's not noticing, and they watch him meeting up with those same guys who were seen dashing away. And they go, ah, he was in on it. No wonder he's not catching them and there's so many. Well, in this case, Mr. John Smith would have been committing a crime. And Mr. John Smith would have been screwing his employer. So, the employees, the employers there, the owners of the Cheers Bar, would say, you know what? We're not only going to fire John and report him to the police, we're not going to let this happen again. Since there's no way to tell whether dine and dashers and drink and dashers are people who are associated with the bartender or not associated with the bartender, we're just going to make it to where the bartender is responsible for everybody. And then he'll really put effort to catch these people because he knows it'll come out of his paycheck. Similar to how if your drawer comes up short when you're manning a cash register, you're often held responsible for it. So we're going to hold anyone... I mean, John's been fired by this point. We're going to hold the next bartender to a stricter standard to where anything not paid for will come out of his pocket. So this will make him a lot more vigilant and this will stop him from allowing his friends to do this. And they think they're so clever because they're preventing this problem. But what happens? What about a real dine and dasher or drink and dasher who just runs off? Well, the next bartender who is not doing anything wrong and is not letting his friends do this, but just uh, there's some criminals who just run off without paying. Now that next bartender is stuck paying for it when it's not their fault and there's nothing they could have done to prevent it. Now take this one step further. Let's say beyond just drinking and eating that there are also staged armed robberies where a more daring bartender might allow his friends to come in and, quote, rob him, and then he gives all the money out of the cash register, and then, provided his friends don't get caught, they split the money afterwards. You may think this is far-fetched, but maybe not. Mickey Krim, an older guy who sometimes posts on Poker Fraud Alert, more of a poster on Vegas Casino Talk, where I posted about the story, he said, this story goes back about 34 years to 1987 when I was in Las Vegas for a few weeks. I had befriended someone that, in conversation, told me he was once asked by a Las Vegas bartender to rob him on graveyard shift. The bartender told him there would be, a f- there would be very few customers, told him to go the furthest away from the customers, to lean over the bar and whisper something to him. The bartender would go and get a brown paper bag with money and give it to him. The bartender told him he would keep the money, he meaning the guy who was instructed to do the fake robbery. So the guy did exactly as the bartender requested. There was 1500 in the bag, but the robbery was reported to be for 10000 See the scam? So there's supposedly $10,000. I don't know why there's 10000 in the uh, register. That might be exaggerated. But let's just say there was. So 10000 in the register. And 
this bartender set up with Mickey Krim's old buddy from the late 80s. The bartender set up that he would do a fake robbery, that he would give the guy 1500 in the fake robbery, which the fake robber could keep. That's what he'd get out of it. And then the bartender would pocket the other 8500 in the register and pretend that was all stolen by the robber. So the ringleader, the bartender of this whole thing gets 8500 The fake robber gets 1500 and guess who is left out $10,000? The ownership. So presumably, Lodge Lalpai believed that their employees were pulling scams on them. Maybe for free drinks and free food, and maybe for fake robberies. So every time something would happen, they would become instantly suspicious. And if you notice, Edward Parker was complaining that as soon as he was called into the closed-door meeting, they didn't ask, how are you? Okay, did you get hurt? Are you shaken? You know, how are you feeling after being held at gunpoint? They just immediately went to asking him for, for all the details. Tell us everything. What happened? Tell us exactly the whole story. Don't leave a detail out. Not how are you? You feeling okay? Are you shaken? Need a little time off? Nothing like that. Why? Because their mind probably immediately went to, oh no, one of these fake robberies. We had 4000 bucks in the damn register after... You know, it's, it's, it's right early in the morning after the whole night when we accumulated the most money. Because the best time to rob it is at you know, the very end, right in the morning. And what if he set this up? There's hardly anyone here at 6.20 in the morning. So what if he set this up? So we're going to get all the details and we're going to try to figure out if he set this up. So that's probably where their mind was. And that's been their policy, not just with this Edward Parker. It's not like they suspected him personally because Edward Parker reported that they did this to somebody else at a different location that was robbed by this same couple. However, there's a lot of problems with this. First of all, real robberies do occur. In fact, here they did. In fact, real robberies are far more common than fake robberies. So what you're doing by protecting yourself here as the ownership from fake robberies, you're screwing employees who are victims of real robberies, which are far more common. So you can't screw the employees and make them responsible for something that they had no control over and take the money from them just because once in a while, criminals will who work for you will set up fake robberies. I mean, it sucks these fake robberies occur, but if you suspect one, then you have to do some work to try to figure out if one happened. And then if you really are convinced, maybe you can fire the person. But you cannot make every employee who gets robbed give up the money from the robbery. You can't do this legally. And morally, you definitely shouldn't do this. You're screwing working class people who just went through something very harrowing. So this is really, really bad. And what I really don't understand in this case is presumably it was known pretty quickly it was the same couple that had been hitting everything. Because I'm looking at the couple right now. They have a pretty unique look. One of them has a a very big neck tattoo and isn't young. He's not like a young uh, gang member type. This uh, This guy's 42 and looks 42. And his girlfriend uh, who did it with him, she's not young either. She's 38. And how often do you have a male-female couple of that age, one with a neck tattoo, robbing places? I mean, obviously, it was probably very clear to the police, since this was the ninth robbery done by them in a short time, that this is a serial robbery uh, couple, and uh, that obviously this bartender had nothing to do with it that this couple just keeps hitting places. So it's not like this is the first one. This is the ninth one, and they had previously hit a different location. So 
right away, wouldn't the ownership of the lodge at Hualapai think, wait a minute, this exact couple hit a different location before, and they hit uh, seven other places that have nothing to do with us. Obviously, this is not Edward Parker's fault, so we're not going to charge him. So even if initially they suspected it might be something that he set up, they should have realized very quickly, because I'm sure the police told them this is a, a couple that's doing this serially in the last four months, they should have immediately called him back in and said, sorry about that. We've realized that uh, this is a couple that has been doing it all over Las Vegas, and uh, we're going to tear up this contract and give you back the money we took. But they didn't, because why would they? Because they could just pocket the money. Wouldn't they really? Wouldn't they rather Edward pays for the robbery than them, even if they know it wasn't Edward's fault? And that's the worst part of this whole thing, is they didn't even have the slightest reason to suspect that it was him. In fact, they knew it wasn't him, because this couple was doing it serially. This wasn't a one-off robbery where they were going to wonder. Even there, it's wrong. But they knew for sure, because this was the ninth robbery by the same couple that's been hitting Las Vegas all over the place for four months, that this had nothing to do with the guy, and he was innocent. And they still took the money from him. Isn't that awful? Now, I don't know why he didn't pursue this legally now that he realizes that he got screwed here. You can say, okay, back in December... He was panicky about not getting a job and having to leave this job, so he reluctantly accepted this awful uh, situation and didn't say anything about it to keep his job. Well, he's leaving Vegas, and he's done with them, and he's done with them enough to actually report what happened. So why is he not suing them? This didn't occur five years ago. This happened in December 2020. This is less than a year ago. This is definitely within the statute of limitations. Why is he not suing them? And I don't know. Maybe because he's leaving Vegas, but he should definitely sue them for this. And I bet he could easily find an attorney to take this one on contingency if he doesn't have the money to pay for an attorney. This is really bad. Now, you may wonder, what does the lodge at Hualapai have to say about this? They uh, had one comment. I will play it to you. You got it. Crickets. Nothing. They would not comment. You may say, well, maybe they wouldn't comment to me, or maybe they wouldn't comment to some uh, small journalist asking them for comment. Like uh, John Mahaffey, he uh, tried to ask them for comment, but you could say, okay, maybe they don't want to answer John Mahaffey. Okay, but do you think they should answer the Las Vegas Review Journal? I would think so. The Las Vegas Review Journal covered this story, and they were not getting an answer from the Lodge of Hualapai. So they went forward with the story and just didn't. But uh, they didn't publish the, the response from the lodge because uh, there was no response. So they're refusing to answer the journal on this, which looks pretty bad. Because obviously, if this didn't really happen, then they would have said this is completely false, and we're going to take action for this libel against us. But they didn't say that. They just won't answer. So when this type of outrageous behavior is alleged by a former employee, which is blowing up on local social media so much that Yelp has actually frozen the ability to review the Logic Hualapai. You actually can't review them right now, and it popped up a warning that due to major media coverage that they've disabled the reviews for right now. So that's how many bad reviews that were being put there just for this purpose. Now you may say, wait a minute, why is Yelp covering for them? Well, they're not. Yelp has a policy that 
you are not allowed to review anything unless you're reviewing an actual experience you personally had there. So if you hate the business for reasons other than an experience you personally had, you're not allowed to post a review on Yelp. That is the Yelp policy. So since there's all these one-star reviews being posted there by people who are just angry about this story but haven't actually been there or aren't writing about their situation when they were there, they're writing about a third party, this Edward Parker and what happened to him, then that violates Yelp's terms and Yelp got sick of deleting review after review like this, so they temporarily froze the ability to review Logic Hualapai. And that's common. That happens a lot when any business is in the news for negative reasons. But obviously, this is blowing up and making them look very bad. And if there were something they could say that would make them look not as bad, they would say it. If they could say, oh, no, 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 he's not telling the whole story here. Let me tell you what really happened. And then they would look in the right. If they could do that, they would. They're not going to let their reputation get trashed and make everybody in Las Vegas hate them. Because this is in the Review Journal now. This is in the biggest newspaper in Vegas. This isn't just on Twitter anymore. So you know that this had to have happened. Otherwise, we wouldn't be getting crickets from the Lodge of Hualapai. So this is uh, not a good situation for them. I don't know how much this is going to affect their business, but I have to imagine there are probably a lot of people who read this story and are so outraged by it that they are going to vow not to return there. There'll be some people who don't give a crap or never hear about it, but this is definitely going to affect their business. And I don't know how long it would take them to recover from this. People are going to remember a story like this. This is really bad. The poor guy gets held up at gunpoint and he gets charged for the money that was taken. And of all things, it was done by serial robbers. It was very clear serial robbers. So you can't even say they even had the slightest suspicion once they heard who did it, that it was his fault. But I'm telling you, that's why they have that policy in place, to protect themselves from shady employees who set up fake robberies and set up fake dining dashes and drinking dashes. The problem is you can't do that. This is just something you have to eat as a business owner. And you have to try to hire good people who aren't going to do this. And sometimes they get burned, and that's the way it goes. You, you cannot victimize innocent people because you're getting hit by bad people sometimes. It's not how it works. You can try to catch the bad people. You can try to penalize the bad people. You cannot victimize innocent people and just assume they have to be guilty because other guilty people have done the same thing in the past. You know, th- Think if uh, everything else in life worked like that. Think if uh, you could be arrested for something you didn't do because uh, you, you happen to uh, look similar to someone who was arrested for uh, committing that same crime in the past. Not that you match the description, and they haven't caught the guy yet. They've caught somebody in the past. You just happen to kind of look like him, so they just, they're going to arrest you and charge you too. I mean, that would be crazy, right? That's what's going on here. They're, they're actually taking money from employees because they say, well, uh, you know, other employees have done this to us in the past, so we're assuming that's what you're doing too. But wait a minute, isn't this a couple that's doing this all around Vegas? Yeah, but we don't care. You're still paying. What? So they have no answer because they have no answer. They cannot say anything that would not make them look terrible. There is no excuse for this. There's nothing they could explain that would make this sound okay. So if you're in Vegas, do not go to the lodge at Hualapai because this is a horrible story and they don't deserve your business. I was talking to Brandon about it. He said that he's been there a number of times, that he never had a problem there. But uh, boy, it sounds like a horrible place to work. But Edward Parker really should sue them. In fact, he probably wouldn't have to appear that often anyway. He could get an attorney in Nevada, in Las Vegas there, to take this case. And then he probably would barely have to appear. 
the attorney would do most of this. And I bet they'd settle. This sounds like a slam dunk lawsuit to me. In fact, don't just take my word for it. In the review journal, they interviewed two attorneys, two local attorneys, who said that this is not legal and that uh, action could be taken against them for this if uh, he were to pursue uh, civil litigation. And that's what I thought right when I read this. I thought there's no way this could be legal. And, and I read the law about this, and I, as soon as I finished reading the law, I said, yeah, this doesn't apply. There's no way that this uh, could be allowed, even if he agreed to it. Attorney Joseph Mott told the Review Journal that this represented a clear example of an employer improperly taking advantage of its employee. I agree. He said, aside from the absurdity of forcing an employee who is a victim of armed robbery to repay stolen money or be fired, the employer's conduct likely also violated Nevada regulations designed to protect employees. That was the one I read you, by the way. Within the relevant regulation, an employer may only deduct from employees' wages amounts that the employer reasonably believes the employee is responsible for. In this case, the employee doesn't appear to be responsible for the loss, so forcing the employee to repay the loss from his wages is a violation of the code. True. By the way, I came to that conclusion before even reading this. That was my initial thought when I read the law and I saw what had happened. Attorney Robert Murdoch said to the Las Vegas Review-Journal, To me, the threat of losing one's job if they don't pay this money that was taken from a robbery is a violation of public policy and could very well result in a wrongful termination claim against the bar. Yes. I don't know why he's not doing this. I mean, why is he just posting this on Twitter or on Facebook? Why? why? Like, I'm glad he's revealing it. That's good. But he should sue him. If he regrets this, there's still a way to correct this. You don't have to just walk away with your tail between your legs and feel like a chump. Fortunately, this has occurred recently enough to where you're well within the statute of limitations. It's been nine months. It's been nine and a half months. So do it. Sue him. 100% they should be sued. In fact, I don't know what kind of damages could be won in such a lawsuit, but I would hope a lot. I would love to see them hit with uh, a lot of punitive damages here for wrongful termination and for violating this code. They would deserve it big time. I mean, businesses like that shouldn't exist. They should be out of business. They don't deserve anyone's patronage, and they should suffer severe financial consequences for doing something like this. They are taking advantage of good, honest, working people who can't afford something like this. It's bad enough to take this from someone who can't afford it, but uh, to take this from a working-class guy who's struggling to get by here during a pandemic and actually is trying to work rather than just take government money. And this is what they're doing to him. It's horrible. And boy, that form looks damn authentic and they haven't denied it's real. They haven't denied his story is true. And there's a reason for that because it very likely is. That is a very, very obnoxious story and one that made me angry to read. If this happened to me, no matter how good the job was, I would tell them to shove it. I am very, very against giving even a penny to any business, whether it is an employer or one where I am a customer, that they don't deserve. And I've never had a situation as egregious as this, thankfully. But I have had situations, uh, even as a customer, where the business says, you owe such and such. I say, no, I don't for this reason. It's not like my opinion, like there's a mistake on the bill or some, something was misleading, whatever. Something where it's very, very clear I'm being screwed. 
and they say, okay, how about we reduce it to this? And I say, no, 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 you're not understanding. I'm not going to pay one penny more than what I should owe. So if you reduce it to what I owe and one cent, I'm not paying anything. I will pay you once you reduce it to the proper amount and then send me a new bill. And I've, I've had that conversation before. And I'm not talking about negotiation. I'm not talking about me trying to uh, bring down an amount I actually owe, hoping they'll accept it. I'm not talking about something like that. I'm talking about where there's a real and valid reason why I feel I'm being overcharged compared to what I should have to pay. And I have had it before where businesses have just basically said, we don't want to deal with it, pay anyway, or, or just uh, were dishonestly telling me, no, you do owe this, and they would just refuse to listen to reason. And I say, no, I'm not. I will pay exactly but what I owe and not one penny more. And in fact, not only won't I pay more, I won't pay you anything until you correct it. But if this occurred in a work situation, yeah, you bet I'd walk out if they said, pay back what was stolen here or it's your job. If I knew this wasn't my fault, if I knew some criminal came in, whether it was at gunpoint or not, if it wasn't my fault and I was not legally responsible or morally responsible, I would give them a big fat middle finger and say, okay, you can fire me. And by the way, I'm going to sue you if you do. Now, we have people that seem to believe that this is okay because he agreed to it. And these are who I call terms of service or contract monkeys. Because there are morons out there that believe that if you agree to something in writing then you must keep to it, even if you are being scammed or treated unethically. And my answer is, not always. In fact, frequently you don't. A contract cannot supersede local, state, or federal law. So if your contract is illegal by law, then you can wipe your ass with it, and it will not be valid. And you are not morally responsible for a contract that you have signed, which is against the law. Because there is a reason that contracts are against the law. Now, I'm not talking about a contract which uh, is about a victimless crime, like like a gambling debt, where you're gambling with someone, you've signed a contract, you're going to pay if you, if you lose, and then you lose, and then you technically can't enforce it in court because it's a gambling debt. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about something that is shady, that you're talked into signing or pressured into signing, and then you're told, well, you signed it, you're responsible. No. Even if you didn't sign under duress, you're not. If it's against the law, then you're not responsible. And you should never feel responsible. And there's some people say, oh, well, a man needs to keep his word. If you said you're going to repay, you've got to repay. No. Not if a company broke the law and threatened your job in violation of the law to goad you into signing this contract. So anyone who says that just because he signed it it should be okay, either morally or legally, is stupid. And if you're in that situation, don't ever be talked into believing that because you agreed to something, it means that you're responsible regardless of the legality. The legality always supersedes the contract. The contract's illegal. The contract doesn't exist. And it looks like this contract was very illegal. We are going to move on here. Our next topic is about something that I have feared before, something I feared would happen, but fortunately didn't, or at least it didn't uh, for very long, so it wasn't a big deal. The high roller, which is that giant Ferris wheel 
that can hold like 40 people per pod. So it's not like a regular Ferris wheel where you have two people sitting in a little bench that goes around. This is a giant Ferris wheel that's very, very high that uh, is in a pod, closed pods, that can hold up to 40 people. It's called the High Roller. It's been around for a number of years. It is in the Link Outdoor Shopping Mall next to the Link Hotel. It is owned by Caesars. And even though this is a fairly modern, state-of-the-art, what they call observation wheel, I always had a little bit of a fear, what if this freaking thing gets stuck? What do I do? And will I panic if it's stuck for long enough? It's one thing for it to stop for a minute or two. That doesn't matter. But what if it really seems like it's absolutely stuck? Then what do I do? And how easy will it be to get me down from something like this, which is uh, so high in the air? So I have wondered, like, what if the whole thing just breaks down and I'm high up and what are they going to do and how scary is it going to be to rescue me from it and how many hours will I be stuck up there? And this has been in my on my mind before, but I will say that I've enjoyed my rides on the high roller. I've never once paid a penny for it. I always got it free. In fact, I can still get it for free. If you're a Diamond member at Caesars, you can get uh, two tickets for month per month on that thing for free. So you should know that. So I, I've ridden it a lot of times. Usually with Benjamin, but uh, I have taken other people on there as well. And uh, Benjamin's enjoyed it too. And I will tell you, even though it takes like half an hour to go around, and people go, oh my God, that seems so boring. How can you stand being in there for half an hour? Well, you go to the bathroom beforehand. If you feel you don't have to, you just you go pee beforehand. So you make sure you won't have to pee when you're up there, because otherwise you're screwed. There's no bathroom. And uh, then it actually goes a lot faster than you think, because the view is nice. And it's not a cramped space, and they usually don't cram anywhere near 40 people in there. So even if there's other people with you, it's not terrible. And I, I've been in it alone with just me and my family before. But I've, I've had other people in there, too, and they're fine. You know, everybody just sits down. You can sit down. You can stand up. You can walk around. The thing is not all that small. It's The pods are a lot bigger than they look from the ground. And uh, I don't believe you can open any windows in it, but there's the whole thing is basically a window. So you can see out every part of the car in every direction. And it's nice and it's relaxing and that half an hour flies by. Now, it's not something that's a must-do, but if you get it for free, it's definitely worth it. It's worth the time. It's fairly expensive, so I think it's like 30 bucks or something per person. So I don't know if it's worth that. But for free, it's worth the half an hour to go do. However, I always had a bit of a fear that this thing's going to get stuck, and I'm going to be hating life. Well, a few times the fear actually came true, but not for very long. Uh, I would have it just abruptly stop, and uh, it would not give any kind of information of what was happening. So you wouldn't get a message, uh, the wheel has stopped, but we will get going within a few minutes. Like You don't get anything like that. They could. There's, There's a way they can talk to you through there, but there's no way to talk to them And it does not give you information. So when it has stopped, it just stops and sits there. And you start to get a little uneasy after more than a minute or two passes. And it stopped actually a number of times. There's been a lot of times I've taken it where it hasn't stopped. I've probably taken it about 10 times in my life. I'd say it's probably stopped on uh, three of those rides, but only uh, one of them was fairly long. And then one was maybe five minutes. And then one was probably one or two minutes. 
the longer one, which is probably like 10 to 15 minutes, started to get a little bit unnerving because um, I had no idea what was going on. And I, I started to worry at that point, like, why is this not moving? And I never found out what happened. But uh, it eventually just started moving again. But we were still a little bit before the time where I was going to start to worry that I'd be stuck there a long time. Now, your cell phone works up there. So you can call and find out what's happening if it, if it gets really desperate. But uh, I wasn't up to that point yet, even in the worst one. We're stuck for like 10 to 15 minutes. But imagine you are on the high roller and imagine you're near the top. And not only does it stop, but your pod tilts to where you can no longer stand up. And it's tilted to the side and you're stuck that way for a long time. Well, that actually happened. That happened on September 17th. And someone actually took a video of it and posted it on TikTok. So this is the type of thing I wish we had a video show for, but we don't. But I'm going to play you just the sound of it. It's not very long. TikTok videos are always very short. But this is the TikTok video of someone on the top car trying to make the best of it and uh, showing what happens when they stand up and how much their body tilts. And then someone starts to panic in the car that this person's too close to the doors and they're worried that uh, this is going to throw them towards the doors, which may open and then they could fall out. So uh, listen to this. So obviously, uh, that doesn't tell you that much just from the sound, but what you were listening to was one guy trying to stand and his body is, is uh, almost falling over, and then people telling him to go away from the doors because they think it's dangerous. But you can see from the filming of it that the car is totally tilted and that uh, it's pretty scary. Like the, the whole thing is tilted to the side, and they sat this way for 90 minutes before finally get got going again but what happened there's some kind of malfunction and the ride basically broke until they were able to fix it i don't know if there was any communication with the riders or if they were just left stuck wondering what was going to happen 150 guests were on the high roller and stuck when it ceased to move for 90 minutes it was called a network connectivity issue Involving one of the cabins. So that's pretty crazy. It wasn't even mechanical. It was actually uh, some kind of internet issue where it lost connection and that just froze the whole thing. A spokesperson for Caesars said the high roller observation wheel was stopped during its rotation on Friday night, that is September 17th, due to a network connectivity issue involving one of the cabins. Approximately 150 passengers were aboard the wheel at the time. Engineers resolved the network issue within approximately 90 minutes. The wheel's rotation resumed, and all passengers safely disembarked. And, uh, oh, good news, everybody. They received refunds. <laughs> well, that's good. At least they didn't pay for it. Are you kidding me? Is that all you gave them was a freaking refund? They deserve more than a refund. At least give them a voucher to go eat somewhere. What the hell? I don't know why they can't manually start the thing again if it loses network connectivity. Shouldn't there be like an emergency uh, override to where even if the network fails, I don't know why it needs network connectivity to operate, but even if it does need that for normal operation, 
shouldn't there be a way to override that enough to where the wheel should go around and let everybody off and then they can stop it and fix it? I can't imagine network connectivity would be something that would prevent it from turning and let everybody get off safely. So it sounds like the whole system is just designed to shut down when something's not right. And maybe that's what happened when I was on that it shut down to like 10 to 15 minutes. It just wasn't big news because it was only 10 to 15 minutes. That is uh, pretty disturbing. And I have to admit, this makes me wonder a little bit if I want to go on it again. I, I was considering going on it when I was in Vegas last. And I said, nah, you know what? I just don't feel like it. I wasn't even afraid of COVID because there was no Delta known yet, at least not known in the U.S. And this was after I was vaccinated, but before Delta. So I easily could have gone on. It was was when I was there for uh, the Resorts World opening in June. But I just said, you know what? I, I, I don't feel like it. I just, I wasn't afraid of anything. I just didn't feel like it. I'd been on so many times. Benjamin wasn't with me. So I said, you know what? I won't do it. It is tough for me sometimes when I know I have a free benefit that's going to expire at the end of the month and that I'm not going to be back until after the end of the month. And I know the benefit, which people normally pay for, for the same thing, I'm just leaving it on the table and not doing it. And I feel maybe I just have to do it because it's worth something. And then I say, nah, you know, I don't feel like it, and... I've been on this like 10 times already, and my son's not with me, so... All right, fine, I won't. But it's hard. Sometimes I I feel guilty for leaving the benefit on the table. This was uh, pretty bad, and especially the reason. I would understand a mechanical failure that just absolutely keeps it from turning, but a network connectivity thing. For some reason, I thought I read Mechanical when I first read the article. I must have wanted to read Mechanical. (laughs) It's just on this show right now, I see network connectivity. I go, what?! That makes no sense to me. I I can't picture, as a tech guy myself, I can't picture why network connectivity is essential to the wheel operating to where it can't operate on an emergency basis to get everybody off. Like, once you get everybody off, it doesn't matter how long it sits there frozen. Then you can leave it all night if you want. Just uh, get everybody off first. That is crap. This is not the first controversy they've had, the high roller. If you remember, there was a couple that was seen having sex in a high roller car. They were there by themselves. Nobody else in the car with them. And they actually had sex in the high roller car in the full view of other cars, including kids. They were reported and arrests were made. And it turned out there was more to the story. It turned out that the couple having sex did not show up to Vegas as a couple. And in fact, one of them was cheating on his girlfriend. And that guy is now dead. I forgot from what. Not an STD, but that would have been fitting if that's what killed him. But uh, he died of some accident or something like a year later. But this is worse than uh, seeing a couple have sex. I mean, I wouldn't be bothered if I saw a couple have sex. I think it was a little bit weird, but uh, that wouldn't be traumatic to see. But I would not want to be in one of those cars that's like tilted and I'm just sitting there for 90 minutes wondering what the hell's going on. I really want to know if they communicated anyway. Like, are they at least saying, hey, we're fixing a network issue. It should be this long or, hey, we think it's this much longer now. Like, just to sit there wondering, I would be on my phone 
demanding answers. But you know, with Caesars, it's hard to reach anybody. But even if I could find out what was going on, that would be really, really unnerving. And then you have to wonder if they're really going to fix it or if you're going to hear eventually they can't fix it. I was once on a ski lift that completely broke down. And guess who the last person was to get off the lift prior to it breaking down? That would be me. The ski lift reached almost the point where you would normally get off, like very, very close to it, and then it just stopped. And after I sat there for several minutes, I'm like, oh, okay, this isn't starting again. I'm tired of sitting here, and I jumped off. When I say jumped, I mean I had to jump like six inches down, so it wasn't exactly a big jump. It's very safe to do. I jumped off and I was fine. Unfortunately, my dad and my brother were on the chair behind and they could not jump off because they were still 10 feet in the air. So they had to sit and wait and I sat and waited for them, which was nicer to sit there uh, either on a bench or on the ground wherever I sat when I was waiting for them. But uh, I was a little worried for them. They were going to be stuck there for hours and and they were the next chair to get off, but they were still far enough to where they couldn't jump off. Uh, they were stuck there for like 20, 25 minutes, and then uh, they actually brought a gas motor over to power the lift. I, I guess the power failed completely, and that was the reason it couldn't continue. So they brought a gas motor over, which I watched them hook up, and the gas motor ran the thing enough to get everybody off the lift, and then they uh, ventured to fix it at that point, which was going to take some time. So fortunately, they were only stuck for uh, 20, 25 minutes. I've seen rare situations where people are stuck on ski lifts for like hours at a time and that would just drive me nuts too but i i wasn't even stuck on it so i i can't complain too much i just felt bad for my dad and brother okay let's move on here so there's a resorts world that opened in june and this is not a resorts world story though it's about something that is said to eventually be by resorts world but resorts world was the first ground up resort on the Las Vegas Strip since the Cosmo in 2010. So what's coming next? Well, this is not coming next, but this is something which is being promoted as eventually coming, and it's a very ambitious project, which some people think is cool, and some people think is stupid, and then others are saying there's no chance that this will actually exist. The moon is coming to Las Vegas. Yes, the actual moon. A scale version of the moon, I'm talking about the moon that orbits Earth, is planned to be built across from the wind and a little bit south of Resorts World. It would be 735 feet high, which is very high. In fact, it would be the second highest structure in Las Vegas, only behind the Stratosphere Tower. And the Stratosphere Tower is still uh, not that much bigger. This is uh, two-thirds the height of the Stratosphere Tower and would be higher than any hotel in Vegas. uh, Other than the Stratosphere, and that part's not really the hotel. That's uh, the tower of the Stratosphere. You can't stay there. You can only uh, take an elevator to the top and either eat there or go out on the observation deck. So this would be the tallest hotel in Vegas at 735 feet, and it actually would be the moon just scaled way down, but still very large as far as a hotel would be concerned, and of course a very strange shape be this big uh, sphere that looks just like the moon. 
there is a drawing of it. If you go to uh, VegasCasinoTalk.com, my other site, and there's a thread called One Small Step for Man, One Giant Leap for the Vegas Strip, you can see this picture of this moon resort that they claim they want to build across from the wind, presumably where the frontier used to be. There is nothing in that land right now, but... uh, Supposedly the Wynn owns it, so I don't know how they would acquire that land, but that's uh, what they claim is going to be the location. Aside from the hotel being shaped like a giant moon, another unique feature would be a lunar colony meant to imitate conditions one would see on an actual lunar colony, if one existed, on the surface of the moon. The description is as follows. To access the colony, which would be in the upper half of the sphere, guests would head to shuttle stations to waiting moon shuttles. Designed like cars on a roller coaster ride, the shuttles will snake around the exterior of the hotel suites as they ferry guests upwards. Okay, wouldn't it be crappy to be in a hotel suite and have these cars passing by (laughs) your suite constantly? It sounds like it'd be noisy and kind of intrusive. Once there, guests will spend 90 minutes exploring the 10-acre space, whizzing over craters in a moon buggy. The colony promises to, quote, precisely mimic those lunar colonies now under serious active planning by NASA, ESA, and many others. Tickets would be $500 to do such a thing. (laughs) Yeah, good luck getting a lot of people to sign up for that. Now, this kind of reminds me of an amusement park that was depicted on the TV show Futurama. In fact, the second episode of Futurama in 1999 depicted this park, which is called Luna Park, and it was on the actual moon where they built a uh, Disneyland-like park that was on the moon and had a moon theme to it. In fact, the mascot even had a uh, like cardboard moon face he was wearing. Hi, I'm Craterface. Welcome to Luna Park. I'll have to confiscate your alcohol, sir. Better mascots than you have tried. At least I still have my (laughs) self-respect. And at the end of the episode... There actually is a scene of the characters uh, riding around the surface of the moon. First, a fake surface of the moon that's part of an attraction at the park. And then they bust out of the park and and really drive around the surface of the moon in those uh, amusement park buggies. So this is tremendously similar. I wonder if they even got the idea from that episode of Futurama, which is now uh, 22 years old. So will this happen? Will there really be a giant moon, which is very prominent? Like if you look at the picture, it's a very, very prominent feature that would be across from the wind. Will this really happen? Well, probably not. In uh, 2016, this exact concept was pitched to the city of Coachella, California. You may say, wait a minute, is it going to be part of the Coachella Music Festival? No. Little known is the fact that the Coachella Music Festival is not in Coachella, California. However, it's very close to Coachella, California. It's actually in Indio, and it's part of the Coachella Valley, which is why it's called the Coachella Music Festival, but the city of Coachella is not where the festival is. It's just very nearby. Anyway, the actual city of Coachella, they pitched this five years ago, and then it never really got going. And in fact, uh, the 
city manager of Coachella mocked it and said that uh, he didn't think this was possible. He said if there was a, a word for completely impossible, then he would use that. Not just He felt stronger than impossible. He thought like completely impossible. If you go to moonworldresorts.com, you can see some renderings of the floor plan, which are pretty uh, crude. And then you could see a little video depicting of what it would look like from the outside, but pretty similar to the still picture I posted. So they've uh, apparently uh, moved this idea around to various places, and Vegas is the latest place that they think they're going to bring this. And uh, keep in mind, there's a lot of dreamers out there who believe that their ambitious project will take place, and then it never does. In fact, on the last show, we talked about the planned city of 5 million people that's completely self-sustaining in the middle of the desert, and I don't think that's going to happen either. But apparently, someone wants to bring the moon to Las Vegas. It does look interesting if it were to ever exist, but uh, I have sincere doubts that this thing would end up... uh, on the Las Vegas Strip. And there's also some questions like, why would the wind allow this? They own that land. And do they really want a giant moon in everybody's face who's staying in the hotel? Because like, it would be blocking the view of a lot of the rooms from the wind and Encore looking in that direction. And are they going to want this if this has nothing to do with them? And maybe the city would object or the county would object. This is a very large thing. And it would really dominate the Vegas skyline. And this would be something that perhaps wouldn't even be allowed. Uh, furthermore, I'm not sure how the hotel would work. The drawing doesn't make a lot of sense. There's no windows here. So I, I don't think they're going to build a windowless hotel. But in the drawing, there's no windows. It's like a very authentic-looking version of the moon, probably because they just took the actual moon and shrunk it for the picture. But... I don't see any way to have hotel rooms. And also the round shape's a little bit weird to, uh, you know, how do you do that? How do you build hotel rooms in something that's shaped like a sphere? I guess it can be done, but you're going to end up wasting a lot of space. And in some areas of the sphere, you'd have to think it would be uh, pretty difficult to do. Like, like what about the the top of the sphere? You, you can't have people standing upside down there. Like, I, I don't understand exactly what they're going to do there. I guess they could have internal rooms with no windows. They claim it would have uh, 7,000 hotel rooms, which is also crazy. That's more than any resort in Vegas. I don't think this is going to happen. I think people just like talking about it because it's a picture of a giant moon sitting there on the Vegas Strip. But I thought I'd mention it. Another Las Vegas story. Very uh, Vegas-heavy show this time. The Oakland A's are a Major League Baseball team. Been around for a long time. And they have talked about moving for a while. They're not very happy there. For various reasons. First of all, they're located in a bad area. And they get a lot of... uh, people who make trouble, who come to the stadium. They get poor attendance, partially because of the element that comes to the stadium. The TV market is small. Uh, A lot of people 
prefer to watch the San Francisco Giants. So they're in the same general area as the Giants, of course. So they're competing with the Giants, and uh, they've kind of been the odd man out. So there's been a lot of teams that are unhappy in Oakland. In fact, uh, that's where the Raiders came from. The Oakland Raiders became the Las Vegas Raiders in the NFL. So might the Oakland A's do the same thing? Well, I long contended that Las Vegas, while appropriate for an NFL team and an NHL team, is not a good market for baseball and that a Major League Baseball team would not be coming there. First of all, the population isn't big enough to fill a baseball stadium or even partially fill a baseball stadium for 81 games a year, which is how many home games you have in baseball in a regular season. Now, you may say, wait a minute, look at the good attendance they're getting at uh, the Vegas Golden Knights, and that's just hockey. Well, that was the first major sport to come there. And their arena is much smaller, as far as capacity is concerned, than a baseball stadium would be, so they don't need as many people to fill it. So uh, they could get uh, 10,000 fans there, and that's just fine. Where in, in baseball, if you're getting 10,000 fans a game, you're, you're struggling. So they, they need to fill more seats for baseball. Baseball is it's more expensive to operate a baseball team than a hockey team. So they need to fill more seats, and they just don't have enough people to fill a baseball stadium 81 games a year. You may say, well, wait, look, look the NFL stadium is doing well. That People are very excited to go see the Raiders, and they're selling uh, seats like gangbusters. So that's as big as a baseball stadium, even bigger. So why wouldn't baseball work? And my answer is, well, because there's only eight home games in NFL football. So if you want to go to an NFL game to see the Raiders, then you have one of eight games to choose from, not one of 81 games to choose from. So that's why it's much easier to fill, much easier to fill because there aren't that many choices of dates. When you have 81 different dates, then you're going to have a lot of people that go to a few games a year and don't want to come back again. So there's just not enough people in Vegas to fill the stadium for 81 games. Now, it doesn't have to sell out every game. In fact, even the Dodgers, which are the best-drawing team, don't sell out every game. But uh, the successful baseball teams are drawing more than 30,000 fans on average per game, and uh, you're never going to get anywhere near that in the Vegas market. So the population just isn't big enough. The TV market is small, and TV money has been fueling the spending of baseball teams for quite some time. Vegas is very isolated. There's basically no population in outlying areas for 100 miles in all directions and about 200 miles in certain directions. The closest city of any consequence to Las Vegas is St. George, Utah, which is 120 miles northeast. So the entire market for Las Vegas is the Vegas area itself, which is comprised of Vegas, Henderson, North Las Vegas, and Boulder City. And that's it. 120 miles in any direction is basically nothing. So it's not like a lot of other cities which have a lot of outlying areas, which, while they might be a bit far to travel to the stadium very often, these people want to watch the game on TV. So you have to add that population into the market. Vegas will not have such a thing. They will not have outlying areas adding to the market. So the TV market is small, and therefore they're not going to get a lot of money selling ads. Therefore, they're not going to get a lot of TV money. Number three... The number of tourists coming into town to see their home team play in Vegas will be minimal, aside from 
close by teams like the Dodgers, the Angels, the Padres, and the Diamondbacks. This is different than the NFL, where there's very few games per season. So fans of those teams may schedule a Vegas trip around when their team is coming. So again, with only eight home games, that uh, if your favorite NFL team is coming to play the Raiders, then it's very likely that you and many others will be scheduling a trip around coming there to see this uh, one special game when your favorite team is playing the Raiders in Vegas, and then you get to be in Vegas too. Well, for baseball, it's not the same thing. In baseball, first of all, the game is uh, not always on a weekend. Frequently, the games are during the weekdays. And uh, also, there's, again, a number of dates. Each team plays a number of times, the other teams, and uh, so it's going to be spread out. So even the people who do this will kind of spread themselves out out of uh, a number of games, so you can't even count on that a lot of people who are fans of the visiting team will be coming in and filling the stadium, with the exception of the ones where it's easy to come in for it. So I'm talking about, again, the Dodgers in L.A., the Angels in Orange County, the Padres in San Diego, and the Diamondbacks in Phoenix. Those are all easily drivable and where it's reasonable you can see a lot of people coming from those areas to see their team play in Vegas. However, if the Oakland A's were to come to Vegas, they would probably remain an American League team, which would mean that only the Angels of these four teams would be playing the Vegas A's very often. The Dodgers and Diamondbacks wouldn't even be playing them uh, some years. Anyway, despite all that, despite my pessimism about an NFL t- an MLB team coming to Vegas, it looks like this might happen anyway. Presumably, they are excited by the success of the Golden Knights, which is just an NHL team, and uh, the Vegas Raiders, which everybody's excited about. So, I think they're kind of ignoring the factors I just discussed above and are mesmerized by what they've seen of the other teams that have come to Vegas. And the owners of the Oakland A's have decided that if they don't stay in Oakland, they are definitely coming to Vegas. It's no longer that Vegas is an option. That is where they are going to go if they do not stay in Oakland. Now, what is going to determine whether they stay in Oakland? Well, the A's actually want to stay in Oakland. They don't want to move, but they hate their stadium. They want to have a new waterfront stadium. And they need major infrastructure improvements around the site of that new stadium for people to be able to get in and out of it. And so they have demanded that the city of Oakland pay for it. And the city of Oakland says, we don't have the money for this. And then the A's said back, well, you can try to put a special tax on the ballot. I don't know if it'll be on the ballot or it'll be passed by the legislature there. I don't know how the tax will come to place, but there would be a special tax that would support these major infrastructure improvements to where people would be able to get to and from that new stadium easily. So it's not clear if this is really going to happen. It's not clear if the city of Oakland is willing to pass that tax. It's not clear if this new stadium that they want there, this billion-dollar structure on the waterfront, is going to happen. So they're deciding by the end of 2021, and it'll be based upon whether this stadium and the infrastructure improvements happen in Oakland, but if this falls through and they're told, nope, this waterfront stadium is not happening for you guys, 
They say they will actually move to Vegas. They said that uh, by the end of 2021, they're going to make a decision. Oakland or Vegas. Oakland gets first dibs. If they can get that stadium happening, then uh, they're going to stay. If not, bye-bye, we're going to Vegas. So it is possible that this stadium is not going to happen and that the city of Oakland is not going to want this new tax and that they actually will move to Las Vegas, which would put three sports now in Las Vegas if this occurs. The only major sport not being there would be NBA basketball. This would be baseball, football, and hockey in base in Vegas, which is crazy because for the longest time, no major sport would come to Vegas because of game-fixing concerns with the sports books. But now the athletes make so much money, that's no longer a concern. No athlete is going to risk their career on throwing any game because they're making so much money, it wouldn't make any sense. There, there wouldn't be a bribe that would make any sense to give these athletes to where they throw a game because they stand to make much more playing honestly and doing well. They, they don't want to risk uh, not only going to jail, but also uh, it would ruin their career. They'd be banned from the sport forever. So no one's going to risk that at this point, whereas in the past, the athletes didn't make nearly as much as they do today, even inflation-adjusted, so they were much easier to convince to throw games. And that's why there were some scandals in the past like this. And that's why for many, many years, it was unthinkable that a pro team could come to Vegas. But now with those concerns gone pro teams are coming to Vegas. The only concern really now is the market size and whether it can support these pro teams. So I've always been pessimistic about baseball coming there. I actually think the correct move, if Vegas does become the new home of the A's, I think the correct move would be to swap them with the Colorado Rockies as far as the league they were in, to where the Rockies would move to the AL West and the A's would move to the National League West. The reason this would make sense is they would put the Vegas A's in the same division as the Phoenix, uh, as the uh, Arizona Diamondbacks, the San Diego Padres, and the Los Angeles Dodgers. And then all three of those teams would play the Vegas A's fairly often, being in the same division. And that would improve attendance, and that would also uh, maybe even establish rivalries between these teams because of their proximity. Otherwise, if you put them where the A's currently are in the AL West, the American League West, what you're going to have is uh, only the Angels will be driving distance from them, and the rest of the teams will be pretty far. If you look at it, you're going to have Houston, you're going to have Texas, you're going to have, and those two different teams, Texas and Houston, and you're going to have Seattle, and then the Angels. So really, the Angels will be the only team that's fairly close to Las Vegas, and it just won't be the same. So I think the Vegas A's definitely would belong in the National League West, and there's been no talk of a switch, but I could see it happening. It would make sense. I'm not sure if the Rockies would like that, though. I'm not sure if the Rockies would want to be moved out of the National League West, but perhaps they would because uh, the Dodgers have been good for so long, they may be tired of it. I know there's the Houston Astros and the AL West, but they the Rockies might be happy to get out of the National League West and not have to deal with the Dodgers anymore. And right now, the Giants, too. Giants are pretty old, though, so I I think they're not going to be dominant for a long time, but who knows? Maybe they will be, too. So maybe the Rockies would be happy to move to the American League West and try their luck over there. Anyway, that is uh, possibly in the plans. This is no longer just one of these things where 
it's being thrown around, but it's not serious. This is now looking pretty serious. So we'll see by the end of the year if the Oakland A's become the Las Vegas A's. Finally, I want to talk about a murder that occurred. Not in Las Vegas, but on the East Coast. A murder occurred inside a casino at the Biloxi Golden Nugget. Casinos don't like to talk about these things. They don't like people to even think this is possible. But unfortunately, there is a good deal of violence at casinos because there's a lot of unstable people that hang around them. And then altercations occur. And then there's also criminals that are looking to mug people. And sometimes uh, murders or near murders occur at these casino properties. In fact, we've reported on some over the last few years on this show. In this case, it was a result of an altercation that started outside of the casino. Jareem Lamond Jones, 30 years old, of Mobile, Alabama, argued with a 41-year-old man named Randy Johnson, not the pitcher, but a different Randy Johnson, who isn't six foot ten and wasn't a great Major League Baseball pitcher. So Randy Johnson and Jareem Lamond Jones got into some kind of argument and altercation outside of the Golden Nugget Biloxi in Mississippi. They had a fight outside the casino, and I don't know who won the fight, but uh, Randy Johnson decided he was done with it, and uh, he went inside the casino. Maybe he thought he was safe in there, that uh, even though Jones was uh, physically fighting with him outside the casino, surely uh, Jareen Lamont Jones would not be dumb enough to uh, continue attacking him right in front of security inside the casino, would he? Well, not only did he uh, continue attacking him, he shot him dead. Randy Johnson was killed right inside the Golden Nugget at about 1 a.m. on uh, September 18th. Someone captured a video, not of the shooting, but of the chaos that occurred afterwards when the police were there. So you hear everybody down, everybody down, that's the police yelling. The police are running through with guns, yelling, everybody down, everybody down. And you see police running by really fast uh, holding guns very scary scene uh this guy being told to get down wasn't getting down the guy taking the video i don't understand what he's saying but he's just like standing there (laughs) filming it all (laughs) still playing music there they did catch dream lamon jones they caught him on the uh biloxi ocean springs bridge and uh, arrested him. But that is not crazy. You're like just standing on the casino floor and some dude runs up to another dude and shoots him dead. But that happened. It was not enough to have the fight outside the casino. He actually follows him in and shoots him. Wow. I mean, I would think if I got in a fight with someone outside the casino and I got in the casino, I would assume it's probably over. I would assume that guy's not going to be dumb enough to come in there and follow me and at worst if he does he'll come in here and you know, try, like try to punch me again but i would not picture someone is going to walk inside the casino and shoot me I, I would not picture that i would i would picture if i'm going to get shot 
at a casino, it, it would be outside the casino, or maybe someone would follow me to my hotel room and shoot me like in the hallway. Like I, I, I could picture that. I could not picture being shot like right on the casino floor, but there are people out there who are that violent and crazy. So you have to watch out at these casinos when you see shady people who you piss off. You, you don't want to start something with people who look like they could do something like this because they're out there. They're, they're out there and a lot of them hang out at casinos, sadly. The casinos, unfortunately, attract some bad element. A lot of crazies hang out at casinos. Like, I felt uncomfortable, not from a violent standpoint so much, but a, maybe I thought about that a little bit too, but Harris Rincon, when I spent several days there in 2015 doing nothing but just, like, grinding video poker like a madman to try to make seven stars. And I did nothing for four days other than sit in there, play video poker, eat, and I did radio one day. But aside from that, I never sit foot outside of the Harris Rincon. I, I actually, I said once, and I believe that's true, that was the longest time I had ever gone where I did not set foot outdoors in my life, except maybe when I was like a tiny baby. Like I, I went more than four days without even setting foot once outdoors. I was in Harris Rink on entirely. <laughs> Didn't even set a foot outside the door. But uh, while I was there, especially towards the end, I, I was noticing that they had a druggy crowd that was like regulars there. And they knew each other and they hung out and they looked very shady. And uh, I started to think, why am I sitting here for all these days <laughs> around these type of people for so long? Like, I wasn't there to hang out with them, obviously. I was there to grind video poker. But it was, you know, I wasn't trying to be a snob there, but these were really, really very trashy people. And uh, one of them even talked to me for a while. It was this uh, woman who looked around my age. I think she even said she was my age. But we were very close in age at the time. And she had a lot of missing teeth, and she looked like she had a meth problem. And she told me she was a pillhead, but she denied doing meth. At first, I thought it was kind of amusing to have her sitting there, but uh, then eventually she got on my nerves. But I noticed that she knew the whole uh, druggy crowd. There was even one guy who approached her who actually looked normal. There was like some Indian guy who looked totally normal. But uh, he tried to make some kind of... Uh, sex for drugs deal with her and she was saying it too loud so I could hear and he got kind of frustrated about that and told her to keep her voice down and she's like no 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 you know um Todd he's cool he's because I told her my first name is Todd she's like yeah Todd's cool he's all right with it I'm like okay I don't know how she thinks that but she assumed I was okay with a with a sex for drugs deal um except she told me that it was uh the other way around that uh, he was paying her for drugs and that uh, he wasn't selling them to her or giving them for, to her in exchange for sex. <laughs> Which clearly wasn't the case. I mean, I could hear what was going on. He, he wanted to take her somewhere and he was going to give her something. And it, it was very clear what was going on there. Though I, I don't know. I, even if I had drugs, I would not give them to her for sex. She was uh, not very appealing. Like, I guess if she kept her mouth closed and never opened it, she wasn't bad, but uh, she was missing a lot of teeth. And uh, even with the mouth closed, she had like a methy look to her. Did not find her attractive one bit. Uh, she looked like she like may have been attractive maybe 10, 15 years ago before all this happened, but not anymore. 
anyway, but the, the whole crowd there was was very shady, and I was like, wow, this this place has kind of changed. <laughs> I'm a little nervous now walking to the parking lot, especially now that they see I'm playing high stakes video poker. Like, I I, I really was more aware when I went to my car. Like, I'm always looking around, but this time I was really looking around that none of those people saw me going to my car when I checked out because I was afraid I was going to be mugged. And these people didn't even look like they were violent or anything. It's just still, like, you never know. They're desperate for drug money. I just, I felt kind of uncomfortable. But yeah, a lot of crazies and people with issues hang out at casinos. And it makes sense. You know, it's it's kind of a place that attracts degeneracy. And... It's one thing to be someone who enjoys gambling or has a degenerate side to you, but the rest of your life is normal and you function normally. But then there's some people who uh, this is just one piece of their very unstable lives. And some of these people are not very good characters and uh, would basically do anything for money, including some very bad things. And then some other very uh, unstable people who will be violent and attack you for uh, very flimsy reasons. So got to watch out. Sometimes you got to put your pride aside when dealing with people like that and just kind of de-escalate and get away from them. Uh, I don't know what the circumstances were of this fight. I don't know who picked the fight. I don't know if they knew each other beforehand. All I know is these two guys uh, had a fight outside of the casino and uh, one went inside, the other followed him in and shot him dead. Lovely story. I have been to Biloxi, Mississippi once and I stayed at the Grand Biloxi, which was a uh, Caesars property. I think it changed name since then. There's a number of casinos over there. I didn't stay for very long, and uh, I was with Benjamin at the time, so I couldn't do much gambling there. Uh, we just kind of went there as a diversion from New Orleans because we were in New Orleans for a while. And I said, you know what? Biloxi's only uh, 90 miles away, so I've never been there. So let's drive to Biloxi. And Benjamin's mom said, okay. So that's what we did. And I think we spent like a night or two there. And it wasn't that exciting. Uh, Biloxi is on the water, but there wasn't really much we could do because it was in the winter and it was cold outside. So it's not like we could go to the beach or anything. Uh, I had planned to go to Biloxi before that, in fact, before Benjamin was born, before I was with Ben's mom, I actually had plans to uh, go to Biloxi with somebody I met off of Neverwin Poker. And then a hurricane came in and uh, closed it. And it was closed because they were planning the hurricane was going to hit near Biloxi. And stupid me, I took the trip anyway and figured that if I stay further west, that it's not going to get there because it was not forecasted to get much west of Biloxi. And that turned out to be incorrect, and it got all the way to Houston. And I had to evacuate, and it was very stressful. I've never evacuated a hurricane before until then, and I have not since, because being a person who is on the West Coast, there are not hurricanes here. In 1997, I'm kind of getting off topic a bit, but in 1997, there was a hurricane that was said to have a decent chance of getting to Los Angeles. And everybody was talking about it. I was living in L.A., and everybody was talking about the hurricane that's coming. Do you remember the 1997 Los Angeles hurricane? If you do, then you have a good imagination, because it did not come. I was correct. It did not even come close. And I told everybody, there is not going to be a hurricane in Los Angeles. 
there hasn't been one. There's been, uh, I think, some tropical depressions a long time ago, but even since then, the climate has kind of changed. But there is not a known hurricane that has actually been in Los Angeles. There's been water spouts. There's been tropical depressions. There has never been a hurricane that's made to Los Angeles because the Pacific Ocean is too cold. And it can't make it there. Once it starts to go north and it gets to the, the cold parts of the Pacific Ocean, it falls apart. And if it goes to land, it falls apart. So a hurricane simply cannot travel that distance from the warmer waters further south to get as far north as Los Angeles or anywhere near Los Angeles because it's got the cold water and land in the way, and both of those things kill hurricanes. So it's never going to happen. And I was telling people back in 97, this is not going to happen. And people are showing me pictures of the hurricane. I'm, I'm having people emailing me pictures of the hurricane of where it was and how big it looked and how scary it looks and it's coming. I said, it's not coming. Well, it didn't come. So that's the one benefit of the cold Pacific Ocean. The thing that sucks about the cold Pacific Ocean is it's cold and it kind of sucks to swim in it. You can get used to it after a while, but it, it's even in the summer at the warmest time, the Pacific Ocean off of LA is like 74 degrees and even that's rare. Usually it's like 68. So you've got to get yourself used to 68 degree water, which isn't easy. And then after you're in it for like an hour, your teeth are chattering because you've lost a lot of body heat. So you can't even stay in the water very long without uh, losing too much body heat to where it actually isn't wise to stay in. It can actually be unhealthy for you, even dangerous. So you can't even stay in for that long. So people picture LA having these warm beaches like Hawaii. Nope. The beach may be warm, but often that's not warm either. But even if the beach is warm, the water is always cold. And in the winter, forget it. The winter is in the 50s. You can't even swim in that unless you have a wetsuit on or unless you have a tremendous tolerance for cold water. But even in the warmest time of the year, unless it's a rare year where you have these El Ninos and stuff like that, where sometimes it'll get up to as high as 74, but it's uncommon. Usually the best you're going to see is 72 and... Typically, it's under 70. I'm going to look at this up right now. Let's see. Uh, let's just look up uh, Redondo Beach. This is the one I know the best. Redondo Beach, ocean temperature. It's near where I grew up. Yeah, right now, uh, 66 today. And that it has never been higher than 70 degrees on this date since they started tracking it in 81. Oh, sorry, it was 64 degrees. 64 and then... Uh, I think it's 64 right now, but it goes up to 66 during the day. I think that's what it is. And you may say, well, it's September. No, September is actually when the water is typically the warmest in Southern California, because that is when Southern California temperatures are the warmest. But even in uh, August and September, where you get the warmest temperatures, the typical average is 66. So not even six, 68 is actually more than average. 66 is more common. So that's why there will not be a hurricane in Los Angeles. We're not going to see it. I've told Benjamin this too. Benjamin kind of wants to see one. And I told him it's not going to happen here. You'll have to see it somewhere else because it's not going to get here. And I told him what happened in 97. And he'll point out these hurricanes that are in Mexico, on the west side of Mexico. Oh, maybe you'll come here? And I said, no, it will not. I have seen a water spout, though. I remember I was in junior high school, 
and I wasn't all that close to the ocean. Like my junior high school wasn't that close to the ocean, but it was kind of high up on a hill so we could see to the ocean. And I, I could see the water spout from there. It was weird. I was like, what the hell is that thing? Someone says a water spout. I go, well, I haven't heard of a water spout before. Then I learned about water spouts. All right, we're done here. Uh, we'll eventually have Brandon back on the show, presumably. I kind of messed up. I didn't tell him about the show this week. He knew there'd be no show last week, but uh, I forgot to tell him we're coming back this week on Friday. And I promised him I'd tell him about the show in advance. However, he also hasn't been on the show in a few weeks, so I, I have a little bit of an excuse. that I got, I got unused to him being on here. And that's what made me forget to message him about it. In fact, I forgot to message Trader Ruski, too. Now nobody's with me. It was my fault. I didn't tell anybody. Oh, well. It happens. Well, thank you for listening to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. Apparently some guy had a meltdown on Life of the Bike unrelated to the stuff we talked about, but I don't feel like doing it. So, that's that. I think I got through the topics pretty well. We had a lot of big topics to talk about this week, and a lot of topics in general to talk about, but I made it happen. I mean, it wasn't a quick show. It was on here for uh, a good six hours. But we're done. In fact, this is the first show where nobody has called in and I had no co-hosts in a very long time. It's just me. Just me speaking the entire time. Wow. I like to have interaction. I got some texts tonight. I just didn't have uh, any callers, and I didn't have any co-hosts. You know, this isn't like Dash Poker Podcast, where I've got Daniel Negranu on a speakerphone talking to me. No. Actually, I don't think it's a speakerphone. I think it's like a... A speaker mic. I mean, I, that would bring people to this show, I bet, if I had Negranu as a co-host. But, uh, no. We don't have Negranu. We don't have Terrence Chan. We don't have Adam Schwartz. We sometimes have Brandon Drexel-Gerson. He's a good draw. Not a big name in poker, but uh, people who are familiar with him like him on radio. And Trader Ruski, he's on almost every show. Somehow we didn't get him this week because I forgot to tell him the show's happening. Oh boy, I messed up. All right, well, the good news is we'll be back next week. Should be on Friday. October 1st, the scheduled next show on Friday. And we'll find a way to give away the vast free roll money we have, and we have even more vast charity money. Remember, Text me, 775-372-8355 if you've got ideas of where the charity money. we still got over 5000 well over 5000 left to spend. Good night, good morning, good afternoon, everybody. And, shalom. Shalom.